This is Jocko Podcast number 202 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. On a bright and violent morning in the Central Pacific, a dying Marine with part of his face shot off saved my life. He was perched atop the partially raised ramp of an LCVP. He was a big, solidly built man with a gaping, gory hole where his eye should have been. Blood streaming from the wound. Moments earlier, he had been standing in the water beside me at the bottom of the ramp, waiting with the other wounded men for his turn to board, another casualty in the battle for Basio Island. I was dying. I had been shot through the lower abdomen, hit as my unit waded toward the shore to assault the island. Two men from my platoon hauled me back to the LCVP and struggled to lift me into the boat. The Marine with the ravaged face, who had just boarded, now saw that they were having trouble with me. He reached down, grabbed me with one hand, and pulled me up and over the top of the ramp. Amazing. And so, I didn't die. That too was amazing. But not really all that significant in the grand scheme of things. That incident is just a small scene in a very big picture. So, an insignificant event like that, can you imagine being gut shot in waist deep water under heavy machine gun fire, barely making it back to a landing craft, which is going to save you, being pulled into that landing craft by another wounded Marine, and surviving. And can you imagine considering that, that series of events to be insignificant? It's almost impossible to think that way. But that excerpt is from a book called Faithful Warriors, written by Lieutenant Colonel Dean Ladd, who served as an enlisted and officer in the Marine Corps in the Pacific Campaign in World War II. He participated in the battles for Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Saipan, and Tinian. Battles where tens of thousands of Americans were wounded or killed as they fought against the fanatical Japanese imperial war machine. And while it's impossible for us to understand what those men actually went through and what those battles were like, this book does an amazing job of giving us a glimpse into this savage part of war. And it is a complete honor to have the author of this book, Dean Ladd, here to talk with us about his experiences. Colonel Ladd, welcome to the program. Thank you. That's uh, incredible, the things that you went through. And this book has been, I, I could not put this book down and this book is just the picture that it paints of what you all went through in that Pacific campaign is it's unbelievable what you guys went through. It truly is. 
Um, so I guess if we're going to start, I always like to start. I always like to start at the start. So for you going to the book here, it says in early 1939, a boy from the next block came over, came home yeah. from overseas. Yeah. And I was never the same become because of it. His name was Lee Preston. And he was a corporal on leave from the Marine Corps. He showed up wearing his dress blues, creating quite a stir in our quiet Spokane neighborhood. Mostly, I think, the stir was in me. He looked so sharp in that uniform and his manner, the way he carried himself, at once modest but utterly self-assured. Got me thinking about myself and my future. I was only a couple of years younger than Lee, but it didn't seem that way. I was a senior in high school, just a teenager, still a kid, and Lee, well, he was different now. He had changed. He had left home a boy and returned a Marine, a warrior, a man. So the old Marine Corps recruiting uh, process of just sending Marines home on leave in their dress uniform worked on you, huh? It really did. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, (laughs) what did you know about the Marine Corps at that point in time? Not very much. I, I was being approached by uh, one of the old uh, timers in the local Marine Corps Reserve uh, organized, and they were trying to get me to join. And so uh, I, uh, this was an opportunity just to find a little bit from another source what it was going to be, what it was like. I was, I was surprised later on, thinking about this, that at that time the Marine Corps was only 20,000. And... Uh, and a lot of people, they felt fortunate to be able to be selected to get in there, actually. And uh, this is all uh, in 1939, uh, and long before we even thought we were going to get in World War II. And it wasn't until, not, it wasn't much longer after I joined in 1939 that, uh, that I went to a couple of, uh, we meet just like the National Guard once, once a week and have drill right down, right, very close to where we're, we're having this broadcast right now, right across the road from us. And uh, we, um, and then I went on, went, went, to, went to college, Washington State University, and, uh, and had one year, one year of college, and uh, went, to, uh, went to two encampments with the, uh, with the organized reserve. One, the first one is San Diego, and the second one is to Bremerton. And uh, so then we got called to active duty, though, in, uh, in November of 1940. And that's, that's not very long. Uh, well, just a year. That's a year before we got into the war. Here we were called and went by troop train. There were about, about 300 of us at least and uh, ended up in San Diego. And uh, that, that, was, uh, that was for an encampment. Then, then a year later, in well, in, in 19, uh, November 1940, we were called in active duty, and now we uh, we thought we we're going to be gone one year, but we were only gone, but we were gone for a total of five years. So where were you when when Pearl Harbor happened? When Pearl Harbor happened, we were in San Diego, and I was going through a scout sniper school at a place called Mission Valley. I don't know if you've been to San Diego lately, but Mission Valley is now a mall. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that was nothing but nothing but uh, sagebrush and and a lot of rattlesnakes. And so you're going through that sniper school. Pearl Harbor happens, and yeah. what 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 did they do? Did they immediately recall you? Did they cancel we the school? All, we all had returned returned to the base and uh, be, get ready to uh, 
to go here, go there. There was just all kinds of commands going out. Uh, first of all, hey, we got to go here. No, no, we're going to go there, and this, all of that. And in spite of all of that, within one month, well, by uh, first part of, of January, we were aboard a ship heading to American Samoa and uh, to defend that island from the Japanese taking over and blocking the supply line from the United States to uh, New Zealand and Australia. Now, the, did the Japanese ever show up and attack that section of American Samoa? They didn't. They didn't for a long time. They would have if it hadn't been for uh, uh, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> what's what's the, what's that main island on where the big battle Midway. 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 Yeah. So at that, my that, age, I'm having a little difficulty re recalling names anymore. <laughs> it's all good. We got time. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, at what point did you get? Uh, the next the next orders that you were going to not just guard this island anymore, you guys were going to head out. Yeah, about a, about a, uh, about a month before we finally left, uh, we'd been training the, uh, the Japanese young men uh, who joined the, joined the Marine Corps Reserve, and uh, they took over the, uh, our, uh, guarding each of the uh, little, little uh, beaches all around the island. Some were very remote. And so we were able to leave and had no, had no idea where we were going. We thought, well, it could be the East Indies. We, we had no idea. But and on, the, on the other hand, it, it, we knew it pretty much was going to be uh, going to Guadalcanal because we were having difficulties there. And somewhere in here, you got your commission becoming, and you became an officer. Yeah. How did that happen? Okay, uh, after we'd been on Samoa for about three or four months, uh, I was now a corporal of a lot uh, as a squad leader of a machine gun, light machine gun uh, squad. And uh, I, uh, I got along very well with, with the uh, NCOs and uh, with our platoon leader. And uh, so I was recommended to go to a, a machine gun, it was, it was billed as a machine gun training school, but it turned out it was just to uh, identify likely candidates uh, to become become commissioned, so uh, I recognized there was probably about uh, could have been 150 or more of us, and uh, it lasted six weeks. And here, as corporal, I was one of those selected to get a field commission. And that's it. You you had one year of college. They they put put had, you from corporal to second lieutenant to second lieutenant. And at that time, we had no means of even getting. Uh, getting a second uh, lieutenant bars, it had it made one down at the uh, where, where they where their where their uh, our aircraft were. So you guys just fashioned some some butter bars for yourself. That's right, we did. And then <laughs> and then next next thing, when matter of in first first part of November, this was only a month after I was commissioned. Uh, here we were aboard ship heading to Lord knows where, and turned out to be Guadalcanal. And here I am entering combat with the same group that I had been enlisted with before, the same company. And uh, I know our first sergeant, he was a gruff old guy. And uh, he used to read me out like he did everybody else. And you, and he, but he, he saw that any time that I was giving a command that he said, you listen to your second lieutenant, you're gonna have to contend with me. So that was just, it was just wonderful. So I was an extra officer assigned uh, to the uh, company headquarters. And that was pretty much 
the situation. They had to have extra officers. When they got into casualties, they could immediately fill, fill, the, fill the ranks with, uh, with a new platoon commander. And that's a long story after I, how I got into the actual action of itself, not knowing how I was going to be able to react as a, uh, as a young lieutenant leader. Well, you write about that here. Here, we'll go back to the book, and here is you actually heading into Guadalcanal. And yeah. here, here we go. I remember thinking as my LCVP yeah. chugged toward the beach that my time had come and that it would be a time of testing when yeah. I would get to show what I was made of at yeah. last. Yeah. Even so, a part of me wished I were somewhere else. What yeah. if I failed the test? Yeah. I was assigned to the headquarters section of B Company 1st Battalion go. as an extra second lieutenant with no specific duties other than to follow whatever right. orders I was given and make myself useful in whatever possible way. The regiment was actually above full strength with junior officers to spare. It was an unusual circumstance and I knew it would soon change because junior officers typically suffer the highest casualties relative to the other ranks. Attrition would quickly and inevitably take its toll. Lieutenants in command of line units would get killed, wounded, injured, and sick. Extras like me would replace them. Inevitably, inevitably too, a few junior officers would be relieved for incompetence or cowardice. I prayed that I wouldn't be one of them, that I wouldn't turn yellow and let my buddies down when the going got tough, a fate worse than death. As for death itself, no worries there. Getting killed was something that happened to the other guy. And then arrival. Our LCVPs came to a gentle halt at the waterline, nosing into the sand of Beach Red between the Teneru River and Lunga Point. We climbed over the sides, there were no ramps on those early model Higgin boats, and we walked onto Guadalcanal. We hardly got our trousers wet. We'd experienced rougher landings during amphibious assault exercises outside San Diego. <laughs> San Clemente for one. <laughs> so you're 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 heading into Guadalcanal, and there's it's a pretty calm entry, even though there had been a lot of fighting going on. Yeah, previously there had been at that location. So once you get on Guadalcanal, you start to move towards the front lines. Yeah, and in this case, it was off opposite direction where we had, where the front lines were. The Japanese had landed way 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 south of us, and there was concern that they were going to come and envelop us from that location. So our uh, <clears throat> our regiment moved out to head them off, and. Uh, Going through jungle and and in in at the night, and uh, we didn't know what, really where we were. Didn't know where they were. Uh, we finally got up to the to an army outfit, the 164th from Dakotas, and uh, they had just ended up shooting each other just the, the day before. And here we saw blood all over the place from that that situation. We ended up uh, at night. And we just had to stop right along a right along a river bank, and I had my feet dangling in the water at the time. So anyway, uh, we never did run into the the Japanese. We, they, they all of a sudden they disappeared from that particular location. But that was a quite a, quite a trying time. Just what it's like to moving into combat, not knowing what's going to happen next. You know, one thing that I talk about a lot is the possibility of friendly fire occurring. That and is exactly what happened. I know I had friendly fire 
incidents happen with me in in Iraq, and yeah. this happened to you as well. I'm going to the book here. You are you are you've been moving for a while, and you're holding up at night, and you guys are in your position. Then all of a sudden, bang! Someone yelled, another shot fired. And then another, and then another. Yeah. Several shots in quick succession, yeah. Yeah. all from our foxholes. More yeah. shots all at once, and just yeah. the whole company shooting, yeah. firing every which way, shooting and shouting. Grenades were thrown, bursting left and right, front and to my rear. Explosions and muzzle blasts lit the area like popping fl- flash bulbs. Corporal <laughs> Lane was hit in the arm, a minor wound, but he didn't think that it was minor. He panicked and shouted out to Sergeant Wimpy Wright. <laughs> Top, my, my arm shot off. Since Wright and Lane were best buddies, a show of concern from the first sergeant might, have, might in the circumstances have been expected and would certainly have been warranted. Yeah. But Wright, an old salt who is as crusty as they come, was not practiced in showing concern, even to best buddies who had been wounded in combat. Muttering just loud enough to make himself heard above the racket, Wright replied, shut up, you fool. You want to let them know where I am? The shooting continued. More grenades exploded. PFC Harold Park, a bar gunner with 1st Platoon, realized that several men just to his left were throwing grenades all around the darn place. The guys were just having a little hand grenade war with each other. Maybe the Japanese were out there too, tossing a few grenades of their own, but Park didn't think so. He stayed low and didn't fire his weapon. I didn't didn't figure it would do any good, even if there were Japanese. You couldn't see nothing. Uh, All you could do uh, is sounds. Park was a uh, half Korean and and half, uh, uh, half Irish. Yeah, so I, 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 I had a lot of contact with him after the war as well. So it was important for him to, because uh, I know you say in the book that, that he inherited his father's looks, not his mother's. So he looked more Korean. He than looked he more did. Korean. We told him, you better stay close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, yeah, that's a rough one. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you, you get done with this this just happening basically all night. I mean, crazy firefights, and you don't even know if there's well, any Japanese at time, out there. At that time, Murdoch, that was our act, acting uh, company commander at the time, and uh, the man near him got got shot through the uh, abdomen area, and he's more concerned that he lost, it, lost his private parts. But he didn't. Mm. Now, now, was Murdoch, did Murdoch have... Uh, experience from some of the other campaigns? No, no, he was new just like the rest of us. We're all new to combat. Uh, speaking of, you know, near misses and whatnot, you're waiting to uh, do a link up, and here we go back to the book. I thought I might grab a quick bite to eat and started to open my sea ration can. In the process, I somehow managed to cut my thumb to the bone. Blood gushed from the wound, and I spent some frantic moments applying a field dressing to staunch the flow. The non-coms and enlisted men watched me, probably trying hard not to laugh. I still have a scar right there in that thumb from that. (laughs) And they're watching. They're thinking, second lieutenants are idiots. Hard to argue with that assessment, which the lower ranks held as virtually axiomatic. And I had just given them another reason for their certitude. How humiliating and annoying. The cut would not fully heal as long as I remained on Guadalcanal and I still bear a scar from it. Thus far, the chief dangers in Guadalcanal posed to my well-being had come from one, my buddies via friendly fire, and two, myself. The Japanese, in comparison, had been a relatively benign presence. There are a couple of situations right at that same time that happened. One was a uh, young Marine that from another outfit. He was... a uh, Real bad. He thought he was. He's really been there. And he says, "I, I'm used to all this stuff, you know." And here he had a Japanese skull hanging from a 
from a cord of some sort, and he was just swinging that around, crazy. And then a little bit later, within within an hour or so, we had a big air raid. Just hundreds of Japanese planes dropped uh, dropped bombs on us. And then I was watching one of our anti-aircraft cruisers shooting at them, and many of their planes dropped at that time. But that was that was really a really getting into it in deep way, but not really directly in direct fire at the time. So that, that time, that kid that you talk about and you mentioned in the book, <laughs> yeah. this is, um, this is sort of the, so he's a guy that had been fighting somewhere else and he comes back. And so yeah. this is the first person that you see that you look at that's starting to be, you know, he's having some, let's see, how did you put it? He had acclimated to conditions yeah, yeah. on Guadalcanal. Yeah. That's what you wrote. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, however long that takes before, yeah. You know, it's a it's a different it's a different yeah it's a different environment. It's a completely yeah. different mindset. Yeah, and that's what he was doing. Um, <clears throat> now these all these young people they they all had beards now. You know, they haven't shaved for a long time, and they uh, they had they hadn't had enough food really. They're eating Japanese rice and whatnot because our transports all had to leave. They loaded off they loaded off the troops, but most of the material, all of the food and stuff. They weren't able to unload, so they had to eat this Japanese food. So anyway, they were pretty gaunt-looking people. But even so, they were full. They they were full of, full of fight. You could tell young people, you know, young guys that are in their teens still. You know. Wow. Um, you get into this uh, Matanikau. Am I saying that right? The Matanikau. Matanikau. Yeah. Matanikau. Uh, this this river this offensive that you guys start on 10 November, which is the 167th anniversary yep. of the founding of the Marine Corps. And here we go to the book, separating our forces from their geographical objective, a coastal village with some four miles of, of exceptionally rugged terrain, grassy ridges falling away steeply to jungle choked ravines and several mm-hmm. thousand Japanese infantrymen, also exceptionally rugged. Our mission objective was to engage, defeat and destroy the enemy formations in our path. Our assault units advanced slowly but steadily against determined resistance. The 8th Marines ordered to move up in column behind the 2-7 filed across a narrow pontoon bridge over the Matanakau and continued a short distance before halting for noon chow. As before the sweep to Kali Point, we encountered no Japanese. The attacking units had driven them off, but we suffered casualty just the same. Casualty let me, let just me tell the same. you a bit about yeah. there. We, where we had chow... Uh, there were many Japanese bodies lying about. Some had been partially buried. Some of their legs were still sticking out. Uh, there had been a major battle uh, between between them attacking the other Marines that had been there just before, a few weeks before. And here, all these among all these bodies and flies and maggots and everything else. So we ate among all of that. Yeah, you're saying some some guys would could couldn't even carry on barely because it smelled so bad. Yeah, yeah, it did yeah. This right near a place called Point Cruz, by the way, and today it, it's a city well of r- over twenty thousand. That's the capital of the of the Sol- of Solomon Islands. At this point, you actually say in the book, as you were sitting there amongst all these bodies, these dead bodies, yeah, and yeah. as you're sitting there eating your chow, <laughs> you say, like that kid twirling the skull. I was acclimating to the conditions on Guadalcanal. Yeah, I'd been on the island for seven days. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an indication to you 
So then you guys, later that day, an enemy unit penetrated our line and ambushed weapons platoon, killing three Marines with a burst of enemy fire, with, with a burst of machine gun fire. And then the entire offensive had suddenly been called off. And not only that, yeah. we were gonna give up the ground we had taken, relinquishing yeah. it to the Japanese. Yeah. What the hell we thought. So you get told, hey, you guys stop attacking. And the reason was, which you'll get into in just a bit, is that there's a major task force, the Japanese, uh, about 12 transports full of troops, can you imagine? And uh, battleship and cruisers and a lot of destroyers. And they, they, were gonna, they were gonna just knock us off of there. We, we, had, we, had, we didn't have a good feel that it was that dire. But boy, it turned out it was because that, uh, when they did come in at night, we saw them come in in mid-November, and uh, major battle between, naval battle, naval battle Guadalcanal. And uh, you, you would never know, watching at nighttime, you didn't know which are our ships and which are theirs. All of a sudden you see something blow up or you see red hot shells being fired and going back and crisscrossing back and forth. And then the next, next morning, he was have had troops have the uh, some our men that their 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 own ships were sunk, and now they they they're all full of oil and they're coming they're, they're now they're landing on our shore. It was uh, what and here we watched it from a grandstand uh, viewpoint on a ridge watching all this happen. And incredible. You did did you, you did yeah. you know that this naval battle was about to take place? Uh, didn't know it was going to be anything anything like that. To imagine roughly 12 transports full of troops, all but, all but three of them were sunk. And the three that did beach, the troops got off, but all their supplies and stuff remained on. And, and we, uh, our planes bombed, bombed that, and our artillery did. So we had, those, we, we had to reckon with those troops that came, got off those transports. As yeah. the next over the next week or so, your your description of this battle, yeah, is oh wow. is is crazy to read. I'm going to read it. Yeah, the battle between the American and Japanese surface fleets began a little before zero two hundred, like a suddenly breaking storm of Good. cataclysmic size and power. Yeah. yeah, in the language of naval tacticians, the coming together of two fleets in Sea Lark Channel constituted what yeah. is known as a meeting engagement. Yeah. Engagement. Yeah. But collision engagement is a better term for describing what happened. Steaming more or less blindly into the channel, the fleets ran into each other at oblique angles. Their ships quickly became intermingled, resulting in clo a co close quarters melee that saw the combatants charging madly about, their big guns flashing and booming, hurling red-hot shells and high flaming arcs above the channel. The thunder of the guns rolled across the black water, a steady pulsating roar, and the molten projectiles streaked like meteors, crisscrossing the skies with fiery tails rising and falling and crashing into ships and exploding in massive fireballs violent secondary explosions caused by ammunition cooking off in the intense heat of the detonating shells rocked some of the ships and sent them furiously ablaze burning like roman candles fountains of fire sparking and shooting flames and blasting big chunks of steel in every direction all the while star shells and flares burst high above the channel and then faded like dying galaxies as they drifted down at the end of their parachutes 
into the extinguishing water. The canisters that held the flares periodically flew over our positions, chugging like locomotives. Searchlights probed the lower darkness with their long, brilliant beams sweeping back and forth above the surface, bisecting, fixing on some hapless ship, bringing the blazing shells down on it. Streams of tracers from automatic cannons and machine guns curved through the middle of the air. Every now and then, an errant torpedo slammed into the beach below us, 2,500 pounds of explosives, blasting a big crater at the waterline. We watched all this from our foxholes on the ridge, front row seats to a spectacle that John Murdoch John Murdoch likened to all the 4th of Julys I ever yeah. saw in my life all put together at once. We were a vocal audience, awestruck and profane. A ship would explode, and all up and down the line, you'd hear men exclaiming, Jesus Christ, and holy shit, and oh my fucking God, did you see that? It was thrilling, really. You couldn't help but feel that way. But I also couldn't help but wondering which ships were ours, and how, we could dis- and how they could distinguish friend from foe. I thought of the many men who were losing their young lives right before our eyes. I felt very fortunate to be in safe in my foxhole, and I wondered who's winning. Yeah, we had no idea who was winning. We, uh, just, we just knew that what a, we had seen a massive combat, just incredible. And we were in a ringside seat. Now, as that's going on, obviously you have to realize that if the Americans don't win this thing, yeah. That was it. You guys are done. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine a convoy like that, that many transports? They, they probably matched our numbers at that time if they had got, all gotten ashore, but they didn't. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, early the next morning, B Company crossed the river to spearhead the attack by another Green Army battalion, the one the first of the 182nd along the coastal flat toward the base of Point Cruz. So you guys, you guys took lead. Yeah, we were, the, we, we were spearheading that particular attack. You know, you talk about, you, you mentioned Wimpy, right, a little earlier, and that's yeah. a heck of a nickname, and it doesn't sound like it suits him very well. <laughs> and thought about that, true. But, but we talk about, you know, a lot yeah. of times we talk about leadership on this podcast, yeah. and you, you do a great description of this kind of transition and the relationship that you had with Wimpy Wright. And I think it's worth... Well, this is, this is my co-author, Steve we- uh, Weingartner. I tell you, he was, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great. You know, he got an award uh, for a, a Polish woman that, was, that escaped the uh, Holocaust. Okay. Called Lala's Story. Well, well, we can definitely look into that book. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, yep. Here's how he describes your relationship with him. Wimpy Wright was the company's first sergeant. He yeah. was a tough old salt, short and stocky, late 30s or 40s, old yeah. enough to be my father, old enough for that matter to be the father of quite a few of the lieutenants in the regiment. He was going on 20 years in the Marine Corps and had served in China, Nicaragua, and Haiti. He was no newcomer to war, no stranger to combat. He, he was an China. old salt in our terms. <laughs> he possessed a commanding voice, which he used in a full-throated bellow when reading off one of his charges when reading off one of his charges for doing something stupid. On Samoa, before I was commissioned, I had been one of his charges and had usually, yeah. more, more than once deservedly, been on the receiving end of one of his harangues. But now I outranked him. I was 
at first uncomfortable with our new relationship. I found it hard to imagine giving orders to a man who not so long ago had been shouting in my face and giving me a dressing down the likes of which I'd never experienced before and never would again. It wasn't that I was afraid of him, rather I respected him too much and knew him and knew too well that he was a great Marine to think that I could or should be telling him what to do. And I thought that he might resent my status and just to be cantankerous, make things difficult for me. I needn't have worried about right. A consummate professional, he supported me fully and sincerely. Sincerely, I should have expected that. After all, it was because of his recommendation that I received my commission. He looked on me as his protege and he wanted me to succeed in part because my success would reflect well on him, but mainly because he was genuinely, genuinely proud of me. Also, because I was a known quantity whom he had personally mentored, he much preferred me to be giving orders rather than some 90-day wonder fresh out of training in the States. Since he had taught me everything I knew, he was confident that in combat together, we would more or less be thinking along the same lines, an important connection for a top sergeant to have with his platoon leader. Nor would he, nor would he brook the slightest insubordination toward me from anyone else in the platoon. You will obey your lieutenant or you'll have to answer to me, he growled at my guys. And you could be damn sure they did. Nobody wanted to have to answer to write. <laughs> Sounds like an outstanding Marine. Now, pretty soon you're going to get me getting into a part. That's my my first encounter of uh, very close calls with losing me alive. <clears throat> um, on Hill 78, second platoon was dealing with a lone sniper who had fired on us from the open trees on the coastal flat below. He was high up in one of those trees, high enough to place him a little above the hilltop, allowing him to shoot down at us at a shallow angle. He potted us, potted at us for a better part of four hours. And then by, the, by and by, and much to my astonishment, a lieutenant I didn't recognize came strolling along the ridge, fully upright, fully exposed to the sniper, smirking at us. I was lying on, the belly, on my belly in the grass, and he approached me saying, ah, what are you worried about? That sniper can't hit anyone. In the next instant, a shot rang out, and a bullet winged his arm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't get complacent. Uh, you continue on. I didn't much care where that lieutenant went or what happened to him. I wanted to get that sniper. I pulled out my field glasses and scanned the trees below our position. As luck would have it, I spotted the sniper almost at once. That is, I spotted his putty wrapped legs and uh-huh. booted feet dangling from the limb of a huge banyan tree about 150 yards from yeah. my position. Yeah. I lifted the field glasses a notch to the clump of leaves where those above those legs. I couldn't see him, but he had to be there. Japanese legs were always attached to Japanese bodies. <laughs> Just then he took a shot at me. Yeah. He must have seen me looking. Maybe my field glasses glinting in the sun and give me away. His bullet hit the ground just inches from my nose, spraying dirt in my face. I dropped my field glasses and snatched up my Springfield. Firing from the prone position, I unloaded the entire clip at the clump of leaves above his feet. Five shots, one after the other, working the bolt quickly but but smoothly so as to not spoil my aim. Just as I had been taught to do and just as I had practiced on the Marine Corps rifle ranges. I didn't think about it. I didn't have to think. All that training just kicked right in, and I killed the man who had been trying to kill me. He didn't drop from the tree. He didn't drop his rifle, but that was to be expected. Japanese snipers customarily tied themselves and their rifles to the trees. Bottom line, he didn't shoot at us after that. He was dead all right. The first man I had killed. Yes, that's my my first call. The first call of, 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 life, life. of 
having a round hit right in front of your right face. Right in my nose, yeah. <laughs> Knocking dirt in my face. Yeesh. Boy, he, he spotted me. I was no longer somebody to harass. I was somebody that was going to kill him. Uh, now we had a duel, a duel going on. <sighs> All right. The 8th Marines, 1st and 2nd Battalions were to advance by side in columns into a ravine, then attack and capture Hill 83 Ridgeline. The 1st Battalion was to move forward on the right. B Company would lead in the battalion's advance, and my platoon would lead the company's advance. So that you put you, does that put your company right, your, your company right at the front? Yeah, at that and time. And your platoon right at the front of the company. Yeah, we were at that time. We, we were right in, right in the crux of it. Following an, ar- an artillery bombardment, 2nd Platoon, with the rest of the battalion behind it, passed through the army lines and advanced into the ravine. Enemy machine guns and riflemen fired down on us from concealed positions on the ridge some 75 yards a- ahead and above us. Machine guns chattered re- relentlessly, ripping through the jungle, rustling foliage, clipping branches and leaves. Corporal Olson DeMoss and his squad led the way, moving up out of the ravine and onto the ridge. Suddenly a voice shouted, Baker Company, get off the ridge. Huh? I looked around at my <laughs> men. Who gave that order? Most of my men had gone to ground, hiding in the bush, as w- and were invisible to the Japanese. That's the nature of jungle warfare. Everyone tries to stay hidden. You can hardly see anyone, either enemy or friendly. The battlefield seems empty, and you feel... And you can feel alone and isolated on it, especially when you're in command, especially when you're in the middle of a firefight and when somebody else starts giving orders to your men. I looked around and a few of the men I could see <laughs> stared back at me. Their, their ex- blank expressions, a firm denial. It wasn't me. A few minutes later, DeMoss and his squad returned to the ravine, having relinquished their brief hold on the ridgetop. Somebody yelled at us to get off, DeMoss explained. He thought one of our guys had given the order. <laughs> then we both realized what had happened. Those clever Japanese, one of them, someone fluent in American English, had given that order. Very clever. He must be pleased with himself. He must be <laughs> laughing at us just about now. Him and his men laughing. And how did he know that we were Baker Company? <sighs> you heard us, heard us say that. That's it. Now we're going to get a little bit, little bit later than this now. I, take, I took over the platoon, second platoon. The platoon leader was yellow. He wouldn't, he wouldn't get up out of his hole. So I'm, now I'm in charge. And you're going to get into what the close calls I had there. Boy, they were, they were mighty close. Unbelievable. I don't know how I survived it. Um, yeah, going back to this, we resumed our uphill attack, and we were met with more devastating machine gun and rifle fire. So would you say this, this engagement right here is the first time that you were under real? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, other than getting bombed, other than having aerial attack, other than a sniper oh, no, shooting no, at no, you. This, this was it. This is it. And it's about as close, as close a call as it can be, I tell you. We kept going, f- going forward, firing on the move, leaning slightly into the incline, shooting from the shoulder and the hip, firing blindly at the top of the ridge. We couldn't see the enemy, but we knew he was up there. DeMoss on my left banged away with his Springfield just as fast as he could, worked the bolt, and then his rifle seized, seized up. DeMoss looked at me, and I looked at him, and the spell was broken. Just, like, just that fast, I came out of my battle trance. I felt very exposed and insecure. Judging by the wide-eyed look he gave me, DeMoss felt the same. DeMoss inspected his rifle and discovered that he had a bullet had pierced his magazine, barely missing the nose, his nose in the process. He never cursed, never uttered profanities, and now, true to form, his big eyes still as saucers, his eyes still as big as saucers, he exclaimed, well, I'll be a dirty name. <laughs> then he discarded his rifle and started throwing grenades at the top of the ridge. 
The reality of our sudden harrowing plight then struck me. This was my first major combat test as a platoon leader, and I realized that I had to take immediate and firm control of myself. I could not show fear in front of my men. A couple feet to my right, Private McCoy Reynolds had been hurling grenades, one after the other, each time courageously standing up and exposing himself to enemy fire. He crouched down next to me and scanned the top of the ridge. Then he exclaimed, I see them, and threw another grenade. In the next instant, he was shot through the neck, killed instantly. He fell at my feet. For a moment, I just looked at him. His eyes wide open, lifeless, stared back at me. Then I realized that now more than ever, I had to get a grip on things and seize control of what was becoming an increasingly chaotic situation. I decided at once we needed support from our mortars and backed a little way down the ridge out of the field of fire to further assess the situation. Now, at the same time, we were running low on an ammunition as well, and we sent back a call. We needed more ammunition. Next thing we knew, bandolier after bandolier of ammunition started arriving. Just the same as saying, go at it, guys. Now, now, that's an interesting, I mean, you recognized that that you needed to get control of your emotions. Is that something you had thought about? What made you realize that? What made you realize, oh, wow, I better do something because I'm in charge and I need to make some decisions here? I don't, I don't know. All of a sudden, uh, fear went away, I guess. I didn't have fear right at that time. <clears throat> and it's also interesting. But I, mean, but I saw the dire situation. Here we were in a situation that, that we, we had to, we, we, we were committed. And either to keep going or are we going to back up and then back off? Finally, we were called back down, and now not only that, that, that same kind of movement went clear to the top and, uh, and decided to just call off that drive in general. Here, I was, at the, I was at the Spears head right there. It was called off, and they just, the, the general from the top on down was that, okay, we stopped going after them and losing troops and uh, just let them dry in the vine. Well, yeah, because at this point you had we controlled, we, we controlled, we controlled the, the waterways. We controlled the supplies. And we had taken out their supplies. Yeah, so it. let's do some siege warfare yeah, on them yeah. and make them wait. Yeah, make them starve. So we 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 had no more fighting. We had a we had a a firm defense line along a ridge for a month. Just mm-hmm. just held the line, con- continually sending out reconnaissance patrols, make sure you know where they were doing what they were doing. And I led a number of reconnaissance patrols myself, taking out four or five men with me and finding out where they were. And that was a scary situation too, all these reconnaissance patrols. You know, right before they before they stopped that, as you're still pushing forward up that ridge, you've got yeah. some great detail in here that's, oh, that's, yeah, that's absolutely worth oh, yeah. talking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Going to the book here, the ammunition was quickly distributed. So this is, you you called for ammunition. The ammunition was quickly distributed, and once again, we moved uphill, shooting as we went. Another of my men, Private Walter Cuss, was fatally hit while scouting up the ridge from a different direction. At the moment of his death, he exhaled his last breath and let out a long, rising howl of pain and anguish like a dying animal. Yeah, didn't sound like a human being. Several attempts were made to reach him and drag him back, all unsuccessful. PFC James Bell said, I'm going up there, I'll bring him down. He was yeah. off and running before anyone could stop him. Yeah, on his own, he did that. 
and he was shot through the chest well before reaching Cuss's body. We were able to retrieve Bell, and he was still alive as we carried him down and out of the line of fire, but he was just about gone. He had a sucking chest wound that made it increasingly difficult to breathe. Open on both sides so he couldn't breathe, you see. This was the first time I had seen such a wound, and it was a terrible sight. Our corpsman tried to patch him up, but there was little he could do. A sucking chest wound needs to be sealed internally as well as externally, and the corpsman could only treat the outside. Finally, Bell said, it looks like this is goodbye. Yeah. And then he calmly died. Yeah. Just like in the movies, I thought. Yeah. With his last words and everything. Yeah. Soon after that, we quit attacking and withdrew. We couldn't dislodge the enemy from the ridge. We had been defeated. Our losses were heavy. My platoon alone suffered seven casualties, four killed. Reynolds, Bell, Cuss, and Private Robert Kessler. <clears throat> Three wounded, PFC James Harris, Private Bur- McBurney, and Private named Manderville. Total casualties for 1st Battalion were nine killed and 23 wounded. Overall, in the period spanning 18 to 23 November, the 8th Marines lost 42 men killed and many more wounded. Now, do I, you've gotten a part where a discovery escort was named after McCoy Reynolds. Oh, I did not know that. Well, let me tell you about that. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> my company commander had been a, a, a journalist with a, with a New Orleans paper. So he's good at writing up things. So I recommended recommended something written up on him. He wrote this up in such a manner that a destroyer escort was named after him. It's called a McCoy Reynolds. And it, in turn, sank two Japanese submarines later on. Wow. Yeah. And was that, um, was that Captain LeBlanc that you're talking about? Yes, it is. So, so Captain LeBlanc was your company commander? He was the company commander at that time. And it sounds like... It sounds like from the book, well, let, let me give you your, your, your thoughts on him. We called him Little Napoleon. Uh-huh. He was notoriously eager to make a name for himself and yeah. just, as notorious, no, just as notoriously averse to taking risks. His men took the risks and he took the credit for their success. He would say, come on, we've got a tough, tough job to do. And then he'd assign someone else to do it. Sometimes he'd announce that we were going on a, out on a reconnaissance platoon and then he'd turn to Murdoch or me or one of the other junior officers and say, hey, how about you leading it? Uh-huh. And at one point, he tells you there to you go, go back to the uh, go back to the army. This is the CP. stupidest darn thing you can imagine. You're gonna read it now. He, he's telling you to go back to the army and tell them what you know what the they enemy took over our position, is. and they ran into the same stuff that we did. Horror, and they really really ran into it. Really bad. So he tells you to go, and this is what you this is what yeah. you write. I cut yeah. low across the ridges, east Ooh. facing slope, walking in the grass at the edge of the jungle. I was beneath the crest and felt reasonably safe. The area was deserted, a true no man's land. I found this very disconcerting. It was eerie. So you're alone? I was alone. alone. I'm <sighs> stupid. Stupid. Then I came upon the body of an American soldier. He lay slightly above me and to my right astride a narrow trail leading to the top ridge. His abdomen had been torn open and his intestines had spilled out and were spread across the ground, a grisly and heart-rending sight. I, tur- I hurried past him thinking, I wonder what his dreams were. Will that happen to me? Now, he was looking at a photograph. Ugh. Did he talk about that there? No. Okay, he's now, he, the last thing before he died, he's looking at a photograph of his family or his girlfriend. 
that's laid out there, and that's the last, the last, as dying, as he's dying, he was looking at that. And you're thinking, I wonder what his yeah, dreams were. Yeah, that could have been me. That could be and me. And will that happen to me? Will that happen yet? Because there's it was still a lot of danger. Here, there's still snipers out there shooting at me at this time. <laughs> and now you go, I arrived at the Army CP to find it in turmoil. An anxious captain and his, and his visibly agitated staff stood around a field radio listening to there a, a report from the front line. Emanating yeah. from the speaker were the sounds of battle mixed with the crackling of static. A frightened voice crying out, we're taking a lot of fire. Platoon leader hit, leg blown off. Get us out of here. I could hear the actual sounds of the battle outside, not too far away, machine guns, rifle fire, grenades, mortars, the usual mayhem. I reported to the commanding officer and told him what I knew. And then I left the CP, laid out close by were as many as a dozen bodies covered with ponchos. I hurried on. Instead of staying low on the slope, I headed over toward the top of the ridge. I don't he know why I did this. He wasn't interested in hearing me. He's already in it so darn deep. He yeah. didn't care about any more details. He, he knew he was in it. Over his head. Yeah, it's old information at this point for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. When I reached the top of the ridge, I snuck my head. I stuck my head over the crest. In the next incident, a Japanese machine gun cut loose at me with a long burst, sending a stream of bullets snapping just inches above my head. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. That brought me to my senses, and I ran down the slope into the jungle. I stood there for a minute, gra- gasping for breath, shaking and thinking, "Holy smokes!" Almost bought the farm on that one. Holy smokes. Does that count as one of your close calls? Very close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm now. You've already covered two of them now. <sighs> two out of eight. There, there's, there's actually, there's, there's three more on Guadalcanal that you'll get to in just a bit. Well, um, what, what do they say? A cat has nine lives, so luckily we only have eight to cover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Otherwise, the ninth one, we wouldn't be here sitting here talking. <laughs> On November 25th, we were pulled off the line and sent to positions uh, near in the rear near Henderson Field. For the next 15 days, we slept in open-sided tents on the grove of, of coconut palms on ground that was sodden from frequent heavy rain showers. There was always a possibility that Japanese warships would foray into Sea Lark Channel during the night and th- throw a few hundred large caliber shells into our soggy environs. But these dangers were negligible compared to what we had recently been through on the front line and we did not worry about them. Actually, we did not worry about much of anything. We were emotionally and physically drained and lacked both energy and inclination to worry. We mostly sat around doing nothing, nothing, partly because we had nothing much to do, but also because we were sort of in a daze. You might say we were numb. It was not, it was not an unpleasant state. We were purely glad to be alive, and the fact that no one was shooting at us, at least not directly or intentionally, made us feel downright euphoric. We were living for the moment, and for the moment, everything was fine, and we were content. See, now we're coming down with malaria as well, you see? (sighs) Now, the other thing you go into here, which is interesting, is uh, during this period, a number of Marines took steps to upgrade their personal armament. The main object of their desire was the superb M1 Garand semi-automatic rifle that had been issued to the Army. Army had that. <laughs> we still the, had the old ones. The model 1903 Springfield we <laughs> carried was a fine weapon, but it was obsolete. The old salts loved the 03 like a Viking loves his broadsword, but the kids were unsentimental about the rifle because they had no history with it. So 
You say, while some Marines acquired their M1s through honest scrounging and battlefield scavenging, others resorted to outright theft. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you go through some methods that, that were used to yeah, do that. Yeah, right. You guys also... Moonlighting. <laughs> you guys had Tommy guns. Yeah. Um, which yeah. you said weren't really all that great. F- Not for, really. For most of the purposes. The rising gun. And for a while, for a while we even had, had shotgun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um... <clears throat> On the night of thirty to thirty-one November, a Japanese in the beginning, the beginning using uh, using the flamethrowers as well oh, yeah. was there too at that time. Rough weapon, right there. Oh yeah, yeah. On the night of thirty to thirty-one November, a Japanese task force steamed into Sealark Channel, bringing food to the beleaguered Japanese forces on Guadalcanal. Our warships sailed forth to intercept it meeting the enemy fleet in that oft-disputed gap between Savo Island and Guadalcanal just off Tassiferongo. How do you say that? That's right. Tassiferongo Point. Because our bivouac was situated inland on low ground, I heard the battle but did not see it. Our fleet took an awful beating. One of our heavy cruisers, Northampton, was struck by two torpedoes within a matter of seconds. Consumed by fire, she sank a few hours later. Just offshore. The heavy cruisers, Minneapolis... Minneapolis, New Orleans, and Pensacola were severely damaged. All and the three sailors ships. were coming off, off of it, all covered with oil. And so would they swim into shore? Some did, probably did. It was right near the shore. Yeah. The battle had been a clear tactical <clears throat> victory for the Japanese, but a strategic defeat. The task force had failed with its primary mission to deliver food to the Japanese army on Guadalcanal. This was a calamitous development for the Japanese. Even before the battle, their food stocks were desperately low. Now they began falling below substance levels. The entire enemy army was growing physically weaker because the soldiers simply didn't have enough to eat. We were in better shape than the Japanese overall, but only in a relative sense. The 1st Marine Division in particular was greatly reduced by illness and sheer exhaustion, as well as by battle casualties it had suffered in four months of fighting. Yeah. A large number of its men were unfit for duty, and many more were only marginally capable of rendering effective frontline service. The high command, recognizing that the entire division had just about reached the end of its operational utility, pulled it off the front lines and began sending it units to Australia starting on 9 December. Yeah. It's the day after my birthday, December 8th. So you wave goodbye to those guys as they're leaving. <laughs> and meanwhile, on 11 December, the 8th Marine... Marines resume so return to the ridges. Yeah, right. But we didn't really take off until the first part of January, I guess, in the final drive. And then, so it's you on one set of ridges, and the Japanese were on the other set they of ridges. They were usually somewhere right on the reverse slope in front of us. They were dug in like gophers, like gopher holes. Huh. But most of them were further back on the next, over the next, next ridge. So, so there'd be you on one but they, ridge. They would come up close enough to throw hand grenades at us, or throwing hand grenades at each other. All right. These dispositions, meaning these two ridges that you guys had occupied, both ours and those of the enemy remained substantially unchanged for the next 34 days. Yeah, yeah. The brass, anxious to avoid a repeat performance of the November battles, yeah. had ordered a temporary halt to large-scale offensive yeah. operations. Instead, we were told to hold the line and harass the enemy with aggressive patrols and raids. In yeah. the meantime, our air and naval forces would strive to interdict the Tokyo Express, which is their supply chain. Now, while we were at that location, 
there was a, a, a sergeant from the adjacent company, and he had a Tommy gun, and he, he didn't have enough, enough action going on where he was. Instead, he was coming down the line where there's ever action. He wanted to get into it. Well, he came, he, he came right by where I was, and there wasn't too much, wasn't right, was right, shortly after that, one of, our, one of our rounds dropped in short. He lost, he lost two legs and an arm. And he was an art, there was an article in the Saturday Evening Post about it and saying that at least I have the right arm to, to wrap the bar with for a drink. I'll tell about it in there somewhere yeah, too. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you guys, at, during this, you also talk about the fact that you, you would be yelling stuff back and forth to the Japanese. They'd, Certainly, a little bit, a <clears throat> little bit. They'd be yelling at you guys, and you'd yell back at them. Yeah. And it sounds like during the daytime, well, you say it was, during the daytime was a policy became one of live and let live during the day. Mm -hmm. a, a much different policy ruled at night. After Probably the case, yeah. And they would sneak in on us every now and then, make a little, try to sneak in and maybe uh, get one of our guys in a, in a foxhole. Yeah, you go into one of those. One night during a heavy downpour, the Japanese there crept up from the ravines, the sound of their movement masked by the falling rain, and jumped the crew. A ferocious hand-to-hand -hand struggle ensued. I heard our men yelling, help, oh God, they're in our hole, help, help. Their blood-curling cries and thrashing sounds were plainly audible to everyone in the vicinity. They were we on a point, a little bit, little bit ahead of our regular line. And this has got to be just... This is unimaginable. We listened horrified, but stayed in our holes. That's how bad it was to get out of your holes. Well, you don't dare, because you, 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 anybody outside the hole is enemy. <sighs> Suddenly the yelling sounds of the fighting ceased. We anxiously waited and listened, peering through the rain and into the darkness. Then the Japanese began probing our position all up and down the line, running up to the crest and chucking a few grenades over the top at our holes and running back downhill. After the grenades exploded, usually harmlessly, our guys would leap from their holes, dash to the crest, and throw grenades at the fleeting enemy. Then they'd scamper back to their holes, and the Japanese would return to hurl their grenades. Back and forth it went through the night, intervals of silence and then flashbang of grenades exploding and men hollering and cursing in English and Japanese. The next morning we discovered that one of the men in the machine gun post had been killed, there you go, that's that one. bayoneted to death. The others had been wounded, but somehow they had beaten back their attackers. And you were saying this earlier, you, you, we also conducted aggressive patrols and probed their lines at yeah, night, giving yeah. as good as we got, yeah. or maybe even better. Yeah. If more frontline Japanese soldiers had survived the war, maybe you'd be reading memoirs by those veterans of Guadalcanal campaign recounting how the U.S. Marines terrorized them at night. And terrorize them, we most certainly did. Some guys really enjoyed this part of the job. Teenagers who found their true nature in the jungle, who discovered that they were born for the warrior life. There were very, there were a few in every unit, more than a few actually, more than you might expect, more than I expected. They went after the Japanese with a competence and enthusiasm that made them almost as frightening to their officers as they must have been to their enemies. It was just amazing, observed Murdoch. How you could take kids like these and put them out into the jungle and in just a few weeks, they'd be great at jungle warfare. For them, it was like playing cowboys and Indians. They'd come back from a patrol and you'd hear them talk. How many teeth did you get? Or how many did you kill? And they'd brag, well, I killed three or four. Now, on one of these patrols, much earlier than what we're talking about right now, I was leading this patrol, had four or five others with me, and uh, we, we ended up, we were uh, in a location uh, where the Army had now 
passed through our lines, and they were in control. So we came right by the uh, regimental, regimental CP, and the, the Army colonel says, what are you guys doing here? He said, well, we got a reconnaissance patrol. He says, well, we're in charge here now. You, we don't need you in here anymore. And uh, so he says, and I, so the, uh, we moved on a little, back, a little bit further back to our own line, where, where, we, where we were in reserve, and it turned out we were a little bit higher than where he was, so he'd look up at us, and we were on the skyline from his, from his perspective, we're on the skyline, and then we would, he said, well, you're gonna attract fire being up there. Well, he was partially correct, but not entirely. Well, anyway, as we, as we left, my man says, see, there, there are two or, two or three snipers in a tree right over their CP. What should we do? I said, shoot them. <laughs> so we shot them, killed them, and, and uh, told the colonel we just shot three snipers right over your CP. <laughs> and, and, and later on, later on, when we returned in 1982, there's a, there's a ch big Catholic church right there now. And I, I talked to the, uh, to the uh, not a priest, but the next one up, was there, and I was telling him about it. <laughs> and then that same, later on that same day, well, he said he, he's the one, as, as, a young, as a young priest, he's the one that rescued Joel Foss when he got shot down. Mm. I was out in the water, and he was all tangled up in his parachute and everything else, telling about it. Well, later on that day, we saw, we saw Joel Foss, we met Joel Foss. <laughs> And then and here he met he met this priest you know and they were talking about it and uh, so uh, anyway uh, what's interesting is that when we told this this army colonel uh, what we had just done the colonel was still unhappy with us <laughs> and uh, and and at this same reunion when we saw Joe Foss and all there was a there was an there was a uh, a veteran army who had previously been a Marine in China. Hmm. And, uh, and he joined the National Guard, and that's where he was out there this time. And uh, he came to me and he says, you know, I just heard you talking. I was there. And uh, he, he had a beard like Santa Claus. <laughs> and I said, you were there? Yeah. And I, and I says, after you left, I told the colonel, he says, you know, after all, we're on the same side. <laughs> <laughs> a small world. Yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. After all those yeah. years, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about um, about Murdoch, mm -hmm. and and he's quite the character. And uh, you, you talk about him a little bit here, because Captain, what happened to Captain LeBlanc? Did he get somehow somehow uh, Murdoch ends up taking over? Uh -huh. Eventually, LeBlanc was relieved and replaced by Murdoch, who's ideal, a Boston yeah, Irishman. Murdoch was very funny and very tough, a superb combat, a superb combat commander, and a bit wild too. All <laughs> traits that his younger charges greatly appreciated. One yeah. manifestation of his toughness, apart from his courage and coolness under fire, was his disdain for medals and commendations. Very few men who had him as their CEO, including me, received decorations. Murdoch yeah. explained. I didn't recommend many people. I didn't care if a machine gunner killed 50 men. That's what he was supposed to do. That's what he's getting paid for. That was my attitude. Once in Hawaii, we had a big for formation with the division and they decorated all these guys. One company would give 40 medals out. I'd give one. 
My attitude was, hey, killing Japs is our job. We're not doing it for medals. Yeah. <laughs> and here, here you start to talk about just the whole, just the the brutality of what's going on over there. One of the themes running through the preceding anecdotes is the merciless nature of the Pacific War. The Marine Corps had tried to prepare us for this in our training. Bayonet drills were especially important. Mm -hmm. In reality, in combat, there were- To be aggressive, you see? Right, right. Uh, In reality, in combat, there were few instances when men used bayonets in the traditional manner fixed to their rifles. Bayonet drills were performed for their psychological effect so that men would learn the psychology of the bayonet, namely to kill brutally, quickly and unthinkingly without compunction or moral qualms. But unrealistic as far as application. Right. But our training merely paved the way for our transformation into hardened killers. Exposure to actual combat accomplished and completed the process. You got hard or you died. It was that simple. Kill or be killed. Kill or be killed, you know. And the Japanese made it simple. They were, they were notoriously unsparing. Their reputation for ruthlessness and savagery was widespread and well-founded. We knew all the stories, the rape of Nanking, the Badan death march, atrocities committed far and wide and often against prisoners. We believed correctly that we could expect no pity if we fell into their hands. They neither asked for quarter nor gave any, and we responded in kind. If they had set rules as we believed, we were damn sure going to play by them. What other choice do we have? They simply would not surrender. They would not stop coming at us until we killed them. Very quickly, we learned that trying to take prisoners was a waste of time and dangerous. Even the wounded, if we went to treat them, would try and kill us, by usually by blowing up everyone themselves and the corpsman who had stopped to help them with a grenade. The dead had a nasty habit of rising up from the ground and attacking us, so we made sure the dead were truly dead. No sense in taking chances. This kill-or-be-killed approach to war was as brutalizing as it was brutal and affected everyone to some degree. Murdoch recalled a corpsman who came up to me and said, Hey, Lieutenant, I've got, I've got a live one. Can I shoot him? I said, Sure, go ahead. Corpsmen weren't supposed to have weapons, and we shouldn't have shot that wounded guy, but I let him do it. We all, we all did it all the time. Because if we took a prisoner, it would take two men at least to send him back to the rear. And we were so thin, our lines were really thin because we had a lot of guys sick. Our units were very much depleted. Thus, we became inured to the horrors of war. And not surprisingly, we did horrible things. Not without reason. When your enemy behaves in a bestial fashion, it is only natural to look on them as beasts. Natural and, to some extent, justified. They're considered as animals, really. But we were not without sin in this regard, far from it. Murdoch, for example, never took any prisoners. And here's Murdoch. I wasn't nice. I did bad things. Looking back over the years, I can say we probably committed as many atrocities against the dead bodies of the Japanese as they did to ours. Pulling teeth. <laughs> for example, Gold. For example, we'd heard Japs wanted to die looking at the sun. So we'd roll them over and stick their faces in the dirt so we couldn't, so they couldn't see the sun. Our guys would cut off fingers and make fobs, which, believe it or not, with the finger of the Jap's finger hanging down. And they'd go out there with the knives and pliers trying to pull out gold teeth. Yeah. But if some of us truly relished 
But if some of the men truly relished battle, embraced and enjoyed it, enjoyed the killing, the brutality, the horror, all of it, it is important to establish that on the continuum of brutal human behavior, the rest of us were not all that far removed from them. And we tended to move closer as the war went on. Some men are more capable than others when it comes to killing, but all men are capable. One way we improved on this capability, such improvement being vital to our effectiveness as Marines, not to mention our very survival, was to look on our enemy as hateful creatures less than human. From a psychological standpoint, it became easy to kill them. We were killing animals, not men. And after killing them, we would look upon their dead bodies and feel nothing. No remorse, no guilt, no horror, pity, or whatever. From there, it was just a small step to place in the geography of the mind where pulling gold teeth out of corpses was not all that outrageous. But not many were doing that. There were mm-hmm. just a few crazy guys doing it. Mm-hmm. I had, had one, of my, one of my sergeants that did that. And he had a whole, he had a whole pocket full. And for some reason or other, something had to change his pants or something. And they were all us. Oh, I'll get some more. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like the fact that you said basically that, I mean, somebody asked me about dehumanizing the enemy in, when we were fighting in Iraq. And I said that the enemy dehumanizes themselves with their, with their actions that they would take. And, and that's the same situation here. You know, the, in, in Iraq, the insurgents would behead people and skin people alive and just do absolutely horrible things. I don't know what the Turks seem to be doing that right now. It seems like, I don't know, ethnic cleansing. Yeah, there's definitely some, uh, it's it's hard to figure out what's going on over there right now. Um, I've I've saw some fresh reports of what's going on and it absolutely, yeah, it does not look good. Um, You also had some people that couldn't, that didn't adopt that mentality, and here's Murdoch talking about it, talking about people that couldn't adopt that kill or be killed mentality. He said they'd have to go back because they were no good to us. They'd just disappear. They'd be sent back to the States. It was a self-weeding process. The guys who remained were the guys you could depend on. When I became company commander in New Zealand, that was an awful thing I had to do. We could send 3% of our personnel home every so often so they could start new outfits back in the States. But you never wanted to send the good guys home. You send the shitheads and the screw-ups. I wanted the best men with me. I didn't want any of my good men to go. In New Zealand, just before we sailed for Tarawa, Murdoch told our company, now listen, I'm gonna send some of you guys home. If you fuck up, you're going to go. But he told me later, these kids were so good, they just wouldn't do that. They wouldn't fuck up on purpose. They would do their job and do it well. They didn't want to become known as a fuck up. And a lot of those kids were killed on Tarawa that I could have sent home. But that's what happened because I wanted to keep the good guys with me. Man, that's a powerful statement. All these guys have to do is be slackers and they'll get sent home to the States. But they wouldn't do it. That's the Marine Corps See, right now, there. The thing is, this isn't a general average opinion, I don't think. He was a little bit overboard uh, in all of this discussion, you know. <laughs> He's not typical, in other words. But he was, uh, he was, he was well-liked because of, because of the way he looked at life. <laughs> yeah, he talks about one guy here. He says, I had one guy, a, platoon, a lieutenant platoon leader, we'll call him Mac. Yeah. Not his real name. That's the one I took over from and then 
where I almost got killed. <laughs> he says he was a Yale graduate, came from Connecticut, Yale, very yeah. well brought up, had money, nice guy too, and handsome, a rugged, look, good-looking Marine. But on Guadalcanal, he'd go on patrol. He just could not handle it. Yeah. Wally Godinius was his platoon sergeant, yeah. and he'd have to take over Mac's patrols all the time. Yeah. Mac tried, but he couldn't do it. I respected him for that. He was trying. The kids were calling him yellow, and they'd say to me, we don't want that guy. He's yellow. And I'd say, wait just a minute. That guy is not yellow. He tried to do the job, but he's just not. He just couldn't, he do, just it. couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. A yellow man doesn't go out and try. He quits. Mac won't quit. Now, this Godinius, he became an officer. He, he married a New Zealand gal. I knew him pretty well. Um. All right, so continuing on here, by December, our long sojourn on the front line had taken a big toll. We were wasted by illness, multiple illnesses. We were malnourished and looked it. We went about shirtless, showing scrawny bodies with protruding ribs and vertebrae and sallow skin stretched over, stretched tautly over them. Our faces were drawn and angular beneath scraggly beards, and our eyes were recessed in their orbits. We didn't have a change of clothes during that period, and we became unimaginably filthy. We looked scary and menacing and pitiful. See, all a lot of us uh, came down with yellow jaundice. <sighs> See, that, that that would deliberate. That would do you in too, you know. <clears throat> uh, the constant threat of enemy attack, <clears throat> punctuated by intermittent bouts of actual fighting, was tremendously stressful. It seemed that much of the time we were either waiting to be attacked, or being attacked, or attacking the enemy ourselves. Or we were just sitting around trying to get some rest but feeling cruddy because we were sick and we always were tensed up thinking and worrying about our next combat action. Depending on how your day was going, such concerns might be in the forefront of your thoughts, incessant and acute, making you all edgy and fretful. Or they might be buried deep. Usually they were somewhere in between. But they were always present in your head and on your mind. You could never fully let go or get rid of them. The unrelenting mental strain, not to do, not not to mention the physical dangers that caused it, made us twitchier each passing day. You know, during the during the times that we were we were back uh, behind the front lines, and nobody's shooting at you. Oh my God, this is wonderful. Nobody's shooting at me, and all that stress. You know. Yeah. Now you now you don't have to worry about it. Now. What about the fact that even though Noah's shooting at you right now, you have time to sit there and think about the fact that you're going to go again and the enemy's going to attack you? You know, somebody pull it, pull it. It was a stupid thing. Threw, threw a hand grenade, dummy, into a tent. Ugh. Everybody just took off. Why would a guy do that? I don't understand. He thought it was funny. <laughs> uh, I, I'll tell you why I'm laughing when you tell that story because one of my friends... One of my good friends, a guy by the name of Leif Babin, who I work with and wrote a book with, wrote two books with him, actually. He did that to a couple of his guys. Took (laughs) took a grenade. We were in Ramadi, and he took a grenade. The pin was in. It was still taped up, but it was a real grenade. And there was a couple guys sitting in a room talking, and he and he just opened the door and rolled the grenade in there. <laughs> oh, we were just talking about it the other day. Stupid. He, yeah. Stupid. Oh, yeah. He, we were just talking about it. the reason I remember. Oh. It, we were just talking about it yesterday, and he goes, "Yeah, that wasn't smart. It wasn't oh. smart because who knows what's going to happen? I mean, those guys, if they had guns, oh. they might have shot. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy things that could happen. You, you may get may later on get in here, but uh, also on our last drive on Guadalcanal, I had a had an enemy grenade." Fell right down by my legs, and I tried to kick it away, and it hit something and came right on back. It was a dud. (laughs) Uh, um, Here's Murdoch talking about 
Guadalcanal and and why what made it what made it Guadalcanal? He said each campaign was different, each with different problems. Tar was the worst in terms of fighting, but the battle lasted only three days. Right after it, we right after it ended, we were taken off Beshio and sent back to Hawaii. But on Guadalcanal, we were on Guadalcanal for three months. For the amount of time we were there, we didn't do all that much fighting. But there were other things: the sickness and the heat, especially. The living conditions were the worst on Guadalcanal. And then you say, as bad as it was, it was worse for the Japanese, much worse. Their condition was no mystery for us. As December gave way to January, there was a noticeable drop-off in enemy activity that we correctly ascribed to their deteriorating health. Their nocturnal probes dwindled and in time virtually ceased altogether. They simply lacked the energy to come at us in the night. They eventually got, took 10,000 troops off. We, we didn't know they'd, they'd, they'd done that. Uh, after a while, they didn't even bother to yell at us. They rarely achieved success when they did attack. In battle, we found, we had, as we've been told on Samoa, the Japanese made the same mistakes over and over. For instance, they would commit their units to battle as they became available instead of holding them back and massing them for a single powerful blow. And they would keep coming in small, coming at us until they were killed, primarily by our artillery. The carnage was sickening even to us, we, and we couldn't understand why they never seemed to learn from their experiences and make the necessary adjustments. <clears throat> one, one thing that was wrong with their strategy, that they, they would attack, and uh, there, was, there was no command to change, uh, he's going to go out a flank or something mm-hmm. like that, to just keep coming, keep coming until they're all killed. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lack of uh, leadership and maneuver warfare, right? That's yeah, the no basic maneuver, thing. no maneuver at all. No maneuver, just hey, no. we're going forward. We're going to do a, a yep. frontal assault, and they would just get killed, get mowed down, and that happened time and time again. And on here all these we are, campaigns. though, coming into into Tarawa, the same situation. We we had no no way to maneuver or anything. They just keep going into facing heavy machine gun fire, just like the Japanese did. Uh, the Japanese thought their indomitable will would provide them with the margin for victory it did not occur to them or they could not acknowledge that the marines and soldiers they were battling were equally indomitable and in the end victorious they had it so easy on, on moving all down through the uh, through the uh, the east indies and all that and it's just everything just just faded away and they just kept going no problem at all and then they met american forces so then, so this is this is this is the turning point, Guadalcanal, where they, that's where they we turn the tables. Now we're now we're in the offensive. Yeah. Do so. Uh, January tenth, you begin going yeah, on offense. There you go. There you go. Eighth Marines, including yep. the the one eight, the two yep. eight, and the three eight. I worked with the three eight a bunch of Ramadi. They were outstanding. Well, you did, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. Our mission orders issued by General Patch were to attack and destroy the Japanese form- forces remaining on Guadalcanal. Yeah. We, we moved up, and uh, I'm just reading, and I always have to mention this. I'm obviously not reading this whole book. <laughs> I could read this whole book. <laughs> I, I want to read this whole book because the book is outstanding, but I'm jumping around. So if it seems a little bit scattered, it's because I'm jumping from, I'm skipping over big chunks that you're telling with great detail. And, and this, is, this is one of the most outstanding accounts that exists of these campaigns. So... Uh, just know that. You have to buy the book. The book is called Faithful Warriors. 
So here we go. We moved, we pushed on. We moved up and over Hill 82. The hill and jungle draws below were infested with Japanese. My men saw a single Japanese soldier and opened fire, killing him instantly. I collected some personal effects from his body. A diary, a lock of hair, a first aid kit, a photograph of a group of soldiers, and a thousand stitch belt, which was a piece of cloth embroidered with a thousand stitches by well-wishers that he carried for good luck. Now, I sent a lot of this stuff that we took off of the dead home to Japan to their to their families. Eventually. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. And we'll probably get into it a little bit. But uh, the uh, I received a letter from the brother of one of these soldiers. Just beautifully done calligraphy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you you, you held on to this stuff and eventually yeah. figured out who this guy was. And I was. did that because we uh, we we were uh, asked to talk to a Japanese in Los Angeles. There's a Japanese uh, Japanese area there. And uh, the uh, the priest there suggested I do that. He couldn't speak any English, but through, through the translation, I knew that that's what he had to do. And so we sent it to the uh, to the relatives of uh, Phil that I worked with at North American Aviation, and uh, his wife's family were Honda, which is a Honda car. Mm. And so we sent it to one of one of her cousins. And when they uh, uh, they came to play baseball in this country after the war. And they lost, so they they had lost face, to, so to speak. So they wanted to go back with something. So they took the, this, all of these items that I'd taken off of these soldiers that we're talking about here, and they put it in a white box, strung around their neck. As they got, as they landed in Hawaii, a lot of Buddhist priests were there to meet the plane. When they got to Tokyo, oh, a big thing, mm. always picked up. And my name got all over, all over Japan, about over that. Wow. It's incredible. What were you thinking about at the time? I mean, at the time, you couldn't have been thinking about that, all that was going to happen. You're you just... know, and also, you know, where we, uh, we were asked to attend this Buddhist ceremony, and my family had made three daughters with me, and here we're the first ones in line, and you were supposed to... Uh, you're supposed to, you had to carry these incense and there's a gong and goes on and a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. We, we led that procession as it went by. Mm. Then after that, we, we had a, uh, a get together, sukiyaki and, uh, and beer in, in the parsonage. Yeah. And I'd be real careful what I said. You know, I had my friend as a translator be real careful. They didn't call him Japs you know, and all mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said, how come, how come they're so interested in what happened here? I said, well, these, these people from the northern part of Japan, and they had no clue of what had happened to their soldiers way down south. Wow. See? Wow. Um, yeah, because they didn't have enough witnesses living after the war no? to explain. And then on, on Saipan, and I was talking to Donnie Edwards, we were there at... Now you've been there. You know where this what mm-hmm. it's called uh, Suicide Cliff. Yep. Well, there, there's one monument there that were that were paid for by children raising the money, and one of them faces south, kneeling, a mother mourning over her lost, her sons lost in the South Pacific. The other is facing the Suicide Cliff, mourning the children mm-hmm. that were carried over the cliff to be killed. And what is happening was. They're just putting in a new monument. They hadn't, don't have the new captions yet. And I was explaining to Donnie what, the, what that was all about. Mm. And it's on, it's, it's on uh, uh, 
uh, Instagram. Okay. Go to Instagram, and you go to Best Defense Foundation, and it'll tell about it. Okay. Yeah. So even though you're gathering souvenirs, this is not over yet. And here you go. The fighting was constant, but not everywhere at the same time. One squad might be resting while nearby another was engaged with a sharp fight. Yeah, it's true. With a sniper or machine gun nest, and all up and down the line, automatic weapons rattled. Rifles cracked. Grenades popped. The air carried the stringent smell of cordite. In places where there had been a lot of firing, the atmosphere was hazy with gun smoke and the smoke of burning foliage. There was a lot of shouting, someone screaming, and the frequent cry, Corman, Corman. Stretcher bearers. Now, this is not a general atmosphere. This this is certain locations that this is happening. Because... Not everywhere, you see. Yeah, because and this is because the Japanese were really depleted at this point. Pretty much so. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Uh, Stretcher bearers, many of them musicians in the division's band... Yeah, Yeah, right. ...ran around the battlefield picking up the wounded and carrying them back to the battalion aid station. True, true. So every Marine's a rifleman. Is what true, they say. True. And so there's the there's the band out but there. They got the band, the and they're the, they're the stretcher stretcher bearers. Yeah. Fourteen January, we continue to advance. The action much the same as the day before. Intermittent clash with the Japanese diehards. Some of the Japanese we came upon blew themselves up in their holes, or just sat there and let us kill them with the grenades. Yeah. My platoon made good progress. You had a guy named. Wait, they're blowing themselves up. A whole hand grenade right here. Hit it and kick it off, and then stay and blow himself up right over your heart. So, would they try and take Marines with them? No, well, yeah, they could, but uh, when you get into Saipan, I'll explain there how we, we saw 100, over 100 doing that as we advanced. And they could have shot back at us, they didn't. Instead, they just, we got so close, and, and they blow themselves up. Bang, 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 as we, as we, as we advanced. It's incredible. Uh, one guy, you lost a guy named Gunnar Lund, mm-hmm. and you were. The, and Gunnar Lund had kind of a had a kid that looked up to him yes, named bet. Herschel Wilski, yeah. and you and, were the and one. And he wrote. He's the one that did some of these uh, illustrations. Oh, okay. In in this one here. Okay, so Wilski, you're the one that has to tell Wilski that you know his yeah. his he is no more. He's no more. And here we go. Shortly thereafter. It fell upon me to break the news of Lund's death to Corporal Herschel Wilski. Ski, as he was known, was a barman and a squad leader in Lund's platoon. Yeah. He took Lund's death very hard. Gunnar Lund was a popular figure in B Company, an old salt who was trusted and respected for his courage, competence, and common sense battle wisdom, and loved for his tough, his rough humor and and for the obvious and genuine affection and concern he felt for his young charges. Before the war, he had been seagoing Marine, serving on the beloved aircraft, the Lexington. He had always been smoking a cigar. How he was able to keep himself stocked with stogies on Guadalcanal is anyone's guess. Such are the talents of an old salt. He used to say that after the war, he was gonna buy himself a big, shiny Cadillac convertible and ride it around smoking his cigars. Instead of that, I visited his family after the war he had a sister that had been to a dance and they couldn't find her anywhere. She was dead in the trunk. They found her body in the trunk of the car, been murdered, and they got this, this same time as hit as when he, the family found out about Lund. Ugh. Yeah, you said that that was a simple dream for a simple, very good mm-hmm. man, a dream mm-hmm. never realized. 
All the kids looked up to Lund. Wilski in particular. Ski yeah. idolized Lund. The gunner was everything to him. A hero, mentor, father figure, older brother, and best friend. At first, he refused to res- believe that Lund had been killed. Yeah. I was just talking to him a few minutes ago, he said. But the, then the truth sank in, and he became distraught and threw his weapon on the ground. This damn war, he uh-huh. exclaimed. Yeah. Ski then announced he was ki- quitting the Marine Corps and quitting the war. Ski <laughs> meant what he said. He was about to head back to the rear when Murdoch arrived on the scene. Murdoch calmed Ski down and told him that he just couldn't up and quit, that it would be desertion in the face of the enemy and that he would get in a lot of trouble for it. Murdoch spoke softly with him for several minutes in this vein until Ski came to his senses. Ski picked up his weapon and rejoined 3rd Platoon and Murdoch assumed command of that unit. But Ski was a changed man. Exchanging one madness for another, he went from being a Marine who did his job and did it well to being a Marine who did his job with a singular passion. From that day forward, he hated the Japanese with a savage intensity and took it on himself to personally avenge Lund's death, often going off by himself to hunt the enemy. If you were a compassionate man, you might say a prayer for any Japanese soldiers who crossed his path. He always returned eventually, but with little to say about his exploits. He was the quiet type guys like him usually are. Yeah. He was the epitome, the epitome of a combat Marine. And so this continues on, and, and then you say this, and so to the end. My memory of the final days of January offensive is blurry, and I find it difficult to remember the details. At reunions, we reminisce about our very limited personnel, personal perspective of the offense and the countless little battles that were fought as we went forward. At that perilous time, we focused primarily on our own concerns, about adequate cover for incoming artillery and other life-threatening events in our immediate area. We advanced on a broad front, but never in an even line. Some units always move faster than others, depending on the terrain and the resistance they encountered. We went up and down more hills and ridges, up and down, up and down, sometimes fighting and killing the Japanese, sometimes just killing them. End of January, our last week on Guadalcanal, B Company was bivouacked by Henderson Field, awaiting transport off the island. While there, I came down with jaundice, and I lost a lot of weight. I would be getting off the island just in time. In the meantime, there were no duties to perform, some of them very un... In the meantime, there were still duties to perform, and some of them very unpleasant. One of Murdoch's responsibility was to record the location of the battle site graves on an overlay. It troubled him that the locations couldn't always be specifically pinpointed. So there, was no, so there could be no assurance that the bodies would later be found for relocation to permanent cemeteries. Now, regarding those bodies, a mm-hmm. uh, year or so ago, the, uh, the organization that, that locates bodies and gets them buried, no, they're, in, 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 uh, they're in Hawaii and Honolulu, and uh, they ran out of money. But they were going to pay for me to go down and help them locate these bodies we're talking mm-hmm. about. But the, uh, the guy that, uh, he was, he was a, a doctorate, and uh, he, he says, I just, I just ran out of wiggle room, money-wise. Couldn't do it. So finally. This was last year. Wow. You know? Yeah. Well, maybe we can raise some money for him. Um, so this was called JPAC, and then it's now it's a new name. The what, problem what? was they, they were mismissed. They were mis, mis- they were mishandling uh, m- money. They're spending money where they sh- shouldn't have been. Okay. So a lot of that was going on. You probably heard about when the new when the new uh, secretary of defense came in. He 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 just changed the whole thing around. Mm-hmm. Um. 
so we wrap this up this section on January th- on 31 January the 18 and the entire second regiment boarded the troop transport Crescent City and then during the first week of February the Japanese managed to evacuate more than 11,000 troops mm-hmm. a minor triumph that did little to offset the magnitude of their defeat they lost upward of 25,000 men in Guadalcanal campaign yeah. of these maybe a thousand were taken prisoner our losses were comparatively small yeah According to Army historians, about 1,600 were killed and 4,245 were wounded. On 9 February, the rest of the 8th Marines left Guadalcanal on board the troop ship Hunter Liggett and American Legion. That same day, Guadalcanal was declared secure. One way or another, for the living and the dead, the fighting on Guadalcanal was over forever. So... Your uh, your next chapter here is called Heaven. Yeah. Because from the hell of Guadalcanal, you went to a place called New Zealand. And this was quite the change for you all, going from Guadalcanal to New Zealand. Wow. No longer uh, sweating jungles. Uh, you... You highlight some of the good things about New Zealand, and then I, I, then you get to what apparently is the biggest highlight in New Zealand. It says this: there were girls. Yeah. Holy smokes! Were and there not ever only girls? That, their men are all gone. Boy, they were they, they were welcoming us open arms. Because the because their men were over fighting. Because they were in North Africa. Young girls, pretty yeah, girls, oh, yeah. smiling girls. They were everywhere. Lots of them. My they, girl, my girlfriend was nineteen, and out here I was. It was approaching 23, 22. She's still alive. She's 95 now. Wow. Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) They stared at us and we stared at them and they smiled at us and we smiled at them. And in many instances, we greet each other and exchange pleasantries and actually converse with them. Even the Casanovas among us had a hard go of it at first. It had been a long time since we had spoken with girls. We were out of practice. We were also gazy is the term you use, staring inward a thousand yards back into our heads, flashing on our thoughts and visions of Guadalcanal and put in there. <laughs> our faces and... What are you laughing at? Oh, just being just, in just, New Zealand? Yeah, just remembering, yeah. Uh, the contrast was immediately apparent and profoundly jarring. We had learned how to handle hell, but heaven would take some getting used to. Aboard ship, we, we hadn't been aware of our gazy conditioned. We all seem normal to each other. But here in this beautiful city, among these wonderful civilized people, among all those pretty girls, it was possible to see how far from normal we were. What would they think of us? They loved us. And we loved them right back. <laughs> so you guys, I mean, you, you, you talk about some of the uh, things that happened there and some of those adjustments getting into it and, and then the kind of... I guess the kind of mayhem and chaos that you well, create. Well, Murdoch you... himself. He, he, there's one story about where where he come barging barging into the uh, owner, the a woman owner of the hotel where, where our where our officers mess or the uh, get together was, and it tells about it in there. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, he comes. He crawled out. He crawled. He was drunk, no clothes on. I guess. <laughs> And crawled along an edge and then rapped on the window. And she opened it up, let him in. He ended up, the next morning, woke up. Here's with this older woman. And, (laughs) oh, my gosh. Yeah, she says something like, you know, good morning. He says, did I have a good time or something like that? And she said, yes, you did. 
Oh, uh, it sounded like he she he was avoiding her for the rest of the time. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, he was. <laughs> oh, uh, wow. All right. Uh, huh. To get back to the military side of this, after a few weeks in New Zealand, we started training in earnest. We we needed a lot of training both to get ourselves back into shape and incorporate replacements who were streaming in from the states. Our experience on Guadalcanal provided the template for our training. We built positions on the Japanese model and practiced attacking them. We advanced through wooded areas against simulated sniper attacks. We worked on the use of supporting fires and we worked with tanks. One of the most important changes overall was to give the squad leaders more freedom of action to make decisions in combat, let them decide on their own how to maneuver their men and move around to envelop an enemy position. This was yet to come. There was no room for maneuver. No, 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 no chance to use tanks. Yeah. Speak of. But it's interesting, you know. We we talk a lot about kind of the principles of combat leadership, and one of the most important principles of combat leadership is decentralized command, and yeah. that is allowing your subordinate leaders to lead. Yeah. And that right there, even the privates, even a private say, "Come on, guys, let's go," and he pull them together. Let's go. Yeah. And, and that's obviously, you're taking that lesson. That's that You say that's yeah. a change overall. Yeah. So you guys, yeah. even you all realized, hey, yeah. we yeah. need our frontline yeah. troops to be able to lead. Yeah. Make yeah. decisions. I, I, I mentioned that when I, I spoke into the Marine Corps League, uh, you know, the, the uh, Marine Corps birthday balls and all that. And I mentioned that leadership aspect. Mm -hmm. Now, you've written books about it too, I know. I, I have. It's one yeah. of the things I talk about all the time. Oh, when yeah. I, and when I taught leadership... Inside the SEAL teams, that's one of the main things I needed the, the young troopers to do. We would have failed. It would have been a disaster if that hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so fast forward a bit. through the You talk some more about that training and what it's like in New Zealand and the continues on. And then finally, we get to this. I'm not going to say that we knew we were leaving for good, but many sense this might be the case. So did everyone in Wellington, the girls especially. Just before our ships cast off again for Hawks Bay, a number of girls, some hugely pregnant, came down to the docks to find out what was going on. Nobody could or would tell them anything. But many had dire nobody, premonitions. Nobody knew. Yeah, nobody you, knew you, so you guys didn't even know. We did, had, didn't have a clue. We thought we were going to another, another landing exercise. Our ship steamed north past Hawks Bay and continued on a northerly Kept heading. Kept going, yeah. After a few days at sea, it was announced that we were going to invade the Tarawa Atoll in the Gilbert Islands. Maps and sand tables were brought out. One square mile. One square mile. Our sudden and permanent disappearance from New Zealand was very hard on our Kiwi girlfriends and wives. One day they woke up to find us gone and knew we were headed into battle. Then, towards the end of November, they started hearing rumors that a lot of us had been killed. The rumors proved to be true. Yeah, we lost uh, over 1,100 killed and 2,500 wounded in three days, most of it in two days. So you get to Tarawa, and here we are. The Navy promised us a preliminary bombardment that would blow the Japanese and their defenses to kingdom come, leaving the Marines to carry out what would amount to little more than a mopping up operation. During a pre-invasion staff briefing, an admiral announced that it was not the Navy's intention merely to neutralize yeah. Batio Island. Gentlemen, he told the assemblage, we will obliterate it. This statement was passed on to rank and file, and we believed it. At the same briefing, a battleship captain declared, we are going to bombard at 6,000 yards. We've got so much armor, we're not afraid of anything the Japs can throw back at us. 
The commander of the 2nd Marine Division, Major General Julian C. Smith, was incensed by the captain's brave words. Gentlemen, he retorted, remember one thing. When the Marines land and meet the enemy at Bayonet Point, the only armor a Marine will have is his khaki shirt. It is unbelievable, though, when you see the bombardment, because you can see film of the bombardment of Taro. I mean, they just... Oh, yeah, it looked like it was just obliterated. It was right. And I had had a situation uh, where my guys in the Battle of Ramadi got caught in a friendly fire situation. And... You were there, huh, at Ramadi? Yep. Wow. And uh, an army unit that we had called for QRF came in and put about 150 rounds of 50 caliber machine gun fire into the building that my guys were in at a range of about 25 meters, 150 rounds. And you, you would think, anybody that's seen a 50 caliber machine gun, you'd think everyone in that building would be dead. But well, I had one guy get wounded and it wasn't actually all that bad. And so when you see the, 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 that's why you can never trust that, you know, big bombs are going to actually solve the problem. It doesn't always happen. And this is a classic example of that. And the main reason that naval gunfire wasn't, wasn't all that effective is that we're, we're just only, you know, the land was only about six foot above sea level. So things, you, you, most of it was just going over. Mm-hmm. If it hit there, it's just such a narrow target. Yeah. And they, what he should have done is landed on a adjacent island and yeah. pounded it with yeah. with, with mortars or you know short range artillery. See, fire. and that's what they did, and that's what they did in the Marshalls. They made all the difference in the world. Lesson learned. And a month later. So you say this, it's tough going right from the start. The Japanese are heavily armed, firmly and deeply entrenched. And as always, they f- resist fiercely infecting heavy, uh, inflicting heavy casualties on our assault teams. The radio reports start coming in. They're spotty and intermittent, but we get the picture. Encountering heavy resistance, heavy machine gun fire, boats destroyed, units scattered, many casualties. The voices on the loudspeakers enumerate these calamities in measured tones. They sound calm, almost detached. If you... If you didn't know better, you'd think the situation wasn't too terrible. But we knew better. We were all looking at each other thinking some version of, oh boy, this is bad. This is really bad. The tides, the tides which were supposed to cover the reef to an adequate depth, proved uncooperative. The water is too shallow, just inches in, in just inches deep in some spots, and always less than needed for the three-foot draft of the landing craft. See, the problem was that uh, it was just barely three feet what would require for an mm-hmm. LCVP to, to clear the reef. But we got hung up with their big guns, their, their big naval guns shooting at our transports. So our transports had to move further out. That means that all our landing craft took a lot longer to get in. In the meantime, the tide was going out. Uh, now we didn't have three feet. Yeah. Not only that, it was a kind of a tide that was extra low. So you you were actually part of the reserve element. Is that is that the, yeah, the right we, we thing were to call to, it what you were doing? The one I, the, the battalion I named was gonna was supposed to land on the next island up. Okay. Instead, hey, oh we need to right down here and we landed and then right in the middle where the worst of it was. So and here here we had our guys on the beach and here the here the enemy was shooting over their head. Right at us out there. We could, we couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, terrible. So, if just for folks that don't understand what you just said, you've got Marines on the beach, on the beach, looking at us, watching us being mowed and you, down, and and you're at sea, and we can't shoot back. You can't shoot because no? the, 
the, there's friendly forces in between you two. Yeah. Just, yeah. And like you said, the sea level's yeah. only, or the altitude's only six feet. And not only that, there was one beached uh, uh, British uh, transport, and it was beached, it, it, it had been run before we landed there, sometime before, about time of Pearl Harbor. It had run up on, on the reef, and uh, was still there. Mm. Well, the Japanese swam up to it with, with the machine guns. They fired flanking fire right at us. So all this is happening, and you're in the reserves, and finally you guys are told, all right, load your boats, which means you guys now know you're going in, and you say here, we don't know where the, the brass is sending us yet, but we, don't ex- but we expect to go where the fighting is hottest, and we expect to go soon. We circle and circle in the lagoon. We're standing in the boat, either leaning against the sides or holding on to them for balance. In general, we have a soft ride because the water is mostly still, except for the turbulence caused by all the boats. The turbulence buffets the LCVPs, and this movement combined with the stench of the entire the engine and the nervous tension we all feel makes many of us sick. Yeah. Some of the sick men, some of the sick men stick their heads over the sides to retch, while others puke into the wooden deck. The men standing next to them just step aside like it's no big deal to get sick because it really isn't a big deal. When the, men, when the sick men finish retching, they straighten up as if nothing had happened. No one thinks the worse of them for it. After a while, depending on how long we're out there in the boat, the deck might be slippery with puke, but that's no big deal either. You can't smell the vomit or anything else for that matter because the exhaust fumes overpower every other smell. Diesel engine, yeah. The minutes go by, lengthening into hours. The hours go by, but we're going nowhere. We're just going around and around. The sounds of battle are muted this far out. We can hear artillery explosions, but not small arms fire. We're all peering over the sides, looking at Beggio, looking at the fires and the smoke and the explosions. It's an awesome sight, a mass of smoke and flames. Holy Moses, look at that, we say. Not for the last time, we ask ourselves how many of the defenders, how the defenders could survive in a place so torn up. It's an irrelevant question, really. Many Japanese have survived, and they're killing a about lot of half Marines. Them, about half of them survived. We know that a lot of our men were killed going in, and we know that the men who did make it ashore are fighting for their lives. We expect we'll have a tough go of it, too. We're apprehensive who wouldn't be and we're wondering how we'll behave in combat. I know the new guys are especially concerned with how they'll behave. The great fear, the greatest of fear, is you won't be able to handle it, that you'll turn yellow, that you'll let your buddies down. We fear this much more than we fear getting killed or wounded. One reason for that is no one really thinks he'll be killed or wounded. You never think it's gonna happen to you, never. You acknowledge that it could happen to you, that it might happen to you, but the rational part of your brain makes you understand this. But in such circumstances as we now find ourselves, emotion trumps rationality every time. We know we're too young to die, and somehow, in a kind of strange and protective twist of logic and feeling, we figure that because we're too young to die, we certainly won't die. You've got to do a lot of hard thinking to reach this conclusion. However, and because we're all thinking so hard, we're not talking that much. Just as well, the engine is so loud you can't talk or hear anyone except the guy standing next to you. We wait for the word to begin the assault, but it doesn't come. We continue circling beneath the hot sun, beneath breathing exhaust fumes, staring at the island. We want, we want to know what, for Pete's sake, is happening. We wonder what they're, when they're going to send us in and where they're gonna send us. We wonder, gosh, how much longer can it go on like this? A lot longer, it turns out. Nightfall. One moment in the sun, one moment the sun is above the horizon, 
and the sky is bright, then the sun drops below the horizon in the dark. That's how night comes in the tropics. No twilight. This is on the on the equator, you see. Yeah, boom, it's gone. Yeah. It's bright one moment, dark the next. Beggio isn't dark, however. Beggio is on fire and the sky above it glowing red. Suddenly it's morning. See, the problem is that the uh, top command thought we'd already landed. And really, there was just a lack. There was All communications were disrupted. So you guys are out there for... So they didn't know we were out there still circling. Didn't know it. How much fuel did those things have? Because you were out there for 20 hours. Well, 20 hours, yeah. Amazing. Not horrible? <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, that's uh. what you say. Suddenly it's morning, the sun pops over the horizon, and then there was light. We're still circling, waiting for orders. Basio is still burning. I was wondering how our boat can carry enough fuel to circle. How long is it? 12, 14, 16 hours? Answer, we float. We were afloat for about 20 hours. Our mouths dry, our muscles stiff. We feel haggard and cruddy. Some guys are sipping from their canteens or nibbling on their rations, although there's not much eating because we just aren't hungry. About five zero five thirty, the LCVBA, LCVP carrying our battalion commander, Major, Major Lawrence Hayes, chugs along up next to our boat, cupping his hands around his mouth and shouting to make himself heard above the noise of the boat engines. He says, we're going in at Red Beach, too. Oh, no. <laughs> and what, what, why, was that, why was that a bad thing? Because we, we knew that that probably, some way we knew that that was where they had the hardest time was on that beach. <laughs> Still shouting, Major oh. Hayes assures us that Red 2 won't be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> the Japanese positions on the beach have been eliminated, he tells us, and our landing will be unopposed. You'll probably go in standing up. He actually said that. That's what you said in the book. He actually said I, that. I guess we were completely surprised, thinking back. We were. None of us really believed we'd go in standing up. Now, <laughs> not that we think Major Hayes is feeding us a line. He's a good man. He wouldn't do that. But it could be that he has been misinformed. Uninformed is more likely, more like it, totally uninformed. Communications with the units ashore are in disarray and several instances functionally non-existent. The same goes for communications with General Smith and his staff on the battleship Maryland, the invasion's fleet flagship. This is due in large, large measure to failure of our radios, which are too fragile to withstand the rigors of amphibious assault. I've got a walkie-talkie strapped over my shoulder, and it's a hunk of, joke, hunk of junk. I can't even communicate with the other boats, which is why Major Hayes had to come by in yeah, boat and true. shout orders <laughs> to us. <laughs> yeah. Those walkie-talkies weren't doing any good. Now, the officer in charge of Red 2 at that time was Colonel Shoup, Lieutenant Colonel Shoup. He became the commandant later on, years later. Wow. In any event, we're relieved. The waiting is almost over. The business of riding around in boats is for the birds. We want to get ashore and throw some punches. I'm standing in the bow of our LCVP. Behind me are 32 Marines of my platoon, most of them teenagers, most of them new to combat. I look at them and they look at me. I see fresh, boyish faces and wide, worried eyes staring out from beneath their brain, their helmet brims. Their helmets all seem a size too big, accentuating their boyish, making them look young as well. Most of them really are. Their helmets jam down on their heads, the straps pulled tight under their chin. You can wear helmets this way so they don't fall off while you're cl clambering down the cargo nets of the troop transport into your boat. The helmet is nothing more than a steel pot, heavy and getting heavier the longer you wear it. If it falls off while you're on that net, it could hit somebody beneath you. Somebody could get hurt, and that's, when, and that's not when Marines are supposed to get hurt. 
not during the boating phase as it's called, the phase of the operation when the emphasis is on safety, the getting hurt part, the part where safety is, one might say, beside the point, comes later. For us, for me and the men in my boat, that part comes now. Did I say men? Well, I suppose they are. We call them men. We treat them as men. We expect them to act like men. They are, after all, United States Marines. But really, they're kids just out of high school. Or not even that. Kids with rifles, true. Kids trained to kill, also true. But kids nevertheless. Just turned 17, many of them. (sighs) To use a term like that has long since fallen into general disuse. They're youths. A state of being between childhood and adulthood. Today's American male exercising a lifestyle choice can often can and often does loiter for many years in that state. But in the mid-1940s, in a world at war, the state of youth tends to pass swiftly and, do I need to say it, violently. The youths, the kids on my boat, have got a lot of growing up to do. Unfortunately, they'll be doing a hefty portion of that growing up in the coming minutes and hours. In that period, Far too many will undergrow all the growing up they will ever experience. Uh, these are the men that went in, and I have a W or K written on all the casualties in this picture, and roughly half, half are casualties going in. In that period, the youths, the kids on my boat, have got a lot of growing up to do. Unfortunately, they'll be doing a hefty portion of that growing up in the coming minutes and hours. In that period, many, far too many, will undergrow all the growing up they will ever experience. They will transition with almost obscene dispatch from youth to adulthood to the grave. At Beggio, youth won't be served. It'll be served up and consumed literally in fire. These youths will be men only briefly. And then they will be just a memory forever. All of this sounds as if I'm a grizzled veteran. I am a combat veteran. I fought on Guadalcanal earlier this year. But the fact is I'm just 23 years old, still young, and not all that grizzled in appearance or temperament. Practically speaking, though, I'm the graybeard of this bunch. Same goes for the platoon sergeant who's about my age. We're the tribal elders, the warrior chiefs. I'll lead my boys off the boat, and the platoon sergeant standing in the back will make sure they follow, urging them and conjoling them, yelling at them, maybe throwing a few choice cuss words, whatever it takes to get them moving. I'm watching my boys as they watch me. Things begin to happen fast. With the major's LZVP leading the way, our boats break formation one after the other and file off to our departure line. This is an invisible line about 6,000 yards offshore that runs parallel to the landing beaches. When we get there, our boats are form up in line abreast, arrayed like a cavalry squadron waiting for the bugle to sound charge. The coxswains rev and gun the engines in neutral gear, and the boats are rearing and lurching, charping at the bit. It's as if the coxswains are struggling to rein in war horses that can't contain their eagerness for battle. Our boat's engine is blasting, the noise almost painful to the ears. We're pumped up. My men and I, I, we're really pumped up. The adrenaline is flowing, surging through us, clutching our weapons, looking over the side of the boat at the island, breathing hard, thinking fast, focused on the task at hand. 
stealing ourselves, getting ready, ready, ready. Here we go. The signal is given. Our coxswain shifts out a neutral, pushes that's, that's the throttle wide open. That's the charge of the light brigade b- b- thinking right there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and repeating, repeating verbs as well, you see? Oh, I see. Ready? Yeah, ready? Yeah. Ready, yeah. ready, ready. Yeah. yeah. Right. Little literary. Yeah. A little, little, yeah. Li- yeah. A literary. Yeah. So uh, that's, 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 that, that's the thinking behind tip it. Tip of the hat. Yeah. Here we go. The signal is given. Our coxswain shifts out a neutral, pushes the throttle wide open. The engine bellows, belches, belches smoke. The stern dips. The men in the boat rock back slightly as the boat leaps forward. Now we're barreling toward the island. Our boat, all the boats, 600 men, more or less, of the 1st Battalion, 8th Marines. Water churning, boiling behind the boat. We're bucketing and bouncing, bullying ahead with our squared off bow, muscling the water aside. The boat is throwing spray, soaking us, and we're getting closer, closer to the island. We're about 800 yards from the shore when zip, 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 we hear tiny objects flying past. And those aren't hornets, boys. They're bullets. We're in the range of the Japanese machine guns. And good gosh, they're shooting at us. We find this interesting. Bullets zipping by, splatting on the water surface. Splash, splat here, splat there, splats to the left and right, splats in front of us. Look, by golly, there's some enemy fire hitting right over there. Look over there. That's me talking. That's all of us talking, talking and pointing at the impact circles in the water. Little splats, little dots where bullets hit. People shooting at us. Fascinating. Realizing that we could get our heads shot off, we duck down down into the boat. The more bullets splatting into the water, but none hit our LCVP. We tell ourselves that those are, that most are 7.7 millimeter slugs, which is what your basic light Japanese machine gun fires, and are nothing really much to worry about because they're too small to pierce even the thin-skinned Higgins boat. That's what we tell ourselves, all right, but we really don't believe it. We know good and well that the Japanese are also shooting at us with heavier automatic weapons, big 13 millimeter machine guns, and the even bigger dual purpose anti-boat, anti-aircraft guns, which range in size from 37 millimeter to 77 millimeter, and they're lobbing shells from 70 millimeter mountain howitzers. These weapons can and do inflict considerable damage on our assault teams, killing and wounded hun- wounding hundreds of them, disabling or destroying many Amtraks and LCVPs. They're not my con- chief concern, however, and never mind that they might at any second blow us to eternity. What really bugs me is being hunkered down in this boat where I can't see anything. I can't see where we are, where we're going, where we should be. I can't observe the enemy fire, engage resistance we're likely to encounter. I feel as if I'm going into battle blindfolded. This really stinks. How can I do my job if I can't see anything? How can I be sure the coxswain is taking us to the right place? My men, what are they thinking? They're watching me, watching to see how I'm bearing up. Well, I'm watching them too, and for the same reason. They look okay. Check that, they look grim and resigned, but that's good. Grim and resigned look means they've more or less accepted the situation, which is also good because the situation isn't going to change unless it changes for the worse. This whole thing is on the rails. It's a runaway train and there's nothing going to stop it now. If you know this, if you accept it, you can keep your fear under control. And if you can keep your fear under control, you'll do your job. You won't let your buddies down. So we're doing fine, relatively speaking. The boat is racing toward the shore when crang, scraping bottom, metal grinding on coral, it abruptly stops. We're thrown forward, cursing. We've run aground. 
all along the reef it's the same boats grinding to a halt on Basio's fringing reef I think what the heck the tide is supposed to be up the water deep enough to allow the LCVPs to clear the reef we're 600 yards from the shore 600 long yards this just cannot be wrong it can be it is Though we're not aware of it, we're victims of the same disagreeable tidal conditions that fouled up yesterday's landings. This is as far as we go, our coxswain yells. We're going to unload. His passengers are not happy. There are exclamations of astonishment and protest. Oh shit, you gotta be kidding. But he's not kidding. Yeah, this is as far as we go, he repeats. We're hung up. We've hit the reef. You gotta get out here. Then he works the controls that release the cables that hold the ramp up. The cables, which are still strung along the sides of the hull, unwind with a metallic rasp. The ramp screeches as it opens, drops, splashes into the water. And there before us is Batio in all its hideous glory. Not to exaggerate or over-dramatize, but it is a scene from hell. I mean, one second we're looking at this slab of a metal ramp. Then the ramp drops and we're looking at an inferno. Fire and smoke fill our frame of vision framed by the sides of the bottom and the bottom of the boat orange fire red fire and black black smoke the fire is shooting up the smoke is roiling curling climbing as fast and high the sky isn't high enough to contain it you'd think we were looking at a volcano being born you wonder what could produce so much smoke surely by now everything on Basio that can burned has burned so where is all that smoke coming from from the bowels of the earth it would seem from somewhere deep underground, under the ocean, from the ever-blazing furnaces of the world. And let's not forget the explosions. There are a lot of them. Explosions here, there, everywhere. Fire and fireballs, tongues of flame, crimson and yellow flashes in the smoke. The time is 0615, and some 600 Marines are about to be launched, or rather launched themselves at Beggio, codenamed Helen. I'm at the front of the boat, the lieutenant, the platoon leader. Time for me to lead. A few seconds go by. I was de- a few seconds ago. I was deploring the limited protection offered by the thin metal ramp. Now I'm deploring the lack of that limited protection. It was, after all, better than nothing, which is what I've got now. I kind of feel sick, and I'm thinking, God, why am I in this mess? What am I doing here? But I'm resigned to the situation. I've got to ride it out, no matter what happens. No turning back now. So the ramp hits the water and I run down the ramp clutching my M1 carbine, waving my guys forward shouting, let's go. I sense that my men are hesitating but I pay no attention to them. I jump into the water not knowing how deep it'll be, thinking that I might jump into a shell hole and go all the way under. But I land on coral and sand, solid footing that's only thigh deep. What a relief. And the water feels good. That incredibly is my first thought. The water feels good. It's calm and warm like bath water, almost soothing, a pleasant contrast to the still cool morning air. It's murky though, sand and coral all stirred up beneath the surface. None of that crystalline purity that comes to mind when you picture a tropical lagoon. War comes to paradise and literally fouls it up. I look shoreward, only 600 yards to go. Now, uh, <clears throat> the fellow that reached down and pulled me up over the ramp, uh, here a few months ago, uh, we, 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 we ran across a photograph of him. 
know what he looked like, mm-hmm. and uh, a little bit of reference to his family, but ne- we never did, never made a comp- any contact. Now this is as of within six months or so ago. Wow. So this is. And this nobody and nobody else I talked to really knew who this guy was. He was new to the outfit. He was a sergeant. He was new. So, but nobody knew him at reunions and didn't know him. Yeah. So you look out. There's 600 and then yards as to he, go. And as he he and I were being lifted up uh, by the uh, by the transport mm-hmm. in a ba- side by side in a basket, and I uh, remember it says just as we were okay, we just brought up from the landing boat in in in, in this basket, taken risen up to the uh, to the uh, transport itself. And I made a comment. Says, "Looks like looks like we made it." His comment was, "You've made it. Hmm. You've made it." And then he died. So you look down, going back to this point when the ramp actually opens, and you see you've got 600 yards to go, and it's just nothing but machine gun fire. And as you said earlier, the Japanese, you'd watch them storm forward without any ability to maneuver. Just yeah, only yeah, thing yeah. to do with assault, and now here yeah. you are. We had no maneuver either. In the exact same situation. Yeah, we're in the receiving end, completely at their mercy. You say yeah. here, six hundred yards, six football fields, just under a third of a mile. If you run that distance on dry land, unencumbered and unimposed, <laughs> you'll be gasping at the finish line. I don't care what kind of shape you're in. We're in water, and we're wearing and carrying sixty pounds or more of gear, and the Japanese are ripping us apart. They've got an absolutely clear field of fire, and we have to walk straight into it. When I returned and I looked, I went clear out there where I was hit and walked in, and I saw remains of old carbines and so on down in the, down in the sand. We've got to walk, not run, because we're in the water, remember? Walk slowly because we can't run. We can't even walk fast. The Marines are the world's experts in amphibious warfare. The Corps has been training for the past two decades to assault and establish a beachhead on a hostile shore. It has developed complex doctrines to guide us in such endeavors. At Beggio on 21 November 1943, all that training and doctrine doctrine has come to this. We step out of our LCVPs into shallow water and walk slowly across 600 yards with absolutely no cover whatsoever to make a frontal assault on heavily fortified and defended enemy positions. On my uh, website, <clears throat> uh, you just go to it by um, my name, just Dean Ladd. There is a poem in there called Curtains of Fire. And it goes into great detail, similar kind of words, mm-hmm. but done, done a little differently. And uh, it's, it's, so it's, that's, where, that's where it's all spelled out. Mm. You, you say some training and some doctrine that they've been working on. That's your quote. We yeah. cannot believe the volume of fire that's coming from the island. The air is just filled with bullets. We can't see them. But we can see where they hit. Splat, splat, splat like raindrops dotting the water. Dot patterns sweeping back and forth across our line. Curtains, a curtain of fire it's called. Curtain of fire passing over yeah. us, through us. Yeah. I realize, oh my God, the Japanese have got this reef zeroed in which means they don't even have to aim their machine guns. They just lock the guns to a predetermined setting That's and traverse the barrel left and right, yeah. left and right. Just al- along the reef. Like shooting a fish in a yeah. barrel. Yeah, yeah. Major Hayes was right. He said we'd be going in standing up, 
And that's what we're doing. Not that we want to. There's no other way. No place to run. No place to hide. Some men crouch in the water. They watch the bullet patterns, the curtains, trying to figure out when the curtain will sweep over them. It's all a matter of timing. They'll duck underwater at the right moment to avoid getting shot. It would be a good plan if only there were two, if only there were one or two machine guns firing at them. But there are many, many machine guns firing, creating multiple curtains that meet and intermingle and overlap and crisscross. Bullets are flying every which way. Worse, the guns are aimed to fire just inches above the surface. So if you crouch with your head just above the water, you're likely to get your head drilled. Might as well stand up. That way you'll get shot in the chest or stomach, which is usually fatal, instead of to the head, which is almost always fatal. Also, if you're crouching in the water, you're not moving. And if you're not moving, you're a stationary target and you're easier to shoot. You have to keep moving. You have to get to shore. Get ashore or die. And the whole thing, orders were, don't stop to help anybody. Everybody's going to get killed. Just you get yourself in. My men that stopped to help me violated those orders. And I told them, don't wait for me. Go on. No, they they stuck, stuck around. Walking straight into curtains of machine gun fire is not something that comes naturally. Your instincts oppose it. Every fiber of your beam... Being seems screams in protest, resisting, telling you no way in hell am I going to do that. That's why when I glance over my shoulder to see how my men are doing, I see that I haven't, that many haven't left the boat. A few, most likely those that are just next to me in the boat, are in the water, but the others are bunched up at the top of the ramp, all tensed up to take the plunge, but hesitating, unable to make themselves move. I can't blame themselves for hanging back, but I can't <clears throat> allow it. For one thing, they make a big fat target standing there crowded together at the front of the boat. They've got to get into the water and disperse before the Japanese machine guns find them and wipe them out with a couple well-placed bursts. But more important, they've got a job to do. They've got to get off the boat, get ashore, and fight and kill Japanese. I gesture at them and shout, come on guys, let's go, get moving, move out. They obey me. They get moving. They're good men, the best. They charge down the ramp, jump feet first in the water, start wading toward the shore, and that's when the slaughter really begins. Right away, the men around me, my men, are taking hits and falling. I'm very aware of this. I'm hearing cries for help, cries for Corman. The wounded are calling out, Corman, Corman, I'm hit, I'm hit, over here. They're calling out as loud as they can. I see men going under, often for the last time. What do I do? I keep moving forward, that's what cries for help everywhere and I ignore them I have to you get hut you get hit you just have to keep going you have to cope with it yourself do the best you can hope for the best the sounds of battle are everywhere there are those sweeping slashing curtains of fire dozens of machine guns rattling a a cacophony of staccato hammering artillery shells exploding in the water splashing throwing up whooshing geysers of water and human body parts, and most especially, most memorably, the shouts and screams of the wounded and the dying. Oh God, I'm hit. Corman, over here. Corman, help me, help me, please. Men are dropping everywhere, to the left and right of me, falling and sinking into the water, going under. Some men don't cry out, hardly make a sound when they're hit. The bullet or bullets thump into them, they grunt and they're gone. We're not permitted to help them. The corpsman can come to their aid, but the but not the rest of us. Our orders are to move on, to get to shore as fast as we can. If we stop to help the wounded, we'll get shot too, and we won't make it to the beach where we're needed. 
So we keep wading forward. My men, my the men from other boats, the entire battalion, what's left of it struggling through the water, holding their rifles over their heads, pushing through toward the beach and into the teeth of all that inflating gunfire. Their courage is incredible. That word only begins to describe it. Inflating from that beach to British uh, transport or uh, uh, ship. Crossfire you guys are in. Yeah. Shells exploding, whooshing geysers, machine guns rattling, splat, 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 those little dots in the water, thousands of them moving this way and that. A bullet hits four feet to my right, splat, splat, then bullets hit three feet, two foot, one foot to my right. Sure do hope they skip over me, and they do, this time. Splat, they begin hitting to my left, one foot, two foot, three foot, and so on. I got lucky. I literally dodged a bullet, several bullets. How long will my luck hold? I can't see any muzzle flashes from the enemy guns. The Japanese are invisible, just like their bullets. We're being slaughtered by an invisible force. Nothing to see, nothing to shoot at. Not that we would be shooting if we could see them. You don't stand in open water shooting at the enemy. You get yourself to the beach, you take cover, and then you start shooting. Anyway, my weapon isn't good for shooting at long and medium ranges. For that matter, it's not much good at close range either. It's an M1 carbine, a pathetic excuse for a firearm, a weakling with a weakling's punch. I'm holding it at port arms across my chest as I wade through the water. Maybe there'll be a stop. Maybe there'll be a. Maybe it will stop a bullet that would otherwise kill me. That's about all the good it can do me. I walk on, pushing forward, straining to move faster. The water dragging at my thighs. No one ever set a speed record running in thigh deep water. I've gone about 100 yards, only 500 yards to go. We're taking fire from the front, from both flanks, from the rear. The rear, what the hell? And that's what you talk about. That's the, that's the uh, sunken ship that's out there, and there's well, Japanese no, no, on there. there our planes the are, now our planes are coming in and strafing. Oh. And we wonder, what is going on in this? When they, were, they were strafing that ship. I return to the task at hand, keep moving to the shore. How long has this been going on? How long have I been out here in the water? I can't say, I have no sense of time. Everything is moving in slow motion. Seconds seems to last minutes. Minutes seem to last hours. It just keeps going on and on. Every moment is intense, filled with intense thoughts, emotions, actions. I'm thinking, how can I protect myself? How can I protect my men? Someone screams, another one of my men is hit. And another, and another, help, Corman. Some are killed outright, some are wounded, some are, well, it's hard to say. Some go quietly, some noisily. They fall back in the water, they slip under the water. Some flail in the water in their pain and panic, howling and shouting. I keep moving. My adrenaline is flowing like an electric current through me, allowing me to do things I wouldn't normally and shouldn't normally do. If I stopped to think about what I'm doing, I'd freeze up. I'd try to track the bullets, the movement and patterns of the enemy's traversing fire. The bullets impacts start to my left to my right the bullets sweeping back and forth i see no pattern or rather i see too many patterns splat 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 everywhere it's like the enemy throwing thousands and thousands of stones at us a pattern of splats in the water comes towards me from the right sweeps past me continues to the left i don't hear the crack of the bullets as they zip by at supersonic speed that's the problem they're not zipping past us they're hitting us they've got our range i'm in the impact zone i have to get through it or die i turn to look back at my men let's go i call out for the umpteenth time i turn facing the shore then finally it happens a sickening splat like an inner tube being snapped across my abdomen slapping my bare stomach a sharp stinging sensation. I'm hit, I hear myself say. 
A bullet has struck me nearly dead center below the navel, piercing me above the waterline. I'm gut shot, one of the worst wounds of all. Oh God. I've probably been hit by small caliber machine gun bullet fired from straight ahead on the beach. It didn't make much of an impact, not long enough to knock me off my feet or even stagger me. Later, I would learn it tore right through my body, piercing my intestines, thank, bladder, thank and Thank goodness it didn't hit a bone. <sighs> See, and it didn't. Yeah, so it, it pierced your intestines, bladder, and sacrum just before and it exited. Missed, and it exited, missing my uh, spinal nerve by a quarter of an inch. As it is, I'll probably die in a few minutes. I'm scared. I think, my gosh, this is it. If it happens that you get shot and you don't know how bad the wound, it often happens that you get shot and you don't know how bad the wound is. But when you're hit where I was hit, you know it's bad. It's a gut wound and you know it's pretty sure thing you're not going to make it. Very few people survive gut wounds even in the best of circumstances. I'm in what are arguably the worst of circumstances. If I had been shot on dry land, I might be able to crawl to an aid station, or my buddies might have patched me up, but I'm in a lagoon, so there can be no crawling, and my buddies are forbidden to help me. It goes without saying that there are no aid stations close by. I can try to reach our LCVPs on the reef 100 yards behind me, but I probably won't make it. I'm dying is why. I dump my gear into the water. Off goes my pack, my helmet, my webbing, the walkie-talkie slung over my shoulder. Goodbye, M1 carbine. Into the drink you go, never a shot fired in anger. It takes just seconds for me to shuck my equipment. In those seconds, I lose most of my strength. After a few more seconds, I'm almost too weak to stand. It happens that fast. The energy is draining out of me. I'm going into shock. The weakness doesn't paralyze me, and it doesn't come from any place in particular. It's an overall sort of feeling that makes me go heavy and limp. I'm in pain, but it's not too bad. Not yet. And I'm not bleeding very much either. But I'm slipping away, no doubt about it. My biggest worry now is that I'll collapse, sink beneath the surface, and drown. All I want to do is keep my head above water so I won't drown before I die from the bullet that reamed through me. I know this isn't rational. What difference does it make how I die? Drowning or dying from getting my innards scrambled by a bullet. Either way, I'm a goner. And soon. But I'm not thinking rationally. I'm thinking I've got to keep my head above water, period. Maybe 10 seconds have passed since I got shot. That is all. In that time, the man closest to me, PFC Thomas F. Sullivan, has hastened to my side. Lieutenant, where are you hit? He asks. I tell him. He pulls up my dungaree jacket, checks my wound. Sullivan is the platoon's eight ball. A nice guy, just a teenager, but he's got a wild streak. He's always getting into trouble. You can bet dollars to donuts when he goes on liberty. He'll raise the dickens, get arrested, and afterwards spend a few days in the brig as punishment. This happened in New Zealand before we left for Tarawa. This happens everywhere we go. It's standard operating procedure for Sullivan. <laughs> you can put, you can count on him to kick up a row to break the rules. I never did locate him afterwards. I tried to. I never could. I know he survived the war. Oh, he definitely yeah. survived? Yeah. And you're happy that right now he's the kind of guy that's rebellious because he's disobeying the orders, which the orders are you keep going. And he looks at you and says, no, I'm going to take it. You know, I thought it was a goner, so why why have somebody else die trying to help me? Another guy joins him, PFC Duffy, also a member of my platoon, and also would seem a kid who doesn't know how to follow orders. When I returned this last time, I, I found out where he was buried. Duffy? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. You even say you'd think you'd be happy that these guys were staying with you, but you're actually thinking, well, well, which is what you just were said. disobeying orders, and they were going to lose their lives, too. And finally, they say, we're staying with you. Yeah. Where do you want us to take you, to the beach or to the boat? And yeah. you opt for the boat. Yeah. It takes about 10 minutes to reach the nearest LCVP. The boat's crowded with other wounded Marines. Other wounded men are being dragged to the boat by their buddies. Evidently, Sullivan and Duffy weren't the only ones who ignored the order to ignore the wounded. The wounded men and the rescuers are clustered in front of the ramp, which is about three quarters raised. One by one, the wounded men are half pushed, half flung over the top of the ramp, after which they roll down onto the deck. My turn comes. The man next to me is that big fellow with the ravaged face. His wound is terrible, worse than mine. I motion for him to go before me. He is boosted up to the top of the ramp. Sullivan lifts me up. I'm groaning like mad. The pain is getting worse. I'm really hurting really bad now. My helpers can't quite get me over the top. I'm limp and heavy, a bulky sack of flesh and bone with a hole in it, and they just can't manage to raise me high enough. That's when the Marine with the ravaged face performs his life-saving deed, a one-arming me into the boat. How did he do that? He must be in torment from his wound, but that didn't stop him from helping me. I tumble, groaning down onto the dock alongside the man with the ravaged face. The deck is covered with the maimed and wounded men, their bodies bandaged and bloody, many writhing in pain, many just groaning just like me. Another wounded man is taken aboard. The ramp is then closed and the boat begins to move. The coxswain, aware that our lives are hanging in the balance, opens the throttle wide, and soon we're going full tilt, racing through the channel in the barrier reef toward the Sheridan. This description, I think, is the best description I've ever heard of of that kind of combat. Well, yeah, you take uh, Stephen Weinberger. He is he's he's incredible. He does a lot of writing. Uh, see, he worked with. Uh, the guy headed up the Chicago Tribune. Mm-hmm. He worked with them uh, regarding the uh, uh, army unit that was uh, in, in World War II, and then he wrote and then he wrote this about the uh, about the Polish woman that was in the uh, Jewish woman that was in, that was uh, survived the the, uh, <clears throat> uh, the time that they were uh, almost killed. Hmm. It's incredible. So that's your. That that's your that's the end of the Tarawa battle for you. Mm-hmm. Lasted what twenty minutes? Yeah, well, I right. guess two. I guess twenty hours and twenty minutes because you did the first twenty hours circling yeah, around. Right. Uh, yeah, and you give a great account from all the people that you know that were there that got interviewed. Um, Dick Stein, he's he's pushing in the, in the fighting at 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 Tarawa. For, it's yeah. it's really all taking place at this seawall. He later on later on he uh, was in the uh, motorcycle officer in L.A. and uh, he he he'd been in, been in accidents and shot at, <laughs> hospitalized twenty times. <laughs> gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. These guys. Getting ashore a few, a few seconds later, Dick stepped ashore. This yeah. is what this now you're being you're being you know you're being loaded down the Sheraton. Uh, yeah, momentarily elated, elated, he said to himself, "Well, they ain't gonna get me now." Then he looked 
around and his elation evaporated. Nearby lay a dead Marine with a Japanese bayonet protruding from his chest and three dead Japanese soldiers sprawled around him. Dead bodies were everywhere, floating in the water, piling up at the waterline, strewn about the beach. Guys from the 2nd Marines who had landed the day before, guys from the 8th Marines too, and many Japanese. The beach was strewn with rifles as well as bodies and he took one off of a dead Marine and took the man's ammo clips as well. Now he could fight back. And then another guy named Hester. Hester collected his men and led them back to the seawall. They found Murdoch. He's a perfect example of taking leadership, this Hester. Hester? Called Big Hester, yeah. And what happened with him? Well, he's able to gather people together Mm -hmm. and, hey, let's go, you know? Yeah. So that's that's the guy. Now, how much more do I say about him? Uh, I mean, you... There were two brothers. One brother was killed. His younger brother was killed on, on uh, Guadalcanal about the time when I almost got killed. Well, you start talking here about him and him Hester and then Murdoch. Yeah. And you say, you say Hester, they found Murdoch near a wrecked Amtrak in the mad rush okay. to reach the seawall and jump over it. Duffy somehow got separated from the group and, and they was, never saw him again. Never saw him again. He was killed. The guy that saved your life. Sitting with his back to the wall, taking a breather, Dick looked over the toward the shore immediately behind Murdoch. The incoming waves washed the dead Marines onto the shore and pushed them into small piles. It looked like a little mound, and at the top of that mound facing the sky was Anthony Boyle. His helmet was off and the top of his head was shot now, away. On Anthony Boyle, a number of years ago, uh, Murdoch, I, and another one or two went to a big memorial for him in, uh, in, New, York, New, in York. New York, overlooking yeah. the Hudson. And we had one Lieutenant General, uh, Boomer, uh, was with us, and he was one of the spokesmen for the for the uh, uh, the fighting in, that you were involved mm-hmm. in. He was the guy, the main guy. Wow. So he was there with us, but uh, uh, we uh, we had a big ceremony in a big Catholic church. We had a parade downtown to downtown. Oh, it was a big event, mm-hmm. big event. And this is what happened to him. That's what happened to him. Is yeah. Only seconds before, O'Boyle had been standing next to Murdoch, peering yeah, over the wall. Yeah. Then a Japanese bullet took off the top of his head, and he yeah. fell back into John's arm. Yeah. John cradled O'Boyle in his arms for a long moment before laying him gently aside. Yeah. Someone else must have hauled him up to the pile of bodies at the water's edge to get him yeah. away from the wall. Yeah. During this time, someone from the company passed Dick's position and informed that Duffy had been killed. Duffy was a very quiet person, never talked to him much, but a really nice no, guy. No, he didn't, uh- Dick remembered. He was a little older than the, than the most of us yeah, in was. his earlier mid-20s, yeah. which made him an old man in our outfit. Uh-huh. He was O'Boyle's best buddy. Now they were both dead, huh. killed within minutes of each other. For everyone involved, Americans and Japanese, it was a peculiarly peculiarly nasty way to fight a war. The situation favored the defenders, but only to a point. Battles are won not by staying in fortifications. They are won by attacking. And on Beggio, the Marines and were the attackers. And you never saw the enemy because they were there shooting at you from a, from a hole out of a hole somewhere, see? They had to assault each and every Japanese position, making short rushes across open ground through murderous fire. Heavy casualties were the result, but ultimately Japanese casualties were heavier. In fact, almost total. The Japanese would not yield because their military ethos forbade it. To beat them, you had to kill them. But the Marines would not quit, and they could not be stopped. Against a foe such as the Marines with their absolute determination and capability to win, 
the initial advantages enjoyed by defenders fighting from a concealment could have but one outcome, annihilation. Now, I have a, I have a book here written by one of the Japanese defenders. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> uh, I wanted to, wanted to meet him when I went there and met two other Japanese officers. But we never, we never met, we never actually able to get together. We were on the phone. But uh, the name, the name of the book's called, uh, call, uh, let's see what they called, uh, called Heavenly something or other. Mm. Yeah, see, they I believe, mean, they believe they went to a heaven too. It was a different kind of heaven when they died. <sighs> Continuing on yeah, here. Yeah, Zasukuni Shrine for one place. Oh, okay. You know, the officers especially. Yeah. They, we, will, we will meet again in the Asukuni Shrine. And this one officer that I met on Guadalcanal, and who I got to know real well, mm -hmm. we, we uh, corresponded for about 15 years and uh, uh, <clears throat> talked a lot about the, uh, I learned a lot about their, their whole uh, background of their uh, Bushido code mm -hmm. and all that stuff. I've read on this podcast, I've read some of the letters that the kamikaze pilots would write because yeah. they would write a letter before they would go and die. Yeah. And and there's also there's also talk of how like they would write these letters but some of them were not writing from the heart. In now, other when, words. And as they you know, uh, when they when they died sometimes they would cut off their fingernails and that would be sent back. Hmm. Now this one this one one fellow who had just been killed, he was in a gopher like hole, we we're just starting our final drive. And uh, that's where I, went. I got the uh, diary from him and the mm -hmm. thousand hole uh, uh, stitch belt and all that kind of stuff. And uh, anyway, I had the uh, I had, I had a uh, little 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 piece of part of a hair that mm -hmm. had belonged to uh, I think it belonged to his his girlfriend or something. Anyway, I was going to send all that back, and uh, that. When when the uh, when a soldier was killed, the wife and that would have been his wife. The wife is supposed to take care of his family. Instead, she had remarried. She felt bad about it. Well, when she saw this, saw what he had written, but wanted her to remarry. What what a difference that made. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, again, jumping ahead a little bit, because. People need to get the book so they can read it for themselves. But the casualty toll was nothing less than catastrophic. In New Zealand, the company had been beefed up to a little more than 200 men to give it an extra punch in the assault. 90 were lost, killed, or wounded in the Beijing Lagoon. In other words, nearly half the company was out of action before anyone stepped ashore. The men Murdoch found on the beach were all exhausted and with a terrible look on their face. That's according to Murdoch. But their shock and exhaustion did not, could not concern him. What I was more interested in was who was alive and who have I got? What have I got? To make that assessment, he continued rounding up the guys on the beach and taking them back to his area. All the while the enemy fire was flailing on the beach, John ignored it. And when Anthony O'Boyle was shot and fell into his arms, he wasn't phased. And once he had laid O'Boyle, O'Boyle's twitching body aside, he didn't think about him anymore that day. He didn't have time, much less the inclination to grieve for O'Boyle or to feel horror for the slow, hideous way O'Boyle died. See, at that died. point in time, uh, our, our, our battalion, especially our company, uh, led by Murdoch, uh, were... were uh, uh, 
were wiping out the last resistance. Mm. It was a hard, it was really a, a um, real determined group fighting there. And that's where we lost went. One, one of the people that's in this picture here, uh, he got shot by a fellow down in a hole, like a little spider hole, what do you call it? And up in his gut and killed him instantly. He died thinking that he died thinking that I'd be just been killed. Hmm. I went. I visited his family in uh, in uh, Tennessee uh, afterwards, and they were still so sad that they didn't even want to hear more about it. Hmm. Didn't even want to talk to me about it. You know. Progress is eventually made. Toward the middle of the day, Bill noticed that Sims things seemed to be going a little bit better for the Marines. They seemed to be making some progress. Bulldozers had landed by then, and they pushed up against the pillbox entrances, sealing them and entombing the Japanese inside. But the flamethrowers really did the trick. A flamethrower so operator. So one of those that was inside, I ran into the first I returned, first time I returned to Tarawa, and uh, he had been uh, been in the Navy for many, many years, probably well over 20 years and he was in charge of the of the mess area and then he had he had been transferred from there to new guinea just before we landed that's why how he survived oh so he so just before he landed he had been transferred yeah to new he'd guinea. been Got well he you know maybe a month before yeah, yeah, or some yeah. period of time right right and yeah. that's the only reason so he survived. wrote that so now here he is he returned same time i did and i and i met him you know and uh and I showed him the picture of the, of the one, the one uh, Japanese soldier that what they do is they put they, they t put their toe in the and pull the trigger of the uh, of the of the rifle, and point it right up their up their mouth, and he was doing that, and he saw that, and he, he the, the reaction from him was really something. It was really something, when he saw that picture, he says, yeah, yeah, that was done a lot. <laughs> Man. Uh, here's what here's what Murdoch says as the as the fighting kind of comes to an end As they get to the end all of a sudden Things began to move we were moving but very very slowly like a snail my guys would go out ahead of me Then they'd be moving and I'd run up with my gang and get behind them We were all very close to the enemy a matter of feet not yards It was small very slow progress but it was progress nonetheless. For the first time since they had landed the day before, the men of B Company were advancing and not falling back after each forward push. The Japanese meant to fight to the last man and they were coming ever closer to realizing that goal. Marine assault teams, mostly ad hoc assemblages, destroyed the enemy bunkers one after another, killing the Japanese while they were inside or when, when they ran out. The Japanese were literally slain in heaps. As their numbers were reduced, so was the volume and intensity of their fire. Finally, when John and his men had advanced as far as they could, the battle just sort of petered out. The shooting stopped, bringing silence to their sector of the battlefield and leaving everyone stunned by the abrupt end to the fighting. They didn't know quite what to do. We just kind of sat there and did nothing. The next day, 1st Battalion marched over to the pier where the LCVB waited to take them back to the Sheridan. Sheridan. On their way, they witnessed a dual flag raising ceremony for the Stars and Stripes and the British Union Jack with a representative from His Majesty's government presiding. The Stars and Stripes went up first, but the Union Jack was given the place of pride and honor on a higher pole and acknowledgement of the British sovereignty over the Tarawa Atoll. There were some muttered complaints from the men of the 1-8, but not much. 
Most just smiled grimly and shook their heads. Great Britain may have held the title to Beggio, but the Marine Corps truly owned it. <clears throat> when I returned the first time, forever. when I returned the first time in in uh, '82, and uh, I stayed with with uh, uh, missionaries there for a couple for three or four days or more, and then during that time. Uh, we all decided to, uh, okay, there was a breakaway, a split in that church group. So part of them were, uh, is going to another church, just a thatch type of a place, mm -hmm. walking, had to walk through some oh, kind of a jungle area to get there. And um, so uh, I, they had a, we had it, we sat down and I was, I spoke and uh, asked them to sing and they just loved to sing, you know. And then it's not, now you got to sing the Marine Hymn. <laughs> so, and then, so then, uh, what happened was uh, I, I didn't really really sing it. I said, "Now we'll sing it." The, the words, for, I mean, we'll sing the 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 uh, the the, um, the tune of it, and it was a love song based on a hymn. So it was kind of two iterations, apparently. And then I had to, then I told him a little bit about. Well, you know, that's interesting. And I said, no, these words, and I went through the words to a certain extent. And uh, well, that, that was so interesting that they, here they sang that song that was a love song, like same as I ran, ran him. Hmm. <laughs> oh, then after that, I invited him over to the other church that they'd split off from, and I, had, I got a hold of the film that was, that was done by a guy named Norm Hatch, who recently died away. He's the one who took all these pictures, oh, okay. combat photos. Lives in Florida, by the way. And anyway, um, I played that for them. And it showed that flag, that flag rising. Mm -hmm. And these kids, they all clapped for the American flag, and they were real quiet when <laughs> the British flag went, just like it was described in here. Uh, <laughs> uh, here's, here's the results. The battle for Beijing lasted 76 hours. Some 4,690 Japanese troops, about 97% of the garrison died. A mere 17 Japanese were taken prisoner, as were 129 laborers. The second yeah, Marine. These, most of these were Korean laborers. The Korean laborers, yeah. yeah. The second Marine Division suffered 3,407 casualties. Of these, 1,115 Marines and sailors were killed, and another 2,292 were wounded. The assault units lost 41% of their men dead and wounded. The 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, lost more than 30% of its men just getting to the beach. Overall, There's probably, there could be as many as 400 still there, three or 400 still there, wow. because they're under homes, under parking lots, and so on. Overall, the battalion suffered 343 casualties, 108 hey, hey, killed. When, when I was there, to mm -hmm. the, the third, about the third time, and here the, here the, uh, the archaeologist was brushing, brushing off the bones, and they, on, the, on this... On this one person, uh, no, that on two of the two of them, they found wedding rings on there. Wow. Something, huh? Wow. And I saw that as, as they were doing it. Yeah. <sighs> Casualties and, in my platoon were 12 killed and 15 wounded, including myself. 75% of its original strength. Most were hit while wading to shore. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you can look at the faces of all these that were killed in this, art, this one uh, photograph. 
And you talk about the news clippings or the news stories that were reported yeah. about Tara. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh-huh. And, and part of it, I always was told that they released some of these it was the first time that they really released a lot of FDR images. FDR wanted, wanted, wanted the general public to realize, what was you really? know, this is not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. This is what it's really like. Yeah. Just terrific combat photos. Oh, incredible. Yeah, and those were the first ones showing yeah. mass casualties oh, of yeah. Americans. Yeah, you, you've probably seen that one. Oh, yeah, I've seen Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Norm Hatch is one that did that. Oh, so that is him. Okay. That's Norm Hatch. Got it. Oh, yeah. Wow. I got to know him real well. Yeah. All right. Um, and, now, and the other reason, yeah. this, reason this book got published was there's there's a uh, Colonel Alexander Joseph Alexander that died in the last in the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. And anyway, he was the he was the uh, the prime historian for the Marine Corps, and uh, uh, and uh, and then he was very well thought of by the Naval Institute Press. Mm-hmm. So when it came to uh, making a proposal to the Naval Institute Press. It had to go through their uh, through their uh, border review, see, mm-hmm. and and then after that, no, see, no, it had to go through, it had to go through your, uh, what do you, what's the word for it? Uh, somebody has the same same mountain as you do. I forget what. It's. Anyway, this uh, uh, Joseph Alexander was one of the prime ones that did the did the, did the, when my peer review. Okay. And then when that so that went when that got to the uh, to the uh, review board. Oh, he says fine. So I just sailing on through, you know. <laughs> and then now, then my book was one of the first ones to uh, go on as an ebook, the first ones oh, for okay. the press. Yeah. And I and I, I have the ads there in some of the the they, the the Proceedings magazine. Yeah. That shows shows that displayed. One of them is with uh, with uh, Pepe Goington. Is on that same page with him. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, this is available on ebook for those of you that want to get it and can't wait to get it. You can get it immediately. Just go straight to ebook. Not only that, yeah, that too. And not only that, uh, when they go through and it go, ends up going through email, I mean through uh, uh, what's, what is it, uh, Amazon.com, mm-hmm. it'll be delivery in a matter of about three days or less, and 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 no no shipping costs. Yeah, that's the way Amazon works. Oh, it's an amazing thing. How they thing. do it, I do not understand. Yeah, and I don't oh, know if this one there's there's, but that's where I got my copies. So, yeah, you can get. I have the hard cover and the soft cover. Yeah, both. Yes, I don't play around you, when it no, comes to you, when your When you books, get the sir. e-books, it costs three fourths, three quarters as much as as a uh, one of those. Yeah, it's the the publishing world is very strange. Taking it now to where you get onto the Sheridan. Yeah. So now this is, this is uh, no sooner had my stretcher touched down on the Sheridan's deck that I was whisked away into the operating room. I was one of the first mar- wounded Marines to be treated, and the medical team was fresh and rested and ready to go to work yeah. on me. I guess that qualifies as a stroke of good luck. Even better fortune awaited me in the operating room in the form of Lieutenant Commander Lloyd Sussex, formerly an abdominal, an abdominal specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic. Now the key member of a three-man team, doctor, two doctors and a corpsman that would save there your you life. There you go. How lucky is that? You had a guy yeah, that's... Unbelievable. <laughs> and on board a ship, and that's all there was. And if, if I'd gone on shore, I would have died. And in most other places, you, you wouldn't have an abdominal specialist. No. 
And then it says the operation lasted about an hour. I was conscious the whole time and didn't feel any pain. Yeah, the well, they didn't want dare put me out because I'd die. I was in, sh- I was in shock. And the doctor spent most of that hour bent over my lower body. And although I could not see what they were doing, I could hear the little clicking and snipping sounds made by yeah. their instruments as they worked. They repaired my bladder and removed a portion of my large intestine and gave me a blood transfusion. Then they closed my wound and that was that. Yeah, and then he had to wear a bag afterwards. <laughs> I had made it through surgery, but it had been a close call. Dr. Sussex told me that I could not have survived another two hours because of the toxins that were building up inside me. And that, right after the, right after the operation, I was kept in a hot, covered tent. Yeah. And it was miserable. I kept trying to shove it off. They had, they had a corpsman sitting there with me all night long to keep me from throwing it off. And, and, then, then, and then another couple of days, I was able to walk in to, to watch a movie with everybody else. <laughs> people couldn't believe here. I was walking in there to see the movie. They couldn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, you were oh. as good as dead. Gut shot. In, Unbelievable. Not even to the beach yet. And yeah, usually, then you had, you very said, people survive, period, a gut shot. Very yeah. few. Because yeah. he told me, he said, I talked to, the, talked to him later. He says, yeah, you know, the poison's in your system. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have lasted another couple more. Another hour or two, and that was it. And here I was operating an hour, about an hour or a little over after I was hit. <laughs> just un- unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Oh, wow. Uh, you say a, f- a few days later I was checked over by a younger doctor, a gloomy fellow with, b- with a bedside oh, yeah. manner to match. He told me dolefully that my wound was very serious and that I wouldn't live much past my 50s. Yeah. What sort of doctor says such a thing to his pa- patients? I reported his words to Dr. Sussex, who who's appalled. He shouldn't have told you that, Sussex said, and there's no truth to it anyways. And I guess we're proving that right now since yeah. we're sitting here yeah. talking about it. <laughs> well, now, what happened to him? A year later... He was operating on a guy at Farragut Naval Training Station. This is Sussex? Yes. And here he's about 55 years old. He died of a heart attack as he was operating on that guy. Oof. And I've talked, I've talked to the Mayo Clinic about that. And then there's people that have written up a lot of history about that. And they've written a little bit about Sussex. Mm. And I gave a lot of information, too. But, so anyway, that's, that's the end of the story on with him. And uh, like you said, you come walking up. They're playing a movie on the yeah. decks. You come walking about up. My buddies could hardly prove, believe their eyes. Oh, my God. Look, here's Lad, they, they exclaimed. Yeah. First they thought I was dead. Then they were told I was grievously wounded, all tore up, a basket case. And now here I was walking into the movie theater. How many days had it been? It couldn't have been more than three days. <sighs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh while I was they recovering, you, up, you know, they always in a hospital. They want you up and around as fast as possible, anyway. Okay. Yeah. While I was recovering from my surgery, John Murdoch dropped by to give me a samurai Ooh, sword. Yeah. He had survived. He had souvenired on Beggio. Yeah. Hold it for me until I return. He said. He assumed that I had gotten a million dollar wound and would be sent home. I thought the same. Left unspoken but implicit in what he said was that he didn't think he would be coming home. The sword was probably mine to keep. Yeah. He was, it was, his was a common sentiment. I would venture to say that after Tarawa, most second division Marines didn't believe they would make it through the war. Yeah. Cause you're looking at the entire rest of the island campaigns and then you got to go into mainland Japan and it's going to be a bloody fight the whole way. Oh, wow. Boy, if they, that bomb hadn't have dropped, it's a horrible thing, but geez. Murdoch took a head count of B Company using a pre-battle roster for reference, checking off one name after the other from the list. He had known that the toll would be large, but even he was shocked by the final count. 
my God, he thought. Now, the, the casualties are listed. Are they listed in there? If not, they're listed, they're listed in here, all the casualties. Uh, what's his name, the guy that... Uh, yeah, they're not fully listed in here. What's his name? Uh, uh, wrote the book, The Story of the Story of the Battle. What's it, what is it? Anyway, I got that whole thing. They're all listed in here. One's wounded, one's that uh, killed outright. Uh, now, this, this is his book, by the way, right here. See, this one right here. Who, you who heard of that, that one? Book? Sherwood. Oh, okay. Sh Sherrod. Okay. Now you know. all oh, the names are all back here. See, here they are. If you they're they're the all, they're all back in here. See this? Got it. See that? So that's where they all are. And I talked to him in person, and uh, getting okay, you know, to quote him. And I said, well, I had a little difficulty with. Uh, with the uh, publisher, mm -hmm. says, don't pay any attention to them. Says, I gave you the okay. All right. <laughs> uh, now you guys sail to Hawaii, yeah. so you go from yeah. you you go from this hell. How long does it take to get to Hawaii? Like a well, week, a little ten over, days, about a week, something? about a week. So then you guys get to Hawaii. You guys are pier side. You're all sitting up there looking pier side, yeah. and a car pulls up, and here yeah. we go, back to the book, outstepped out Admiral Chester yeah. W. Nimitz, Commander-in-Chief, yeah. Pacific Fleet, and Pacific Ocean Areas. Yeah. He began to ascend the gangway accompanied by an aide. Yeah. His friends called him Chet. So uh -huh. did the Marines. They yeah. figured their experiences <laughs> yeah. had given them the right. Hey, Chet, they shouted, when are we going back to the States? Chet, we can't wait for the Golden Gate. Does our skipper know the way to Dago? <laughs> How about some liberty, Chet? We got to get off this tub and do some Christmas shopping. And perhaps most tellingly, hey, Admiral, get us someone who knows the reefs for our next landing. <laughs> so that's, that's and a then classic his, And then his driver... Then the, the, the you remarks at his, at his driver, see. His, his, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, you say, I guess he looked like some Hollywood yeah, he guy. He looked like a Hollywood guy, yeah. <laughs> so that's choice remarks about him. <laughs> yeah, you guys must have been pretty, but anyway, uh, but anyway, pretty hard to control coming yeah. off of Tarawa. So anyway, he was, he was so glad. I said, these guys are, so they're just full of it. It's great, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Then he, so here we go. Shortly after Nimitz' departure. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the PA, the, the PA announced that the Sheridan would be proceeding directly to the Big Island. In other words, no liberty on Oahu. <laughs> this didn't set well with the Marines, and they went wild, hooting and yelling and whistling, throwing all manner of junk down on the dock, pelting the band and the shore <laughs> patrol. The bandsmen lowered their instruments and, accompanied by the shore patrols, fled to a nearby shed. The 8th Marines achieved nothing with their show of angry emotions except perhaps to blow off a lot of steam and confirm to all concerned parties that they should not have been given liberty. The grass was not about to turn these barbarians loose on the civilian populace of Oahu. The civilized world wasn't ready for us, and to be honest, we weren't ready for the and civilized Hawaii, world. Hawaii was concerned. What, oh, I after bet fighting the Japanese, what are we going to do? And there's a lot of Japanese there. It was just as well. The brass had plans for us. The 2nd Division as a whole, and these did not involve a return to the United States. First, we would go to the Big Island to rest, rebuild, and then train for the and next all, operation. We had to put up the tents. There was no, no, there was no place to sleep. <laughs> so they sent you guys out in the middle of Oahu. Um, no, no, no. This is this is. Oh, sorry. Big they sent you the Big Island, big but, island. The, but they sent you out in the middle of it, where you guys had to establish your own base camp. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. We had to set up the tents and start training. Oh yeah. 
um, you get here, our train, you, so you get the stuff And then up. after that, the camp was used by the others that eventually took Iwo Jima, mm-hmm. you see, the fifth. Okay. They, you, you say here, you get, you get the camp set up, you get a little bit of downtime, and then they get you guys right into training. Our training stress, the combined arms approach to warfare. For, for veterans of Beggio and Guadalcanal, many aspects of this training were old hat, but the replacements in the division were receiving was receiving almost daily. They needed all of it. Replacements now were pouring we were, in. Now we knew we were going to go be in the sugar cane area, and we knew we were going to use the tanks, and we, we knew that we were going to have to have communication by a phone on the back of the tank. Okay. See? Yeah, this was a new modification. Was to all put the new, little, yeah, little all new, and how to maneuver around, around the uh, strong points and all. You say that most of the replacements, most were fresh, fresh teenagers now straight out of boot to camp. Get, now we're starting to get draftees. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's oh, what um, yeah. you say here. Um, yeah. Eager kids with no combat experience and no idea what they gotten themselves into. The rest of us just looked at them and shook our heads. We did know what they had gotten themselves into, and we wondered how they would survive in the battles to come, never forgetting that our own survival thus far was due in large measure to the vagaries of chance and circumstance, and maybe just a little bit to the grace of God as well. Luck and God's grace were desperately slim reeds on which to hang our hopes, slimmer still for the replacements because of their inexperience. We expected that many would die. The odds were against them because they had seen no action, but we also expected to die. The odds were against us because we had seen too much action. Either, either way you did the math, it came out bad. Yeah. And if the war went on for another two or three reach, years. You'd reach 100% figure, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Your chances. Your chances are <laughs> yeah. 100%. Yeah. Uh, we respect. Oh, here you talk about the draftees. We were especially skeptical, yeah, there you go. Spec, spe, skeptical about the draftees, of which there were a significant number. These were selective service Marines, were something new. Uh, to which was previously an all-volunteer force, new and unwanted, and a matter of grave concern for the rest of us. Would the draftees measure up to Marine Corps standards? Would we be able to depend on them in battle? We had our doubts. We were wrong to doubt them in battle when the chips were down. They proved that, like volunteers, they were worthy to be called Marines. So you eventually take over a uh, uh, as a 60-millimeter mortar section. Yeah, because I was still weak. Because you were still hurt. Yeah, and so I didn't have to get out and do a lot of moving around, you see. <clears throat> and then, and again, you cover some of this stuff in good detail in the book, but then soon enough, it's... You're you're hitting Saipan. I learned I learned how to you know load the ship and and uh, be a court recorder and all that kind of stuff you know light so duty I, light duty stuff. How long were you guys in Hawaii for? Uh, let me think. Uh, about about six months, five six months. months. Yeah. So you get five. Did you get any liberty in that time? Did they? Oh yeah. Oh okay, yeah. So they we, let you go. Yeah, we went down to Hilo a lot. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. So now. You get done with that, and then boom, morning, 15 June, 1944, shells rain down on our assault waves. This is Saipan kicking yeah, up Yeah, but now, before we left our, Hawaii, yeah. we had our LSTs all lined up side by side, mm-hmm. and one of them blew up, a mortar shell or something. They were, they were doing some welding or something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a mortar shell blew up. And then fire just spread from, from ship to ship. And there, we lost, I don't know, up, Maybe could four, over 400 men lost their lives yeah. in that whole lineup there. Yeah, and, that, that was, and then that we lost a lot of equipment because of that. Did that set back the operation yeah, at all? Yeah, it did. It did put us, yeah. 
Yeah, I did. Now, so now that was at a place called Westlock. Yeah. You probably heard about that one, haven't you? Yeah, no, and you've got it written. You've, I did. I've, I heard heard about because they made changes to the way that they did business. Yeah. Um, with regards to handling. Now this happened. This happened when we were at landing exercises on Maui, and uh, and I think we we had some we had some complications on landing due to the weather or something it was, and and so that was part of it. I. Uh, uh, that that was part of it, but the main thing they don't know exactly what caused the explosion, but they think it probably was was what I just mentioned. Yeah. But guys got blew up, blew up, and just kept flying out. And, and um, one of my friends, he, he happened to him, and here he he's able to swim, swim. Uh, no, he was picked up by a boat came by and, and had a they pulled the lines, grab on. <laughs> they then just dragged him over to the beach. You know, it's yeah. incredible crazy these vets from Guadalcanal and Tarawa and then to perish in that yeah, way yeah, yeah, yeah. unbelievable yeah um but you push it back I guess and then you guys head to Saipan and here we go June 15th 1944 shells rain down on our salt waves kicking up tall columns of water now can you imagine landing on Saipan mm -hmm. they had all their artillery set on the rear side of, of the mountain fire over at us all zeroed in on the reef and along the beach. All they had to do was just rake back and forth. Mm -hmm. And we, you couldn't we, even shoot and, and we lost so many, so all our wounded. Our wounded were all going back and then here they got hit by all this artillery fire. And our battalion, a lot of our battalion commanders were wounded and killed. Because they were, they were the, our main, our CPs were wrecked along the beach. And, and then our ships couldn't fire back at them from that angle, they had to go clear around this other side of the island and hit them from the rear. Mm. That's what happened. Mm. Yeah, you, you say here are Not only that, they had a spotter on a smokestack at a sugar refinery. Um, and all that was called in. Just perfect. Perfect, yeah. Two, um, of, my, two of my friends were uh, killed right there on the beach. One led to death, and the, other, the, other, the other one the same way, mm. basically. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is what this is what Murdoch said about it. Our Amtrak's were in line abreast, and we were taking artillery yeah. fire, the heaviest we ever encountered. Yeah. You could see the shells hitting the water, exploding yeah. and making the water splash way up. Just off to my right, shell scored a direct hit on one of my boats, and pow, it just went to pieces. Yeah. There was a flash and a big explosion, and I could see pieces of men flying out of it. I thought, oh shit. But I also thought, thank God it wasn't my boat. But I was mostly thinking, who was it that got hit? And how many guys am I going to be without? Man, Murdoch was a serious, like, Marine combat leader. Yeah, he got there, too. He hit there, too. Um, and, uh, this, is, this is your... Uh, this is you saying, this is your, your experience. When my Amtrak reached the reef, we were all crouched low below the sides. There was too much metal flying around the air to risk popping up for a look around. The guys had their heads pulled down between their shoulders and they stared at each other with eyes, with big eyes and said nothing. The veterans of Tarawa had been through this before and were probably having a harder time of it precisely because of their prior experience, because they knew how bad things could get. The new kids were mostly better off because they didn't have a clue. 
Certainly they were scared, but they were also fascinated and awestruck by all the noise and commotion, and these emotions blunted their fear. Nothing in their experience had prepared them for this. The live fire exercises in Hawaii were puny by comparison, and so they did not realize that our situation was terrible and likely to get worse. You can be sure that I was scared, but fortunately I had the concerns of an officer to distract me. What wave were you in? What, what group were you in? <clears throat> there was somebody ahead of us okay. on the beach I landed on. We were way on the northern, side, northern end of the landing beach. And what happened is the tide, or whatever it was, forced us further, way to the left. And we had to realign a couple hundred yards further back to right again. Mm. Now, the uh, thing is, there's, there's we didn't we didn't have a lot of a lot of problem getting in to the beach but once once we got to the beach there was nobody on the beach so they so they they didn't they didn't they didn't uh defend themselves at the beach instead it was a heavy artillery mm -hmm. fire so they let us basically basically let us through but uh, where i was we had to cross a fighter strip that they had so we had to cross and that was kind of scary going across that exposed from the people shooting at us from the other side but then as we, uh, as we maneuvered, kept moving to the right further to get back where we were supposed to be, then the heavy artillery fire just all over the place. It was, it was just pandemonium, it was horrible. Mm. Yeah. You said so many good men were killed that day. One of them was First Lieutenant Newell T. Yeah, Berg. Newell Berg, he was, he was a, a former school teacher. A former school teacher. Uh, he and I went on, went on, uh, on Liberty together a lot in, in New Zealand. Yeah. Shell fragment sliced off one of his legs. No corner yeah. could be found to help him. Yeah, he just died. No yeah, there any dead, aid stations. Dead. Around the same time, oh yeah, that's his femoral artery pumped the last of his blood yeah. onto the sand. He looked yeah. up at those gathered around him and whispered, get the men off the beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because more the fire was coming in. Around the same time, John Hey, Murdoch, we saw these guns, by the way, when we returned up there and those guns are still up there two of them are mm -hmm. and now I, it's now it's, it's a japanese memorial and these are part of the memorial up there yeah i i, I mentioned to you that i went you've to probably Saipan. seen them too yeah, this did. is right above a place called samban city in yeah. city yeah it's right up there i don't know if we i don't know specifically because no but there's I know a nightclub we went and looked on, at all on the top different. of that hill as you get in there, was a there's a big nightclub on there. the top now it'd be just in the north towards trapichel yeah it's just that that's where the uh, that's where these, these uh, this artillery is. However, and then then down to the left, there's a monstrous, monstrous uh, dig out of where they, they, they got the uh, coral, the coral uh, gravel or sand okay. to make the airport with. Now that uh -huh. all got filled in with Japanese tanks and and, and uh, amphibian tractors. They're all buried right in there. Mm. You probably didn't see it because they've all been buried. Mm -hmm. But I got a picture picture of them in one book here mm. of what it looked like before they were covered up so uh i, I was here when um when your friend newell was it newell no yeah newell, newell, newell Berg, uh -huh. you said around the same time john murdoch john murdoch who was running yeah. up the beach after disembarking yeah. from his amtrak yeah. came across gus krieger Krieger, yeah. Krieger, of uh -huh. one of B Company's veteran first yeah. lieutenants and a close friend. I've got Krieger his, was lying on the I've, ground. I've got with his no picture here. Him. Yeah, his body perforated by shrapnel. He was alive, but just barely. John knelt beside his friend. I looked at him to see what I could do for him. John recalled, 
but he was bleeding in so many yeah, places. Right. I knew I couldn't do anything. He wanted a cigarette, so I gave him one. I lit that for him. And I said, Gus, you'll be okay. I got to go. I had to go. There was too much to do. I had to get the company organized, and I left him there. So he died there. I visited his wife afterwards, hmm. years later. Yeah. <clears throat> Thus, within the span of a few minutes, John had lost two of his seasoned platoon leaders. Also wounded and put out of action were the 2nd and 3rd Battalion commanders. Lieutenant yeah. Colonel Henry uh, P. Jim Crow. You heard him, man. Jim yeah. Crow? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Legendary. Oh, yeah. And former, he was the former commander of the Scout Sniper School that you yeah, attended. that's right. And also Lieutenant John uh, Miller, Lieutenant Colonel John Miller. So both the battalion commanders out of action. Yeah, <sighs> from that artillery. Yeah. Yeah. You're, again, you know. Uh, it looks sort of hopeless at that stage. It just seemed hopeless. Here we're catching heavy artillery fire, and we couldn't do anything about it. You know, it's, it's, I, like, I like bringing up these points in the book where you talk about things like this. Uh, while that's all that's happening, you say, Meanwhile, I lay in the brush with my men and tried to free myself from the despair that suddenly gripped me. The situation seemed hopeless. It was Tarawa all over again. Yeah. How, I yeah. wondered, are we going to get out of this yeah, mess? exactly my feelings at that time. And then you say the feelings soon passed. Yeah. I just didn't have time for it. At, at yeah. my command, we moved out. Everyone rose from their shell holes and craters and went forward, no hesitation. Emerging yeah. from the bushy strip, we lumbered about 10 feet to the airstrip. Keep going, uh -huh. keep going. I heard myself shouting, don't stop. It's good. I like to bring those points up because there's several times where you talk about you as a leader have to kind of get yourself together and yeah. and, and yeah. i think what that's helpful for is young leaders in the military that are going to feel that same thing if they get into a tough situation okay you got to recognize it and then you got to take action young 23 year old with all that responsibility oh my god so then uh next day uh i got got strapped off of my own mortars Hit, hit the leaves up above us and went off. Um, I didn't report it. It just, I got entered, entered, entered up in here. It's still there, as far as that goes. Still there. I didn't report it. Um, yeah, you guys are pushing forward, and then you guys get a, you guys get kind of a, a, a skirmish line, and then yeah. the Japanese counterattacked several points along our line. Don Maine's. Um, he recalled this. They bonsaied across the gosh dang swamp, and we just shot him up. The swamp was marshy, water. You remember? The you remember this place called Susupi Lake Susupi? I don't remember it. It's a swampy area, and what happened is one of the other officers in our battalion, uh, he was a, like a soldier of fortune type of a guy, mm -hmm. and he'd been with the British Eighth Army as an ambulance driver mm -hmm. in North Africa, wow. and, and we just figured, well, he's either going to be a hero, or he's going to get killed, one or the other, and then he got killed. What happened was that that we were, we were at the swamp, and there are a lot of Japanese on the other side, not exposing himself yet. But he's trying to get it. He walked out ahead, tried to get him to expose himself. He thought that he came to surrender. Mm -hmm. And instead, this one guy bent over, he had a machine gun strapped to his back, killed him. Yeah. <clears throat> a lot of guys, a lot of casualties, and and actually, at this point, there's another casualty, and it's a guy by the name of John Murdoch. And this story is 
about as good of a story as I've ever heard (laughs) about the military (laughs) as a whole. (laughs) So here we go. This is around this time, John Murdoch also became a casualty. Hit while landing B Company, hit while leading B Company on a sweep west of the landing strip down toward Sharon Konoa. Yeah, Sharon Konoa. Sharon Konoa. Sharon Konoa. And this is, so this is John Murdoch. Now now it's called, uh, it's really as uh, Shallon, Shallon Kanoa. Okay. See, they they couldn't uh, they couldn't you know they couldn't pronounce the they, R's. They couldn't pronounce yeah. their R's. Yeah. So we call it Sharon Kanoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here's John Murdoch talking. In fact, all of our yeah. all of our uh, past signs had a lot of R's in them. See, and that's where Roger comes from, right? Yeah. Like when we say Roger, it that could be. I was told. That, that, that's, it, that's possible. I hadn't thought of it. That is possible. Yeah, that's the original yeah. usage was that we knew if someone says Roger, you knew it was on, Gu- on Guadalcanal. Murdoch was in there, was was taking taking a piss, and uh, here Japanese come come in, and oh my God! Turned out it was an interior, one of our interpreters. Oh. <laughs> He really had a second take. I don't know why he mentioned that in there. Yeah, no, you you read about it in here. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, So here's Murdoch talking about it when he gets wounded. Yeah. Opposition was very light on the other side of the strip, and when we got down to the end of it, we stopped, and a Sherman tank came up to help us. The tank had a phone in the back, and I was on the phone, and I'm trying to tell the guy inside where I wanted him to shoot at the big smokestack in the sugarcane factory. I figured a Jap was up there spotting for artillery, which was very accurate. Then all of a sudden, boom, shells started falling all around the tank, and I knew the spotter in the smoke stop was telling his guns to fire at us. So I ordered the tank commander, get that smokestack. Then I put the phone back on, and I'm running back to the safety in a hole, and that's when I got hit by shrapnel in the left leg and the right elbow. So I'm sitting there, and the corpsman comes over and starts bandaging my arm, and I look down at him down and my pants are all wet and i said holy shit i pissed my pants and the corpsman said that's not piss that's blood that's when i found out i'd been hit in the leg so i dropped my pants and my drawers and now the corpsman's bandaging up my lead leg and the japs start to shell us again so i jumped and ran to a nearby hole which wasn't easy you know because my pants and my drawers were down around my ankles <laughs> and so see because i haven't read the entire book you know you talk about murdoch and i've mentioned that he was a character and you know obviously you mentioned that he liked to drink and one of the people... Yeah, he, he was an alcoholic at one time. He finally got over it. Yeah. Well, one of the people that I would say, what's that word, aided him in being an alcoholic and somebody he apparently become good friends with because he was a Catholic was the Catholic priest, yeah. Father Joe Keehan. So they were really good friends and they spent a lot of time together. And so uh, as, as he's starting to move towards being leaving the area, there's a guy, John's executive... John's XO, Jim Westerman, appeared on the scene uh-huh. and told and John told Westerman to take over. Yeah. Here, Westy, congratulations. You just made company commander. I'm yeah. getting out of here. <laughs> now, Westerman got hit by the same artillery oh. that I almost got hit, almost got clobbered with. And he, he, he was out of the service after that. He got wow. badly wounded. Wow. And we had 50 casualties, and Westerman was one of them. Well, I was too. So, so this is... Um, Murdoch continuing. Yeah. 
how it goes for him. So I head down for the beach, looking for, an ev- looking for the evacuation team. I wasn't bleeding all that badly, but I was a mess. I could walk, sure, and I walked. I was looking for one particular doctor, Sol Casal, a dentist. Earlier I had seen him on the beach there, now I found him, and I said, Solomon, this is funny. This Solomon, part. my friend, a ticket, please. <laughs> yeah. Because you couldn't get evacuated without a ticket. They had to put a ticket on you. He looked me over. My right hand wasn't any good. I couldn't use it, so Solomon ticketed me. A little while later, I was evacuated in a small boat, and I said to the Navy kid who was driving it, hey, find me APA 51, will you? And he said, sure. We found the ship, and by then, I was lying down, and the guys on the deck called down to me, we'll pick you up in a boom on a stretcher. And I came up in the basket, and I'm all dirty and bloody, and I see our chaplain, Father Joe Keehan, who I'd become very friendly with. Oh, there we are. So when they took me out of the basket and put me on the stretcher on the deck, I closed my eyes and <laughs> pretended I was dead. Yeah. <laughs> Father Joe came over and started giving me my last yeah, rites in the right. church. Yeah. Last rite of the church in Latin. But I can't keep a straight face, so I opened my eyes and smile at him. <laughs> and he goes, you son of a bitch. He goes right from speaking Latin to calling me a son of a bitch. <laughs> then he took me down to the infirmary and they patched me up a bit. Then he took me to his stateroom and put me in his bed. I must have slept all day and all night. I didn't hear a thing. I wasn't feeling any pain. My night, my right hand and arm were numb. When I came to, I didn't know where I was at first. Then I took a shower, changed the bandages, and got cleaned up. That was the end of my war there. My second day on Saipan. My right arm was no good, really. My hand, even today, is no good. Yeah, you know, here, here's the thing. Even mm-hmm. afterwards, when he caught a salute, there's a sum of me down here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, it was the million-dollar wound. <laughs> I don't have any feeling of the right side of my hand. The nerve was cut. It was a million-dollar wound, really, because my thumb and two fingers are good, still good. <laughs> and the next to the last finger, the little finger, we're dead. They're still <laughs> okay, dead. Okay, <laughs> Oh, wow. So I thought that was about as good of a story as I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, dude. character. Character. Um, <clears throat> you know, you know when he when he uh, what happened to him there when he walked barged into this hotel window, and uh, he was drunk, drunk as all get out, of course. Well, anyway, the battalion commander uh, talked to him the, the next day about it, and he uh-huh. says, you know, you. Sh- you should be more like an officer. Like, mm-hmm. You shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. Then he went on to say, then the battalion commander says, well, how, why, who am I to say that? So I'm kind of like that myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got a whole story about him in Hawaii. And then this, this same battalion commander, he was mm-hmm. killed on Bougainville uh-huh. as, he, as they landed. He, they called him, they called him uh, he, well, he, he took over the, one of the, uh, uh, <clears throat> what do you call it, one of the uh, battalions, what do you call them, uh, can't name right now. They had a name for him, right? The equivalent of the, uh, of the, uh, in, in, in England, they had the equivalent of it. And, huh? huh? I, I don't know. I don't know. What was the name for it? You know, that kind of like the, like the. Uh, a reconnaissance battalion? No, 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 no. There'd be a unit that would be the ones that are just like you, a SEAL. See? Oh, a Raider. A Raider. Raider. Battalion. raider. Yeah, he yeah. he yeah. took over the Raider battalion that landed on Bougainville. Okay. And he was killed there. Oh. And then his his comments were, as he died, said, "Well, it's been a short war for me." Yeah. Wow. Well, you um, there's actually another another one of these big situations that happens where there's a battle at sea. Oh yeah, and, in Philippine and, Sea, yeah. Yeah, and Mariana's um, Turkey shoot. Yeah. You know that it's coming. 
You'd seen this before, and he said, we were right. A few days later, we learned that a great battle had indeed been fought in the waters off west of Saipan, yeah. resulting in the decisive victory for the U.S. Navy. Yeah, oh, yeah. With their defeat in the Battle of the Philippine Sea, the Japanese lost all hope of re relieving their forces on Saipan. Now it was up to us, the Marines and the Army, to win the land battle. Did, we call, did I call it the, the Tur Marianas Turkish shoot? Yeah. Yeah. I did right there? Okay. Uh, I don't think you use those words. Well, okay. That's, All right. that's traditionally what it's called. Yeah, that is. That's the same one. Now, that's the reason that uh, this guy, uh, he held on because he thought the Navy could come back and oh, take okay. it back. Now, he, because he surrendered, even after the war, he was not promoted to major. Hmm. And it's terrible. And, uh, and the other thing was, even uh, the other other officer I, that I visited at the same time that, uh, that had fired at us from with his artillery in Guadalcanal, mm -hmm. named by name of Tanny, Akio Tanny, even he badmouthed this, this guy. He says, "Well, he should have he should have even committed Harry Carey even yeah. now." He says, wow. <laughs> that's that's, I, that's, "I just couldn't believe it." You know, they still, attitude, yeah, right? oh yeah. Um, now you guys are kind of pressing through the rest of the island. You say here, my mortar section was always about 200 yards behind our lead elements. Yeah. An outbreak of small arms fire in front of true. us was a signal to stop and set up our weapons. We now, you see now, in, in, the, uh, in that, uh, that movie about uh, Pacific, mm -hmm. now... You mean the, the series, the Pacific? The series, yep. yeah. Here, here they had the 60 millimeter turns right up in the front. And I don't know why the advisor says, hey, you don't do that. Yeah, yeah no. it doesn't make any sense. No. Uh -huh. Um, and also, the whole script was all screwed up. It was all about a guy that was going through a, going through some kind of a psychological thing. And here he's talking. He's talking to the uh, the colonel, the, in charge of the of, of the sick of the uh, hospital mm -hmm. that he's at. You don't do that. You're you're talking to the corpsman, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Hollywood, they don't. They oh, don't. it's terrible because you know they have to. In the real world, everything all spread out. So you know that they take a picture of it. Yeah. So they they had, they had take a picture of something real concentrated. Mm -hmm. You see, and it's not like that at all. Yeah. Still one of my favorite uh, war movies, The Pacific. Yeah. What did you think of it? Well, this the sets were incredible. They were incredible. I, I, I like for instance, I I've been to Peleliu, and uh, good, wonderful, it was wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful set. Uh, the the uh, and uh, let's see what was it there. Um, what was the other place they were? Well, in? they did Guadalcanal. So on Guadalcanal, uh, yeah. Well, all the landings were they were great. Yeah, yeah. they were great. Was that one of see now? Yeah. That, now what other one did they cover besides those two? Okay, I'm thinking primarily the one in Peleliu, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah, I just, uh, the first time I ever watched it, I was riding on an airplane. I had it on my computer. I had headphones yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, I yeah. was watching it really close, and I, I thought that the tension, Oh, the script was horrible. Oh, the script might be horrible. Uh, the combat scenes for me were- They were unbelievable. Were unbelievable. Unbelievable. The, and actually, oh, reading yeah. your book, I was, I was saying, well, they did a great job because one thing that I always said to myself, ah, you know, it's- you know, when, when some of the firefights, the night firefights, it yeah. just flashes and they're like, oh yeah, that's what it's like. There you go. And you captured it in your book. Yeah. You can't really tell what's going on, but yeah. it's bad. Yeah. And they did a great job of capturing that. Now, hopefully this day will die. We'll pick up on this. 
Yeah. You'll see the potential there. Well, absolutely. Hopefully, we'll see. Um, so now you guys are, as you guys are pushing through, you say casualties overall were relatively light. Yes, they were at that time. Um, well, the thing is, you know, this ran for, well, almost a month. So, yeah, it dragged out, but casualties were kept coming in, of course. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you say, meanwhile, off to our right on the other side of the mountain, the 27th Division had run into a meat grinder. The sure army had. was attacking on a plateau, a plateau bordered on its left by a sheer cliff that formed the east face uh -huh. of the mountain. Yeah. Called Purple Heart Purple Ridge. Purple Heart Ridge, yeah. Yeah. And they were held up. And so uh, uh, Holland Matt Smith, he just, he got rid of their, their general. And uh, <clears throat> the army and National Guard troops, they, they, they never really got over it. That mm -hmm. was unfair. You shouldn't mm -hmm. have done that. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they did run into some terrible things down there. They were catching from the flank, you know, mm -hmm. real bad. Yeah. You, and here, I was up, I was up way inland further, and I could look down. I see what they're up against. Uh, here, speaking of friendly forces or friendly fire incidents, here you were. I was resting on one knee next to a tree, holding my carbine upright when, with go. a butt plate to the ground when suddenly wham, 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 three big shells exploded yeah, over our position. Yeah, millimeter. Long term, long toms, long range. The shells they came were, not uh, from Japanese artillery, but from a battery of Army Our battalion execs didn't believe that we were that far forward. So he did it. I found out later, the Westerman told me about it. Mm -hmm. He's the one that called it in short. Um, he <laughs> and it was horrible. Oh, it was I mean, awful. It was devastating. Oh, my gosh. So, so many guys were just pulverized. We didn't know what had hit us. Most of us did not hear the shells coming. No one no, shouted no, warnings. Didn't know. No one ducked for cover. No. One of the shells burst in the tree above me, deflecting the force of the blast, and most of the shrapnel outward and set us straight down. That's right. what saved my life. A single piece of metal pierced my elbow. Yeah. The wound was larger than a bullet hole, about an inch in diameter, and it hurt like hell, but it didn't look serious. Yeah. It hardly bled. Yeah. And the bone didn't seem damaged. Didn't Still, hit the bone. That's the main thing. Yeah. Still, the wound needed treatment. A few minutes later, several hospital jeeps converged on the scene, and I talked over one of them. On the way, just 50 yards from me, I passed a large crater containing the remains of several men from Weapons Platoon who had been yeah. playing blackjack when the shell hit their position. They had literally, literally been blown to bits. Several of those men had been my friends since Samoa. I had served in their unit before being commissioned. I could identify only one of them and only by glasses. the glasses. Yeah. Yeah, his name was Costinson. Mm. Uh, in fact, I have a picture of him too, uh, somewhere here. A few yards further on, a dead Marine lay in a hole beneath a coral outcropping yeah. where I had spent the yeah. previous night. He too yeah. had been killed by the Army's misdirected salvo. The same shell that oh, killed he the was. blackjack. Yeah, he was. Yeah. yeah. The same sh shell that killed the blackjack players wounded Dick Stein then a member of Weapons Platoon. He doesn't remember the explosion or anything else about the day. One moment I'm standing on the ground with the guys in the Weapons Platoon, and the next thing I know, I'm waking up in a tent there in the field hospital, and it's around midnight. It's just a concussion in his <laughs> case. He just, oh, why am I here? <laughs> so he just takes off. <laughs> uh, he could man. still be alive. I think he's, he's in a rest home now, I think. <laughs> all in all, the shells from the 155s killed or wounded more than 50 Marines. Yeah. Yeah, Man. yeah. Now the fellow wrote wrote a book. Uh, we came to uh, win or be, or be killed or to die, and he got hit. He was he, he retired as a colonel, by mm -hmm. the way. And uh, anyway, he got hit by the same same rounds. Uh, 
and to put him out. He he got he got medical medical uh, uh, retirement. Devastating. Now, so, no, not only that, uh, he, he one of his very closest friends. Turns out he was my company commander at at this particular time, and uh, Seltzer. His name was Seltzer. He'd been a professional dancer, and he got he got hit by by a large round on 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 uh, Tinian, and then I then I took over took mm-hmm. over. I was an exec. Took over, and uh, he went he went to the hospital in Guadalcanal. He killed himself because he didn't want to live with without one leg, because he's a professional dancer. Man, and I don't I don't think that this fellow wrote the book. He realized he, he he writes in the book he was despondent. He didn't mention he didn't never mention he killed himself. Mm. I talked to the guy that wrote the book. He didn't really know any others. Well, he did. I, I know what a coincidence. I dated a gal one time. She was a she was a uh, uh, receptionist. For Royal William Morris Agency, mm-hmm. and they, they represent a lot of the big people, Leonard Turner and all of those. Well, anyway, uh, she—I uh, was invited to their Christmas party, and this was in '44, William Morris Agency. And as they came in, she told me who it was so on Monty Woolley and so on. As they all came in, and then I ended up—I I dated her a couple of times, mm-hmm. and one time. Uh, we were in this uh, this uh, big place, well-known place, can't think of the name now. But anyway, others had just returned. It's about a month after I had from from the Marianas. Mm-hmm. I said, "How did he? How did so and so make out?" And they said, "Oh, you didn't know? He killed himself." My girlfriend says, "I knew that. We were close friends with his family. We used to play bridge together. Mm. What a small world! That's crazy. Isn't that incredible?" Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So, at this point, you're wounded. Yeah, yeah. And you go back to the aid station. Yeah. And then late on the 7th of July, my third day in the field hospital, doctors and corpsmen went through the wards, yeah. wards telling all the walking, all walking wounded, wounded to return be sent back up to the units. Because we had to mop up and there were they thousands They told us the thousands, Japanese had lost a big more. bonsai attack. There were still thousands up there hiding, waiting. Ready to either kill themselves or make one last bonsai charge, and her I had walked right through where 40 were killed that 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 the last night of the mop up. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? And then this guy, he was in, these were his men, and I when I uh, I found out his track his track and my track. Crossed. Okay. I found out on that, and so when I went to, I wanted to talk to him. Sure enough, she says, "Yeah, I was there." I said, "Were you the one that was saying bonsai and all that?" No, that was another guy. <laughs> so here, and then, then he, and then the guy wrote a book about him. I have the copy of the book. It's called the called the last the last samurai, by by Jones. Mm-hmm. And I helped I helped uh, the uh, review of the book before he published it. Well, so. Um, uh, ended up, uh, he was invited uh, by the author to attend our reunion in Florida. And when he did, when he came, he and his wife came, and some of our guys treated him terribly. Mm-hmm. They could not believe this guy could have done what he did, as far as giving him such a bad time, being up there right up until after the war. Mm-hmm. 
And I tried, I tried to calm things down. I had a heck of time. There's an article. There's an article. Look at this article right here. It tells about it. Look at this. Look at this article. I think I have it in here. Let me think. Uh, no, I guess I don't have it here. Let me think. Yeah, here's the article. I know. No, I guess I don't have No, wait a minute. No, that's not it either. Darn it. Uh, by the way, here's a picture of this guy. I showed you that. There's a picture of this guy that I'm mm -hmm. interviewing. And this is the other guy that fired, was known as Pistol Pete. He's the one that did most of the shooting at us. Mm -hmm. He had a 105 long, uh, long range rifle. He had four of them. Mm -hmm. And two, and one was on Guadalcanal, and he, we, we went to it. That's, I have a picture in my book with him standing at it. And uh, he became a major. His his father had been a general, uh, in a, at a uh, kind of like our like West Point, mm -hmm. but for senior officers to come to. Mm -hmm. And one of these officers was the prince. He was a lieutenant general, became a lieutenant general, and he was one of the ones standing on the Missouri at the surrender. Oh, wow. That was the one of his students, his father's students. Wow. Amazing, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, this is what the bonsai look like here. You see that? Here we're, we buried those bodies. We dragged them into the ditch. And we buried probably 4,000 bodies like that. Wow. And, yeah. and they're, now they're homes all through here. Yeah, for so they're still there. They're still there only about four feet down. And then, then, there's, then there's a beautiful new hotels right along the beach, just across the road from that. And you were probably told about that when you were there. I don't know. I, it's a place called a place called Tanapeg. Uh, I don't. Tanapeg and also a place called San Roque. Yeah. So for people that are just listening, these are just images of this this massive attack. Now what had that happened was, we uh, we fired in uh, our Eleventh uh, Marines artillery, fired in at them as they were charging, and so their bodies are all chewed up. Mm. Oh, shoot up. You, you go into some pretty good detail about the about that bonsai attack, about this, the, about the H oh, battery and detail. all that stuff. Yeah, you do. That a great is the job. best you'll find anywhere. And in fact, that's the reason I had to review it in detail because I had some doubt about it, and I said, "Well, it looks like in general he's okay. He's mm -hmm. he's said it right. There's nobody else can talk about it to that detail. Yeah. Nobody can. Yeah, no, it's a great account. Oh, firsthand. Yeah." Now, I did go to a reunion of those people in that battalion back in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And uh, so th this guy was there, and he was one of the ones that we interviewed, of course, for this. Yeah. And then, yeah, so Ed, if you want some account of just incredible oh. fortitude, oh. you got to read this book. And, oh. and then it picks up where you, what you were just talking about, this is when you go now to do sort of the um sort of the cleanup and yeah. and you say this many of the bodies were unrecognizable yeah and um one of the guys sandy and the others had to reach into the bloody remains for dog tags that would identify uh -huh. their friends discovering yeah. which one of their friends there were 700 of our own people were killed most of them soldiers it went right through them you say that this bonsai, this bonsai resulted in, um, as near as I can determine from what I saw and what I've read, the Japanese lost upward of 4,000 yeah. men 
Some 500 Americans were killed, most of them from the Army, the two battalions that were overrun and nearly wiped out. H Battery suffered 152 casualties in the attack, yeah, 75 killed and 76 wounded. They got completely overrun. It's estimated that some 600 Japanese were killed on the open ground directly in front of the battery's guns. Yeah, yeah. Man. You're, you were pushing up... Um, Again, this is another another thing that you passed through. We passed through their positions and deployed to skirmish lines, extending yeah. the water's edge and the railroad tracks. Yeah, the six through. Marines advancing yeah. along the on along the shore on the eighth along the right. We were along the road. Yeah. Thus arrayed, we picked our way slowly through the battle zone, our weapons at the ready. All around the dead were thick on the ground in numbers that defied comprehension. Bodies and pieces of bodies everywhere. Artillery had pounded the area and chopped up the bodies, turning the battlefield into an immense open-air abattoir strewn with torsos and limbs and heads and chunks of unidentifiable flesh burned black by fire. I could recreate the flow. I could recreate the flow and ferocity of the battle, the patterns of the fight and flight by the numbers and positioning of the dead. There would be places, pockets of resistance where bodies were piled on top of bodies, dead Japanese entangled with dead Americans, frozen in attitudes of hand-to-hand combat, clutching each other, plunging bayonets into each other, locked in their death struggles. Our machine gun positions were tableaus of butchery, with bodies of the Japanese heaped in front of positions and bodies of American soldiers slumped over their guns. For men who didn't want to be there, the U.S. Army soldiers there were had a lot put of our up draftees, a hell of a fight. A lot of draftees there, too. Yeah. Not all the Japanese were dead, of course. As usual, some were sham shamming yeah we knew this would be the case and we very quickly and we we're very quick on our triggers if we saw any movement if one of those bodies so much as twitched we pour fire we'd pour fire into it even if we didn't see movement if a body or a group of bodies looked suspicious we shot it through and through bushes big enough to provide concealment were preemptively blasted into wood chips and leaf bits now and then as we advanced across the battlefield a dead body rose suddenly to throw a grenade or shoot at us. Some Japanese jumped to their feet and tried to run away. We shot them all, just shot them all right down. No prisoners were taken. We moved forward at a steady pace, hardly breaking a stride, rarely halting. We just kept walking through the killing ground, looking around, scrutinizing the bodies, firing at the Japanese. Our company the killed probably a hundred, probably at least a hundred. And we, 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 we had only a couple of wounders all we had in that process. <clears throat> Yeah. That was the largest of the war. That was what? That was the largest bonsai counterattack of the war. Man. See, they were given no objective. Just keep going, keep going, and kill as many of us as possible until, until they themselves lost their life. Mm. And, and the, two, uh, the two commanders, they, they committed Harry Carey mm-hmm. before it started, and one was the one, Nagumu, was the one that led the attack on Pearl Harbor. Nagumu. And then we finally get to the last campaign. A little a little over three miles south of Saipan, Santinian. Twelve miles long, six miles across at its widest point. And this was your... Oh, this is really something, too. <clears throat> that first night. Um... 1-8 landed late that afternoon. Yeah. The second division unit involved, the only the only second division unit involved in the J-Day operations. The regiment quickly established a reserve position behind the beachhead's perimeter, digging in and stringing barbed wire in anticipation of enemy counterattack. All moving around the perimeter Only ceased. a 200 mile, 200 
200 foot, uh, no, 200 yard mm -hmm. wide uh, beach. They had no idea they were going to be up there. They thought we were going to land down down near the main town, which was called, uh, uh, well, now it's called San Jose. But you guys fainted. You could, there was a fake. We did a fake, right. but you know, we had a battleship hit, hit. It was a lot of damage and, and lost lives from counter, counter fire, counter battery fire. This was for me and many other second division Marines, the fourth combat operation in just 18 months. The three previous, Guadalcanal, Tarawa, and Saipan had all been difficult, each in its own way, taking an enormous physical and emotional toll on all the survivors. Most of us had been wounded at least once. All of us had been sick. Um, now, somewhere you're gonna to get to the point where, where we had to, uh, at night, go over and, hit, and head off the Japanese that were attacking our artillery in the, in the rear. If you don't you know, see, I'll tell you about it if you don't yeah, see Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, right. the thing that's interesting about this is, I mean, just you guys having been through everything that you'd been through at this point. I mean, the, the mentality going into this, you know, you say here, the Air Force could have dropped bushels of Purple Hearts on our frontline units and every Marine who grabbed one would have deserved it. Okay, now the top, the, the uh, napalm was dropped for yes. the first time in the war on on, on Tinian before we before we landed. Yeah, you said you said the the aircraft used napalm bombs, something yeah. new to us. We watched in amazement as the bombs fell earthward, tumbling end over end, and exploded on a ridge that instantly erupted in flames and oily smoke along its entire length. About ten seconds later, a gust of hot air from the ledge blew us over. Next day, 1st Battalion elements moved up on the ridge and poked around the scorched landscape. Most of the undergrowth had been burned away. The ground was black and reeked of gasoline, and the foxholes were filled with the corpses of Japanese soldiers blackened and shriveled by the incinerating fires. Yeah, first use of napalm. Uh, what was the other section that you were talking about? Okay, right at the tail end, the day the island was secured, August 2nd. <clears throat> Here I'm, I'm. I'm company commander. We reach. We reach the uh, the next. The, the, the last. The beach. You know, looking down over the cliff. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I, when we return there, when they're in in uh, March of this year, we looked from the south side of that beach where the civilians all jumped and killed themselves, and looked at, looked up across, and my company was spread from about halfway up. Clear to that point, and uh, we had we had a, we had boats go out with a bullhorn to firm the surrender, and we gave them an ultimatum. They didn't, so then we fired our machine guns and mortars at them, mm -hmm. and they all they all they all jumped off off the point, this side of it, and uh, hundreds of them jumped off to their deaths. And then that night, we were spread out so long, so so thinly, we decided. I talked to my uh, my my company exec of that time. And what should we do? Well, I guess we're going to have to have strong points figure whether they're likely to come through. Mm -hmm. That's what we did, and we lucked out. They tried to come through, right at strong points. So, we'll let, we, but anyway, these uh, the uh, then we had to send people down and try to get them out of the caves down below us. There are a lot of civilians in there. So were the civilians that were there? Were they staying with the? Were they the? No, they're by themselves. Families they're, they're, of the soldiers. Yeah, there though? were families and whatnot. They were in there. They were in the same cave. Some soldiers with them. Yeah. Yeah, and eventually you say here the Japanese. I mean, and again, this we're, we're jumping through all kinds of, you know, just crazy combat, 
and then you get to a point where the Japanese had no no more fight left in them. They were ready to die. Yeah. If not yet, call it quits. For the most part, they went oh, over. Okay, then what happened? You see, when I, when I told you, right after we landed the first night, mm-hmm. and here we got, here we got, we got a, uh, we got, got a message that our artillery was being, uh, being overrun by our, our, the Japanese. And so we had, here's after dark, mm-hmm. and probably around midnight, and here we, uh, here as a battalion, I was a company exec, and I, t- I took up two or maybe two platoons, and we went single file to, to form a line of skirmishers in mm-hmm. front of the uh, artillery. Well, that's very dangerous yeah, because any, were, anybody walking around is going to get going yeah. to get the enemy, you know. Right. Well, then when when morning came, here there were all kinds of shell holes out there, and there was Japanese in them. Mm-hmm. And here we had to, our line of skirmishers had to go forward. Oh, this is going to be horrible. They're in foxhole. They're in holes, and we're not. Not a one of them shot at us as we came up very close within less than 100 feet or so. Mm-hmm. They just put a hand grenade, she'll kill themselves. Bang, bang, 100 of them killed themselves as we walked forward. And we only had a couple of men wounded, that's all we had. Wow. And why they didn't shoot back, I don't mm-hmm. understand. Well, all they were given orders. Mm-hmm. Now it's the time to come in here and carry. <laughs> wow. What a relief. What yeah. a relief. So going back to the book here, and again, I'm jumping through some incredible stories, but Tinian was declared secure on 1 August. 1st Battalion pulled back about a mile from the coast and set up camp. The end of the fighting was very abrupt. Suddenly we didn't have anything to do. There was no enemy activity in the immediate area. No danger, no shooting. I just sat back and tried to enjoy the situation. That, this wasn't as easy as you might think. I was exhausted and filled with a lingering dread, a sense that I'd used up all my lives. Yeah. I had, I had been become conditioned to wondering whether I was going to survive another day. And then all of a sudden, all the causes for concern had vanished, as though I had been given a reprieve from a death sentence. I could hardly believe it. A strange feeling. I didn't have long to dwell on it. A few days later, I received orders to return to the States. Yeah. 32 months after leaving San Diego, I was going home. Yeah. Yeah. Three weeks later at Pearl Harbor, where I'd been marking time in the transit center, I boarded a giant Martin Mars flying boat for the final in, leg of the journey. Incredible flight that was! Oh my gosh! <laughs> wow, landed in what do you call that place? I can't think right now. In in Berkeley. Was it like Alameda Oakland. or something? Alameda. Alameda. Alameda Naval Air Station. Everyone on board, servicemen from every branch returning home, watched in utter silence as the Golden Gate Bridge passed beneath us. I reported to a marine facility and was granted 32-day furlough, one for every month of overseas duty. Later that day, I visited a barbershop. While I was sitting in the chair, one of the patrons began bitching about the terrible state of things in the country. I listened to him for a while, and then I exploded. You don't know what terrible is, I told him. He shut up after that. Then I talk about the woman ran into the what? The woman I ran into. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bus, uh, the bus driver. Got picked up. That was your first time <laughs> seeing a female Marine? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, because they brought the women in, now they could form a sixth division. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, but taking all the men that had clerical type works, take them out. Right. Put them in combat. Right. Uh, this is the, the thing that's crazy for me to think about here is, you know, you just have one line that says the war wasn't over, right? And this is 1944, the war wasn't over. And as you talked about earlier, the thought was that 
you know, America was going to have to invade every oh, yeah. island until oh, yeah. you got right into Tokyo. Oh yeah. And yeah. since you had seen the 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 how how steadfast the Japanese were, you all just thought, yeah, I might be home for a year, but I'll be back over there as a yeah. as a battalion executive officer and a battalion officer or whatever. Yeah, all, all my friends that came back and they ended back up preparing preparing for that. So about a year you spend at Quantico at the basic school yeah, yeah. teaching the young Marines. That and and uh, the first what's called PCS platoon commander school. I went through the first as a captain, and then I went through orientation class because I became an instructor. You see. Okay, so they sent you through a school they sent to be school. a platoon commander, even though you'd already been a company commander in combat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, I had to learn that, the academics of it. Yeah. Basically, and. Wow. And, and then, then, then uh, now as company commander, then the next time I'm company commander the, at the basic school. And here I have, I have a platoon of, uh, of second lieutenants, just recent graduates from Naval Academy, mm -hmm. and a platoon of senior NCOs. And none of them wanted to continue. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to retire at their rank, you know. Yeah. They weren't going to be back to a second lieutenant. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never forget, when the first things I had to do was give him a lecture on formal guard mount. And I'd never been to a formal guard mount. <laughs> and I told him, I told these guys, I said, I, I never, I've been in combat most of this time, I've never been to a formal guard mount. So, so I, I had a felt presentation to move the felt around, you know. <laughs> they didn't give me a bad time, they'd all, they'd all been through it, you know, but I never, never had been through it. Yeah. You know, and I, t I told the major about it, and he said, he told me, he said, you figure it out, you figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, here we go on August 15th after a night of devastating bombing raids bombing raids on eight Japanese cities the Japanese announced their intention for surrender yeah for Americans and most of the and this is after obviously the bomb uh, yeah you know um, for yeah. Americans and the rest of the world the announcement signaled the end of World War II even though the formal surrender didn't take place until 2nd, 2nd of September a few weeks later our classes were terminated and orders were cut by thousands to release men from active duty I was asked whether I wanted to stay on and take a regular commission in the Marine Corps. I was tempted. I had started as a private, made it all the way up to captain at age 24. No small achievement. And there was the potential for further advancement in the post-war Corps. At first, I said yes and signed my, uh, the requisite papers. But after sleeping on it, I changed my mind. The next day, I withdrew my papers. Shortly thereafter, I was released from active duty. I bought a 1940 Chrysler convertible. Yeah. And in October, I drove across country to Spokane. Yeah, yeah. A five-day journey. Yeah. Then, then, then I went to work after, after going through college. I went to work for North American Aviation. And uh, there, I was there for six years. Uh -huh. And then Lockheed, I was there for 23 years. And I, I was on primarily on uh, uh, the uh, exploration of space, you know. Mm -hmm. I, was on, I was involved with the first, the first flights to Mars and the first flyby. It was a failure. We provided the, we provided the vehicle that did the injection, took okay. it to it, and it was going to as it flew by and then take pictures of it as it flew by. Well, and also provided the shroud that protected it getting out of the atmosphere. Well, the shroud outgassed and blew up, mm. and here I had to take a technician down to JPL who would provide the spacecraft, and uh, and they and then I had to take down a half of a shroud, and they put it in temperature altitude chamber, and it did blow up. And I had to go back and tell our engineering people, hey, it did blow up. And they said, oh, no, it couldn't 
They're just, they just convinced you it did. And no, it did blow up. Yeah. So then we had to work like the next, the next, launch, next launch window was just a matter of a couple months later. Yeah. So we built a different kind of different construction and it made it. And from then on, I was involved in all kinds. I was involved with, with the, when they took pictures of the moon, mm-hmm. uh, where they, uh, Boeing provided space gap, we provided the means of getting there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then astronauts, when they prepared to land the moon, well, they were, they were practice mating with, with our spacecraft. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and one, time, one time, and then I became, the, I became the president of the management association, about 3,000 members. And one time we had, we had uh, what's his name, uh, the first on the moon? Uh, Armstrong, Neil Armstrong. Mm-hmm. He spoke to us. And I asked him a question. We had about 700 people in attendance. Mm-hmm. I asked him a question. He says, sometimes you look up there at nighttime and you have to kind of pinch yourself. I was really there. Can you imagine, can you imagine what his answer was? I have no idea. His answer was, I've learned to live with it. That <laughs> 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 just brought down the house. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, gee. And then what? You, when did you get married? When did you have kids uh, along the way? That was in... Uh, that was in uh, um, just a minute here. Uh, 40, uh, 47. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, huh. this, this book is just, like I said, I've read a fraction of it, probably read less than 10% of it tonight. The, the, the amount of information, the amount of detail, the stories are just Okay, now this other one, this yeah. other one, you get that one, and it's entirely different. See, this is this is based on interviews primarily, right. and this is uh, based on some talking to people, but mostly t- I'm talking to the natives, I'm talking to the Japanese, uh, I'm describing what the, what it's like now, mm-hmm. what the landscape is like, all the debris lying around. So it's almost like this book should have been written first, and uh, that one should have been written second. Well, I don't know. You see, see the thing is, this is too broad. Whereas this is getting done detailed in detail with the people, yeah. you see, and, and I, that's mentioned in 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 the uh, in the prologue, yeah, yeah, or the forward, in the forward, yeah, in the forward. That's where it's mentioned. That's the reason it's different, entirely different. And I didn't even intend to write this, but uh, I got you know here I had all of these all these tapes, and not only that, a little 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 tape recorder, and the one Japanese I ran to Akiyotani, he was doing the same thing. So anything I sent, he was recording, and I'm and so on. And so that's when I decided, okay, that was in 82. Then 85, well, in 83, I took a group out as a mm-hmm. tour guide. Then 85, I went, I went to Japan and went on Space A. And uh, so here I interviewed him. And that was, that was really interesting, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. This guy, this guy, Tani, he drove me all over the place. We had Yasukuni Shrine and the, you know, the uh, Empress Palace and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And... Uh, just a lot, and then went went into a, a, a TV studio and all that kind of stuff. It was incredible. And then he then he pointed out, you know, the, the thing was so firebombed, you know, mm-hmm. and well, this is all new, all new. But then everybody's so friendly to me, you know, I just mm-hmm. couldn't believe it. Wow. Yeah. And then well, he built he built a he built a a battleship. This uh, that was a Japanese battleship that had that shelled Guadalcanal. He, and he made it, he, and it, it would, uh, it was radio controlled, and it would, fly, it, would, it would fire from the guns with a photo flash, flash oh, out. Wow. <laughs> and, I, and he had it in his garage, 
and it was eight foot long. It was the same size as the actual drawings of the of the uh, of the battleship. Wow! So he made it the same size. Okay, and and uh, now he uh, he came down with cancer, and we we we, we corresponded for about fifteen years, mm -hmm. and uh, so then he wondered. Here he had this thing. What should I do? It says, well. Uh, you know, there's there's a museum back in Kalamazoo, uh, Guadalcanal Veterans, and he did. He sent it back there, and it's in the museum now. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. I have a I have a picture of it in my, in my book here somewhere. Wow. And, well, and then and here I have a lot of a lot of little cartoons he drew. I said, what happened here? <laughs> and so he draw he drew it out. This is this is what happened, or he'd send me something about here. Uh, here he is just starving there, and now here he's dreaming of a meal that later on he will had. <laughs> stuff like that. It's just incredible. Well, this yeah. stuff is is uh, amazing. These the, this book is is like I said, this book is amazing. Well, that's thanks to my co-author. He know he know how to craft it. All I did was, hey, yeah, this is correct. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but there's more of this. There's a little more here and this and that. The well, main the main ones on Saipan. I just. I had some doubts because he had, he did believe in some conspiracy theories about other things. Mm -hmm. That's the reason I'm a little concerned. But, it, but overall, it was okay. It was good. Well, it's a like I said, it's an incredible book to read. I know I've had you here for just about four hours talking, <laughs> but I wanted to I wanted to kind of close out with one last thing, one last section of the book. And you already kind of mentioned it a little bit, but the way it's written is just a. Just such a, a fitting close to well, this. Well, this is about the guy that lost his life. Yeah, and so it says this yeah. on October on on twenty two November nineteen ninety three, the fiftieth anniversary of the Battle for Tarawa. I attended this a ceremony in Yonkers, New York, to there you rededicate. There you go, Anthony O'Boyle Memorial Park. Yeah. yeah, in the name of the fallen private from my platoon. He was well known there in that town. Also attending were Anthony's good friends and foxhole buddies. Yeah. Bill Crumpacker, say yeah. that right? Yeah, he was with us. And Dick Stein. Yeah. Our company commander, John Murdoch. John Murdoch, yeah. And several other Tarawa vet veterans. Yeah, yeah. As well as a member, as a number of high-ranking Marines, including Lieutenant John General John J. Sheehan. You probably heard of him, haven't you? Yep. Yeah. Then a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah. It was a cold, gray day with an icy wind blowing off the Hudson River. Yeah. Quite a contrast to the tropical heat and brilliant sunlight on Beggio when Anthony had met his end. Yeah. yeah. Shot in the head while peering over the seawall on Red Beach too. Anthony had fallen back into John Murdoch's arms, still alive but unconscious, his body twitching, his eyes open but empty. John held him for a brief time, spoke to him, and then set him aside on the beach among the bodies of other slain Marines where he died a few minutes later. All the solemnities appropriate to the occasion were observed. All the rites were performed. The colors were trooped. Speeches were given. Music yeah. was played. Prayers were offered. We sang the national anthem, the marine hymn, and amazing grace. There was a presentation of military testimonials proclamations were made. John Murdoch gave a talk about Anthony, then presented Anthony's brother with the Purple Heart, a fitting gesture from a man who comforted Anthony in his final moments of his life. An honor guard fired a 21-gun salute. Taps was played. 
We all wept. Our tears were shed in both sorrow and joy. There was cause for both. Anthony's life had been short, his dying hard, his glory everlasting. There was no bitterness, no disillusionment, no anger. His life had mattered, his death also. And we remembered both and knew that both had meaning and purpose. The biographical sketch in the program for the ceremony expressed the feelings well in this regard and serves as a fitting epitaph for every Marine in the Second World War. And here's what it read. If the world had been different, if he had been born at another time, Anthony, with his sunshine smile, could have married, raised a family, had grandchildren, and lived a quiet, typically traditional American life. But the early 1940s were not normal times. A fascist dictator threatened to conquer Europe and forge an alliance with the militarists who controlled the Japanese government. In their distorted plan for world domination, an unprepared and unsuspecting United States became a primary target. The American people were shocked into action by the Sunday morning arrival of Japanese bombers over Oahu. Like hundreds of thousands of other young Americans, Anthony felt compelled to volunteer to serve his country. He simply could not stand aside while America was under attack. Anthony gave his life on Tarawa for his country, his corps, and for his fellow Marines. He was not a famous hero mourned by millions, extolled in the press, immoralized in magazine articles or books. He was no one special, just another Marine private first class. The American people should thank God eternally for Anthony and his fellow Marines, soldiers, seamen, and airmen who preserved and won a magnificent victory over a wickedly evil enemy. Semper Fi, brother. You are not forgotten. And with that, Dean Ladd has left the building. Yes. And actually, who has joined us in the building? Looks like Jason Gardner. <laughs> Jason Gardner is randomly. We are in Spokane, Washington. Spokane? Spokane. 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 And since you originally linked me up with um, with Dean Ladd, on a, you were on a random flight somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you saw, what was he, just wearing like a Marine Corps hat? Sure, he's wearing a, a Marine Corps hat, <laughs> sitting there, and I struck up a conversation with him, and then the next thing you know, he's like, oh, yeah, I was at Guadalcanal yeah. in Tarawa. And I yeah. was like, holy cow, and he goes, I wrote a book about it. And yeah. I go, you got to be kidding me. It's awesome. Just so cool. Sending you texts from the flight. Yeah, and the, it's so funny because you and I were just standing out there talking to him. And you know how you get, you know, you and I are used to hearing uh, all of our friends say like, Oh, when I was in Baghdad or when I was in Marja or when I was in wherever, when I was in Ramadi and we were just sitting out there and he's like, well, you know, when I was in Saipan, I was like, that's so, <laughs> so much better, yeah. so much cooler than we are. Dang it. And that is the most ridiculous 
what those guys went through is completely ridiculous. And I know, I mean, I've since, you know, with the old breed is kind of the stand, the, the, the way that I learned like what those guys went through. Sledge, Eugene Sledge. But this book is just right, right there with it, man. It's mm-hmm. right there with it. And you're just getting gut shot while you're 500 meters from the beach at Tarawa. Yep. You, there's no way you're going to live, and yet you live. And then, and then guess what? You go to Hawaii for six months, and then you're hitting the beaches of Saipan. And then you barely survive that, and then guess what? You're hitting the beaches of Tinian. And by the way, all of this is after you were at Guadalcanal. Crazy. It's completely insane. And by the way, when he got back, he got back in forty August of 44. When he gets back, he has like 32 days leave one day for every month that he was overseas. <laughs> and, then, and then he's like, none of those guys thought the war was gonna end. They just got done literally killing every single Japanese except for 17 on an island. They all fought to the death. And then they think, okay, there's however many millions left in Japan, yeah. and we're gonna have to go kill them all. We're gonna have to kill every single one of those people. That's what they were thinking. So he was thinking, cool, I'm gonna be on shore duty back here training Marines for a year, and then I'll be going back overseas as a, as a company commander or as a battalion XO or whatever. Totally nuts. They came up with a bomb that ruined a perfectly good war is what I heard somebody say on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, uh, that was Jim Kunkel said that. Yeah. Good. So anyways, a, it's, uh, it's so awesome that, first of all, that you met him. It's awesome that, I mean, it's, it's just amazing to be able to sit here and talk to these guys. And one of the reasons that we're able to do this is because of the support that is given to us from you, the listener. Sure. And what we've tried to do is set something up where you can support not only this podcast so that we can continue to go around and talk to the Dean lads of the world and capture their story. But also, while you're doing that, you can support yourself. Yes, while you're on the path. It's a mutually supporting scenario. scenario. Yes, sir. Which is a good thing. So, on the path, what's the, the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, in my opinion? Jiu-Jitsu. So, when you do Jiu-Jitsu, you need a gi, you get an... Origin, origin gi, yeah, hundred percent. That was a common question when we started this. Hey, I'm starting jujitsu. Good, of course, that's good. What gi should I get? Common question. Easy now. Answer is easy now. You know what? If it wasn't for that question, we wouldn't even be connected to origin gi. It was that question and me telling people to buy origin gis, even though I didn't wasn't connected with them yet. Yeah, dang. So that's pretty cool to think about. So gis, rash guards. guards, yeah. What are, you, what are you wearing on your legs right now, by the way? Ooh. Like right so, now. Some American denim origin <laughs> jeans. What are you, you two, Jason Gardner? Oh, hey. we're three for three <laughs> right three here. Three. Oh, yeah. Things are awesome. Yeah. yeah. Every are. time I wash them, they get better. They get better. <laughs> They're so nice. And you know what is coming out right now? The Delta 68 jeans, which are named after the Mekong Delta, which yeah. is where our forefathers served in Vietnam and where our forefathers and the SEAL teams wore blue jeans because they were tougher and way cooler. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're like lightweight though. So anyways, jeans, uh, you can get those there too. T-shirts, shirts. sweatshirts. Supplements. Yes. Keep you in on your game and on the path. Mm-hmm. Big time. Milk, extra protein in the form of, of a dessert. 
Joint warfare or is and it dessert in the form of extra protein? Because I'm kind of thinking it's dessert in the form of extra protein. Actually, I, I utilized that combo the other night. It was like, it was strange. Here's the thing I had some pumpkin pie with it, though. I had a thing of pumpkin pie. That is that is a violation? Dessert, dude. Yes, it was a, a dessert for the pumpkin pie. It's like a dessert for the dessert. Somebody asked me if we're going to make pumpkin spice. Uh, milk. What, like seasonal or just, seasonal? Yeah, Even if it's sure, the whole idea it. of it was wrong. No, man, no. do it. Because that reminds me it. of pumpkin pumpkin spice latte, which I know is like a thing, a thing. for mm-hmm. yeah. people yeah. with like uh, weird uh, uh, hipsters. Hipsters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hipsters. Hey, man. Still, well, are you a pumpkin? You're giving me a look over I, there. No, I was just thinking about. Uh, you know, as long as there's a, enough fat with what you're eating, that dessert, it's going to blunt your insulin response. So you're okay. <laughs> Fire it up, dude. Jason Gardner is over here. Come uh, He's got you covered. You know, uh, right there. Being critical on my biochemistry over here. All right. Cool, man. Hey, thank you. I'm going to talk to you more about that later. If you want to drink something uh, for some energy, we'll call it. Sure. Yeah. If you want to drink some, you can try some discipline. Some discipline go, some discipline powder. And right now, I'm completely on this kick of the Jocko Palmer, which is the best thing I've ever made. So the discipline go, you know, the energy drink, the cans, is that discipline go or just go? It's like discipline, I, well, right? It, is, it says discipline in small go. letters, but it's go, I guess. Yeah, so it's discipline go, but it's the this in is where, energy. This is where form. some big marketing person <laughs> is going to be like, "Hey, you need to rethink your marketing plan no, because but, it's like, uh, no, uh, I don't care." <laughs> Stop. See him channeling uh, BTF. Tony yeah, I was gonna say my advi- my marketing advisor is Tony. Yeah, yeah, makes <laughs> He's sense. He's like, no, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Either way, that in the form of an energy drink, those I've been on, I've been uh, like, so I don't want to say addicted. I'm not gonna use that word. I won't use that word for you. But my wife the other day goes, Man. "Hey, darling." How many is too many of those things to drink in a day? And I'm like, probably four. And she's like, oh. Okay, and I'm like, how many you been drinking a day? And she goes, well, at least three every day. Yeah, she want to know if she meets the threshold Anyways, right there. Joint warfare, don't forget about that. Yes, Girl oil. that'll keep you in the game big time. Mulk, we already did. Oh, and then warrior kid mulk for the little kids. So instead of feeding your kid actual poison, yeah, actual poison, mm-hmm. which is what uh, normal chocolate milk and strawberry milk is, it's poison for your child. You might as well just give them strychnine. Is that what it's called? <laughs> Dang, yeah, just give them, just give them strychnine. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, all right. There you so go. get the warrior kid. Get some, get some tea too. Winter's coming. Get that little, yeah. get that little Jocko white that tea. Jocko white tea. Yeah, get some. There it is. This is all at originmain.com. Also, when you get faithful warriors. I got it on the website, mm-hmm. no worries, under books from the episodes. I think I'm going to list the other books as well that he sort of mentioned. Okay, yeah, like you're going to have to dig through some of those. But yeah, yeah there's some. I'll, I'll, try, I'll make an yeah. attempt. Faithful make Warriors attempt. 100% will be there, um, you know, so you can get that good support on that one. Also, we have a store. Jocko has a store. Actually, we it's all it's everyone's store now. Pretty That's much. what it is. We're going to change the name to everyone's store? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe the I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna ask BTF Tony. He might uh, yeah, you know, suggest just go that communist one. on it and call it the People's <laughs> Store. <laughs> Maybe we, it, it would fit, is what I'm yeah. saying. Anyway, it's called Jocko Store. Mm-hmm. Currently, JockoStore.com. This is where you can get more rash guards. Rash guards, more how should I say, representative directly of the game, mm-hmm. of the path. <laughs> yeah, more you know, or it's less. funny. We but just took good. it for granted. We just talked about origin. We didn't say that it was made in America. 
after we just talked for four hours with someone that fought to keep America free, and then we didn't mention the fact that everything at Origin is made 100% without compromise in the United States of America. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Just the saying. The cotton is grown. See, yes. and that's the part too. Like you can say, yeah, 100% made. I took all these materials and I made them right here in America, 100%, which isn't yeah. even bad. I'm not even hating on that. That's yeah. good. But, we're but we're like, wait, wait, what about the materials though? Yeah. You know, kind of thing. Okay, I get it, man. Okay, all good either way. But what about those materials? Yeah. <laughs> in or- yeah. The origin materials, that's, that's grown in America. So, so Jocko our, Store. Our rash guards rash are guards. made in America as yes. well from origin. So boom, you T-shirts, know, in the game. Truckers hats, beanies, hoodies. Light and heavy, whatever you need, whatever you like. Oh, heavies are in. Wait. Well, Damn. it depends on what you mean. It, it, they're heavy, technically. Bro, but, you know, he lives, he lives 20 minutes from the Canadian yeah. border, bro. Yeah. You don't <laughs> have heavy for him. We need heavy for him. You're, you are right. So all you that stuff right. is at jockostore.com. Yeah, represent. So there you go. Yes. Also, subscribe to the podcast if you not if you haven't already. Uh, contrary to what Jocko says, I'm not saying you don't. Sub- what do you keep saying? You, I say you, keep, you don't think people subscribe to the podcast. You no, keep needing to tell them. No. So kicking an open door. If I remember correctly, which I probably don't, but if I do, I my initial uh, contention was that we don't have to say to subscribe to oh. the podcast. We don't have to say, hey, subscribe. You oh, know? what do we have to say then? Nothing. Oh, it's okay, either, why'd you just like, say oh, it? Oh, I'll just subscribe to this podcast if I like it kind of thing. That's, I think, I don't, I don't know. I think that was the whole contention. Nonetheless. Why is it even there then? Put it, why are we saying it then? That's the whole reason I brought it up at that time. It's like, why are we even saying this, remember? Yeah, but then and we some did guy it like, sent you a message yes, that said, I haven't subscribed yeah, until right. you mentioned it. Yeah, right. so that's it's like why. a good reminder. And then you're like, see... Yeah, okay. It's all coming. See, thanks, Jason. All right, Gardner. so, so Nonetheless, subscribe to the podcast. If you want. Podcast. How about that? If There's you also some other podcasts. One of them is called The Warrior Kid Podcast, yes. which you may or may not know about. It's for children. It's for parents. It's for everyone in the world. And then we have another podcast, oddly enough now, mm-hmm. which is called The Grounded Podcast. Grounded Podcast, yes. This, I guess it was formulated kind of with the offshoots of conversations about yeah. jujitsu in life, right? Yeah, well, here's the thing. There's some things that we talk, that you and I talk about, and then that you and I talk about with everyone that we know, yeah. that doesn't quite fit in the purview of Jocko Podcast yeah. actual, yeah. right? <laughs> actual. Like, yes. the Jocko Podcast is for Dean Ladd. Yes. It's not for Dean, Dean Lister. <laughs> Yeah. Not that Dean has Dean's been on it, but yeah. like Dean's, you know, we 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 covered the primary Jocko podcast type stuff from him. Yeah. But Dean has other information yes, for sir. us, other things that we talk about. That that is the perfect way to right, put it. Right. Actually. So there you go. Yeah. So subscribe to those podcasts, and also if you want to get some some soap, because you probably need soap. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say you do need soap. Get yes, it from IrishOaksRanch.com from Young Aiden, who's making soap on his farm from goats. You're not allowed to sell goat milk in California. Because speaking of communists, they like to control everything out there. Mm-hmm. But you can so, sell goat's milk soap, though. Yes. You can't sell the milk for consumption yes. direct. Nope. Gotcha. Nope. So get some soap and stay clean. Stay clean. Also, we have a YouTube channel if you're interested in the video version of this podcast. You want to see what we look like. Maybe not me. Maybe Jocko. Well, actually, we already know what Jocko. You want to know what Dean Ladd looks like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 98? 98 years, years old. old. Rolling just in here. Just so. More energy so good than to go. you, maybe. What's, and he, I, we should have gone like on a full fitness diet, like longevity protocol. What's yeah. he doing? Yeah, he's. What's Just he? What's he get doing? Get me on that 
path. Not to mention you know, he took a, took a round through <laughs> yeah. his guts. That yeah. guy can't be still killed, rolling. bro. He's yeah. the he's the ultimate. He's still rolling. So yeah, sure. and then we got psychological warfare. If you need some little mental spot, you can get that. It's available on various MP3 platforms. Me talking to you about your moment of weakness. If you need a visual version of that, go to flipsidecanvas.com. A little company run by Dakota Meyer. You can get you can get art. Sure. There, I said it. Sure. Yeah, man. And then also books. You want to exercise your brain. So get this book. This book is epic. Faithful Warriors, a combat marine remembers the Pacific War. I, like I said, I read 10% of it at most on this podcast. I didn't touch. There's huge pieces I didn't even touch in here. So order that book. Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual just got cleared by the DOD. So we are cleared hot. It's coming out January 14th. And you're probably thinking, oh, well, I'll wait a little while to order it. And if you think that, you're not getting that first edition. And then I will look at you with shame when I meet you. Sure. So, no, seriously, uh, Leadership Strategy and Tactics, pre-order it now so, the, so that the publisher knows how many to print. We all know that this has been a problem for some people in the past, me included. Way the Warrior Kid 1, 2, and 3. Order those books immediately for your children and for every child that you know. Yeah, get them. I, I, I've been buying them for the kids' libraries. That's awesome. So I got yeah. the three Warrior Kids books and Mikey and the Dragons, brought it down to the school library. Here you go. The, and I just realized I, I got to go get it for the, the little town libraries too. So more kids than just the ones that I know. That's awesome. It. And the teachers, have they been reading it in school with your kids? Uh, the, the fifth grade teacher. Yeah, that's right, because I, I, I got a bunch to? of letters from the kids. You did. Yeah, yeah, they read it. They're in the game. They are. They have a pull-up bar they have in pull-up classroom. Bar now. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know what? That right there, my mission in this world has been accomplished, yep. that there's a classroom in America with a pull-up bar. Every classroom in America should have a pull-up bar and a couple copies of the Warrior Kid. <laughs> so, yeah, check out those books and Mikey and the Dragons. I don't know. A lot of people. As I, as I always say, a lot of people think that's the best kids book ever written. Good, well, at least that's for sure. At least I do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Discipline equals freedom. Field manual. You can get that book if you want to get after it. And what's interesting about that book is there's no book like it. And my publisher, I was like, "Is this the biggest risk you've ever took with publishing a book?" And he's like, "Oh, absolutely, not even close. There's no book like it. It's totally outside of any other normal book." So yes, this is a big risk, but. What did it do? It it outperformed every model of sales that they had created for it. Like even though they're like, well, if it really does great, it'll be here. It outdid all that. So why? Word of mouth and you all spread the word. So thank you, Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. And then of course there is extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership that I wrote with my brother Leif Babin about leadership, not just in combat, but everywhere. And then we have Echelon Front, which is our leadership consultancy. And what we do is solve problems through leadership worldwide. That's what we do. Go to echelonfront.com for details. EF Online, since leadership training can't just be a shot in the arm and then you're good to go, you need to do more persistent training over a longer period of time. That's EF Online. Go to efonline.com. Check it out. We're doing new modules all the time. Sure. Muster 2019. The last muster that we are doing in 2019 is in Sydney, Australia. We are about to head down there. So 
Every muster we've done is sold out. If you want to come to the muster in Sydney, it is a two-day leadership conference instruction seminar that is guaranteed to up your leadership game. You will have pragmatic, actionable things to do that are going to make you a better leader when you leave. And what does that mean? That means you'll do better in everything in your life, period. And then we have EF Overwatch where we are taking veterans from spec ops and combat aviation and we are placing them into companies in the civilian sector and be on the lookout for EF Legion where we are taking broad military troopers and placing them into the civilian sector so they can use those military skills, take the principles that we know from the military, that we know from extreme ownership and put them into your company so that your company can win. And if you want to continue to interact with us virtually, then you can do it on the interwebs. Jason is at jason.n.gardner. Is on that on Instagram? On Instagram? Yep. Jason, Twitter? Uh, Jason, dot, uh, Jason N. Gardner on Twitter. Yeah, I knew there was a difference somewhere in there. Facebook? Jason N. Gardner on Facebook. The Facebook. Which one is your boat most uh, used social media platform? I like Twitter the most. No, excuse me. The Instagram. Graham. Yeah, Echo Twitter's calls it the gram. <laughs> the gram is the deal. Uh, Twitter's a bit clunky, seeing who wrote what and stuff uh, like that. And uh-huh. it's interesting. But all right, well, if you want to talk to Jason, that's him. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willing. That's Twitter, Instagram, and on the Facebookin. And once again, uh, thanks to Dean Ladd, Lieutenant Colonel Dean Ladd. United States Marine Corps for his service and sacrifice and the same obviously goes out to all our servicemen and women out there. Thank you for protecting our freedoms and to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, all first responders. Thanks for what you do every day to keep us safe here in our homes. And to everyone else out there, never forget. Never forget the price that has been paid for our freedom. A price of blood and horror. A price of sacrifice and suffering. A price that we cannot fully repay. But what we can do is live a life that honors every single sacrifice that has been made. For those that gave their lives, go out there and live. And until next time, this is Jason and Echo and Jocko. Out. <laughs>